recording record. The show hasn't started yet, though. We haven't started. Still hasn't started. This is not the show. Then you should put it on YouTube if it's not the show. It's not the show. This is the pre-show. This is the warm-up before the pre-show, actually. Now I think we might be on YouTube, but we're still in in pre-show. This is we're tailgating right now, getting prepped. I think we're on now. My back is out. Did you lose your back, Dan? Yes, I I lost my back shoveling last week. Monday most of the day, and then Tuesday morning or Tuesday evening after work. Lots Low, of shoveling. Lower back pain or Yep. Yeah, I have a lower back pain and all the muscles in my body that i don't use regularly and i'm on muscle relaxers you have no coffee you're on no coffee no muscle no no uh can't think straight but you know what the shit must go on how are you going to make it to the end of your own show i'll do some cat naps all right should we start the show do it here we go here we go uh the show still has not started yet, folks. Not yet. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments, too. He'll tell a dirty joke he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an enemy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Bell Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome to the mop-up for January 24th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 31 degrees and cloudy. I have back pain, lower back pain, but I am going to soldier through this. I am. Uh, Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel, who will be with us later on tonight. I love my audience, but I hate my friends. My friends do nothing for me. My friend Howie goes to a psychiatrist. He's been going for 20 years. He's got the money. He's got the time. This morning, I said, Howie, you're going to your shrink. I don't have the money. I don't have the time. Just a quick question for your shrink. Run it by him. 
or her. It's none of my business. Just run this question by your shrink. Ask him or her for me. Just a quick question. And and he says, no, he's not going to do it. He's not going to ask a quick question so I could get on with my life. All I want to know is why? Why do I insist that any woman I'm about to make love to must wear my mother's clothing, her jewelry, and perfume? That's all I want to know. A simple, simple answer to a quick question, but Howie won't do it for me. Would not do it. And uh, that's why uh, I don't like my friends, because they don't do anything for me. Simple question. Well, I don't know if you subscribe to Apple TV, but given the way this show is shaping up today, you might want to give it a try and maybe come back in a few hours. Apple TV, Denzel is starring in Macbeth. I don't know if you have Apple TV, but Denzel Washington is starring in Macbeth, and it's incredible. Macbeth streaming on Apple. And I salute Apple for resisting the temptation to call it Shakespeare's iMac, Beth. See, that's why I never made it in show business, because if I were an executive, that's I would have been pushing and fighting for iMac, Beth. I would say it's Apple TV. Call it instead of Macbeth, call it iMac iMac, Beth. Thank you for the coffee, Leslie. I would have preferred a coffee enema, but this will make do, and that doesn't get tired, that joke. The fact that I think it's a joke is what's so sad. Yes, Apple TV's iMac, Beth. The iMac comes in all different colors, and now with Denzel playing the part, so does Macbeth. So go with it, the iMac Beth. Not written by the bard, but the genius bard. Yeah, I'm on muscle relaxers, folks. Don't blame me. Blame the, the tension in my life that has caused me to be on muscle relaxers since Friday, Friday night. My back went out. I have severe lower back pain and... Uh, because I internalize my grief. I try not to, I'll talk about that in a second, but there's a lot of grief going on. A lot of people passed away this month and I don't cry. I keep my grief all inside and that's the cause of my lower back pain. And uh, so I keep it all inside. I have lower back pain and shredded pillows all over the apartment because that's how I deal with grief. I bite into pillows and rip them apart, leave the stuffing scattered around the place, and then I pee on the bed. I learned this from my dog, and it works. Whenever I'm sad or scared, I, I shred pillows and pee everywhere. And honestly, it worked a lot better when I didn't live alone. It, it's not working for me anymore. That's why I'm on muscle relaxers. When I lived with people, and shredded pillows and peed on the bed. It helped me deal with insecurity and grief. Now, uh, most most women, they don't want to live with a guy uh, who shreds pillows when he's nervous and pees on the bed because most women don't like dogs. They prefer cats. Well, it, it's scary outside. It's cold and I'm losing friends, relatives. We all are. Celebrities we love. 
And uh, I hate this uncertainty and, and shredding pillows and peeing on the bed. It doesn't cut it for me the way it once did. So what does help, uh, muscle relaxers seem to be helping, although it's not relaxing. Uh, it's only relaxing one muscle that I need. Uh, I'm talking about my brain. You people have a dirty mind. In times like these, it's important to remind ourselves to, uh, to focus on who's really important. And by that, I mean the people we hate. Uh, I thought long and hard over this weekend, and there's a lot of sadness and grief, but I realized, and I recommend this for everybody, I realized that I am so blessed that I have a little podcast where I can acknowledge all the people who have hurt me over the decades. And, you know, you're all important to me. All the people who have disappointed me and let me down, humiliated me. I remember all of you and you're all special, especially at times like these. Some of you hurt me in a big way, some ex-wives, some bosses, audience members. I remember every single one of you. But then there are also the little slights that I remember, the, the, these little acts, small acts of hatred that are so important. And those little, those little small acts of hatred, hatred, those, those slights that you think don't make a big difference in a man's life, but they do, they do. That, that, that young couple at Starbucks asking me to sit on a chair and let them sit at the table because why do I need a table? Why am I hogging a table if I'm all alone? That was November 3rd, 2007. Starbucks, the farmer's market on Fairfax. And I still remember how good looking and young that couple was. And when I refused politely to give up my table, uh, I remember how the guy, very young and handsome, I remember he rolled his eyes at me to suggest I'm a loser. Now, I don't know your name, but I remember you. A day doesn't go by that that little act of hatred on your part stays with me and i remember you and i and i every day every day i think of you and and wish your pretty little face gets ravaged by dear chlamydia that's what i i, I just fantasize that this good looking young stud with that beautiful woman who wanted who wanted my table at starbucks and and rolled his eyes at me i wish right now that his face gets ravaged by dear chlamydia. Sometimes I imagine his face covered in, in furry boils that leak. And that's what helps us get through times like these, remembering the people we hate. These are sad times and, and I am grateful for all the people I loathe and root against and the people, all the people who hurt me in the past I remember them all and they provide comfort to me. They get my heart beating in the morning. They, I count them trying to fall asleep. I count, some people count sheep. I count the slights since I was, since the doctor slapped me on the butt. I remember him, Dr. Stone. I remember every slight. And this is important to remember because 
we're losing a lot of dear friends and loved ones and celebrities who we adored. Friends, celebrities, they disappear, they disappoint, they depart, but enemies stay with us forever. The construction worker who cut me off on the Bay Bridge in San Francisco, March 11th, 1995, and then this construction worker gave me the finger and told me to F off. I think about that construction worker every day, Bay Bridge, San Francisco, 1995. And I fantasize about what I should have done, how I should have sped up after he cut me off and just started ramming him from behind and just honking my horn and ramming him from behind saying, you know, take that construction worker. I'm banging into you from behind. How does that feel, Mr. Construction Worker? Who's the man now? Who's the alpha dog now? Actually, that wasn't the construction worker. That was the Indian chief. It was the Indian chief who cut me off, not the construction worker. The point is people come and go. I thought it was the construction worker. It's funny how the mind plays tricks on you. I always thought it was the construction worker, but it was uh, the Indian chief. The point is people come and go, but memories of people you hate, people you want to get even with, they live forever. That club owner in Houston, Texas, who only paid me half because even though it was a packed house, he insisted I was not funny and that meant he lost repeat customers. He only paid me half because he said everybody who came to the club last night, half of them are never gonna come back because of you. And uh, he humiliated me to my face and he, he, he wouldn't pay me what he owed me. And so a day doesn't go by that I don't think about Russ Nazarian. Big Russ. Uh, I heard Big Russ passed away, the club owner, Big Russ Nazarian, but he's still with me. I hate you, Big Russ. I do. I think about what I should have said to you. Every night, sometimes I fantasize stealing something from the club. You only paid me half. I'm going to steal a martini shaker or two, or, or your, your, your blender to get even with Big Russ Nazarian. And then there's his little son, Little Russ Nazarian. He had a son who I remember hung out, Little Russ Nazarian. And I see that he's still alive, and I hate him just as much as I hate Big Russ Nazarian. I, uh, I hate Little Russ I follow Little Russ Nazarian on Facebook, and I saw last week, this is good news, his wife's stepmother is in the hospital. Little Russ didn't say what she's in the hospital for, but hey, Little Russ, thoughts and prayers. You got my thoughts, and you got plenty of my prayers. You're, you're in my thoughts and prayers, Little Russ Nazarian, idiot son of Big Russ Nazarian, your dead father, was a piece of shit, and a day doesn't go by that I don't think of him or you, and uh, this is what it's all about. I feel much better. This is how I grieve, because there's a lot of sadness right now, and remember, all of you take from this. You, you Remember to keep the ones you hate deep in your heart. They are sacred. 
Big Russ Nazarian, owner of Nazarian's Laugh Complex in Houston, Texas, never paid his taxes. He cheated on his wife with all the waitresses and his collection of men's muscle magazines bordered on the perverse. His son, Little Russ Nazarian, owns and operates Little Russ Nazarian's car wash in Butte, Montana. And he too, like his dad, is a piece of shit. And Little Russ Nazarian's car wash in Butte, Montana is a money laundering operation for the Sonola drug cartel because there's no way Little Russ is staying in business running a car wash. And Little Russ, just like Little Russ's mother, is a cross-eyed witch. And your kids are stupid and ugly, Little Russ Nazarian. Ah. Well, we, we lost the loaf. It's a rough weekend. Maybe that's why my back pain hurt so much. I was internalizing the death of the loaf. What a guy, meatloaf, pro-Trump, big Trump supporter, anti-vax mandate, anti-mask mandate, you know, a couple hundred pounds overweight, not much. And he was 75 years old, suffering from severe asthma, dead from COVID. Who would believe it? Who would believe it? It's shocking. Meatloaf, dead, a 75-year-old asthmatic who was only a couple hundred pounds overweight, anti-mask, anti-vax, dead from COVID. You know, it reminds me of the randomness of it all. Just anyone can die from COVID. So why worry about it? Why, why, it's just random. Why, why social distance? Why wear a mask? Why get a booster? Just enjoy life because COVID, it's just random. I mean, it's so random that an overweight man in his 70s suffering from severe asthma who was anti-vax, anti-mask, would die from COVID. This should remind all of us that we can't trust the scientists. Everything the CDC and Fauci tell us is completely wrong. I mean, when a perfectly healthy, morbidly obese senior citizen suffering from severe asthma, a man in the prime chuck of his life, like Meatloaf, a man who, who doesn't believe in mask mandates or vaccines, dies from COVID, all I can say is do your own research. Do what Meatloaf did. Trust your gut. Because the scientific community does not know what it is talking about. You're on your own. The loaf, the loaf dead from COVID. And again, that should serve as a reminder to us all of the randomness of this virus. It can kill anyone, anyone. You never know who it's going to strike down. So cherish these moments and live life to your fullest. The good news is meat had a family. I called him meat, meat, meatloaf, meat's family was by his side uh, when he died. And because of that, a, a, a huge part of meatloaf lives on inside of them because it turns out, I'm not making this up, they all tested positive for COVID. So this is true. His family caught COVID from him. So he's still with them. Meatloaf, 
very vocal opposition to masks, uh, not sleep apnea masks, no, uh, those he supported, so long as they weren't mandated by the government. And again, the, the randomness of COVID, uh, I mean, I just can't believe a severely asthmatic, overweight man in his mid-70s who opposed masks and vaccines would die from COVID. Again, it can happen to anyone. By the way, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but Meatloaf died uh, two weeks before the release of his new album, Bat Out of Wet Market. Bat Out of Wet Market. Okay, I'm on muscle relaxers. Eric Clapton today doubled down on his anti-vax stance. He said once again that he was opposed to vaccine mandates. He said that vaccines are dangerous because Eric Clapton doesn't believe in shooting anything into his arm unless it's first been heated in a spoon. Look, folks, don't hate Eric Clapton because he's anti-vax. Hate him because he's anti-Muslim, because he's anti-immigrant. Speaking of people who are anti-Muslim, Bill Maher Friday night said he's done with COVID. Uh, there's a pattern here. Very rich old racists opposing vaccines. I guess it has something to do with not wanting to give everyone a shot in life. That joke is so bad, I can't believe Bill Maher didn't tell it. Bill hates the vaccine. He hates wearing the masks. This is what he said. Friday. He hates being forced to get vaccinated. He hates the ID cards. Bill Maher says he doesn't think COVID is all that virulent. And judging by his attacks on Muslims, Bill Maher is an expert on virulence. Uh, he is a virulent racist, so he would know whether or not COVID is all that virulent. Well, should we trust Bill Maher's medical knowledge? Yes, we should. We should trust Bill Maher and his medical knowledge, especially because half the strippers he dates dress like nurses. And it's those strippers who dress like nurses who really know their stuff. The strippers who dress like doctors, they're the prima donnas. They don't know what's really happening with the patients. But you talk to the strippers who dress like nurses, they have first-hand experience with the patients. And so we should listen to Bill because half the women he dates are strippers who dress like nurses. So we should get all our medical advice from Bill Maher, who answers the age-old question, if syphilis could talk, what would it say? Bill said we shouldn't worry about COVID Friday night because it only kills old people which might explain why the audience for real time with Bill Maher keeps shrinking and shrinking. I don't know, Bill, you, you may want to keep old people alive. Bill Maher said we're overreacting to COVID because it only kills people who are unhealthy. It only kills people who have a comorbidity and he blames comorbidities on our lifestyle. So COVID, he believes in the end is about personal responsibility. 
But wearing a mask or getting a booster isn't personal responsibility. That's a choice. And if someone who's unvaccinated sneezes on me, that's his choice to give me COVID. And it's my personal responsibility to, well, I don't know. I guess that's why nobody's giving me my own show on HBO. Bill Maher must know more if HBO has given him a show. And that's why I don't say HBO should ever cancel Bill Maher. I am not saying HBO should cancel Bill Maher. I don't approve of cancel culture. I don't. Just because Bill Maher says horrible racist things about Arabs and Muslims and gives millions of Americans license to hate on Muslims, just because he spreads misinformation about COVID and people die from misinformation, I would never suggest that HBO cancel Bill Maher because HBO should not participate in the cancel culture. If HBO stands for anything, it is not canceling shows. Nobody on TV should ever be canceled. Do not cancel Bill Maher just because he facilitates Muslims getting beaten up. HBO should not cancel him because Bill Maher does not reflect the views of HBO. No. The, the, the views of HBR, HBO are, let's turn our channel over to someone who spews hatred against Muslims and misinformation about COVID. Uh, what he says in no way reflects the views of HBO. We just believe in turning our channel for an hour over to somebody who hates Muslims and spews misinformation about COVID. It's not HBO's fault. You can't hold HBO accountable for the, the, the Muslims who get beaten up because Bill Maher spews hatred against them. You can't hold HBO uh, accountable for the people who will die because Bill Maher trivializes vaccines. That's not HBO's responsibility. If you think so, you're part of the cancel culture and TV networks don't cancel shows or people that's not they're not in the business of canceling someone because it's not a good uh it's not good for the brand they don't hbo doesn't care about their brand they just care about giving bill maher a platform it's like me having a party and there's a guest at my party i have a dinner party and i have a, a guest who is loudly insulting muslims saying that there are, it's, that Muslims, practicing Muslims, are, are violent because Islam is a violent religion. Kind of the stuff Bill says over and over again, that, that Islam is a violent religion. And my dinner party guest, somebody like Bill Maher sitting at the table, uh, is getting his facts wrong about COVID. It would be wrong for me to send him home from my party. That's kind of like HBO. It would be wrong because my guests, I have no responsibility to the guests at the dinner table or children. That's not that's not what we do, uh, because Bill Maher, my dinner guest, uh, what he says in no way reflects who I am. 
the fact that I'm feeding him, letting him talk over and over, hog the conversation in, in front of my friends or their children, and I'm being polite to him, that in no way reflects my values. You shouldn't judge me by the people I surround myself with. That's why HBO, I would never want them to cancel Bill Maher just because he has an hour each week to call Islam a violent religion and trivialize vaccines. That's not a reflection of HBO. Um, and so it's the same thing with my dinner party. If Bill is my guest at my dinner party and he convinces a few of my guests to hate Muslims, maybe not hire Muslims, uh, beat Muslims up, persecute Muslims, if he convinces a few of my guests not to get vaccinated and, and they die and spread the disease, that is not my responsibility. It's not my fault that I introduced him to my friends. It's out of my hands. I can't control who I invite to my dinner parties. I, I don't cancel people and, and neither does HBO. And it's not for us to judge. In America, everyone has the right to say whatever they want about Muslims, about vaccines. What we don't have is the right to speak up against what they're saying. This is America. You have the right to say whatever you want with no consequences. Otherwise, it's canceled. The cancel culture wins. Bill Maher should be allowed to call Islam a violent religion. But nobody has the right to say he shouldn't say that. Nobody has the right to correct him. Nobody has the right to hold HBO accountable for the things someone says about Islam. No, he should just be allowed to say whatever he wants. And he should be allowed to give out misinformation about vaccines. People should be allowed to say whatever they want, wherever they want, even if it gets people beaten up and killed. And, and HBO, we have no right to, to maybe cancel our subscription and complain to HBO because that's cancel culture and that's wrong. So Bill Maher said on Friday, COVID isn't so bad <laughs> and we need to put it into perspective. Okay, we're coming up on 900,000 Americans dead from the virus. So let's put that into perspective. And, and when you do that, Bill Maher is absolutely right because 900,000 doesn't come anywhere close to the millions of Americans who are brain dead from watching Bill Maher. Do you realize there are people who get their news from Bill Maher? The billions that HBO makes each year, but not a penny for a legitimate nightly news program, maybe Vice, maybe they, they would come. billions of dollars, but no responsibility for the truth. John Oliver is the closest they have to that. Uh, HBO says it's important that Bill Maher speak his mind. Well, if that's your mind speaking, Bill, maybe cut down on those aluminum supplements you're taking. 
unbelievable that you can say what you're allowed to say in America and what you're not allowed to say in America. Well, Joe Biden is now saying he's thinking, well, (laughs) I doubt it. Uh, He's thinking about sending our troops to Ukraine. Wow. What are the odds that we're about to go to war in Ukraine? What are the odds? Build back better, dead, voting rights, dead. And suddenly we're going to war. I mean, what are the odds that a president turns to war when his domestic agenda stalls? Who could have predicted that? Well, most of my listeners. Here's where character counts. I've, uh, uh, Professor John Bick and I have argued about character. I say character counts because the world is very complicated and we need uh, leaders who we can trust to, to untangle it, it all for us. And, and Joe Biden lacks character. Again, I would vote for him over Trump, but Joe Biden lacks character and I don't trust him or his White House when it comes to Ukraine. This entire White House, from Jen Psaki, the press spokesman, to Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, they are, they are war profiteers. I will bring this up again. There is a reason Joe Biden got an introduction from David Rubenstein, head of the Carlisle Group, to use his home for Thanksgiving because David Rubenstein is the biggest war profiteer in America, if not the world. Our foreign policy is in the hands of former lobbyists from West Exec, and that means they all worked for the military-industrial complex before they worked for Joe Biden. Look up West Exec, founded by our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, Jen Psaki, a partner with West Exec. Uh, they, they all work for the military industrial complex, which is worried because Afghanistan, that show is over. Our 20 year war against terror is winding down. We spent $14 trillion and seven of those trillion dollars went to the people Anthony Blinken and Jen Psaki lobby for. We have a new Pentagon budget and it got a bump. You know, we're, the peace dividend, well, there wasn't a peace dividend. We, we gave more money to the, the Pentagon to pass along to the weapons manufacturers to tie them over until we can find our next war or threat of war. Threat of war is just as good as a war. So we need an enemy. We need an enemy to keep our war economy going. And now the enemy is Putin and we have to protect Ukraine. Uh, Again, we don't need to go to war in Ukraine. We just need a new hotspot to justify spending billions and billions and billions more on equipment. Somehow that doesn't cause inflation. Somehow nobody remembers the massive inflation 
caused by the Vietnam War. Military spending doesn't cause inflation, but uh, making sure that the 52% of American children who live in poverty get $300 a, 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 a month, that causes inflation. That we have to get rid of. That's the genius of the military-industrial complex. That's either the genius of the military-industrial complex or the stupidity of the American people that we have been convinced to bankrupt ourselves on enemies who don't exist just so we can buy weapons that don't work, that don't, that don't work, that we don't need. But let's get scared about Ukraine. Let's get distracted about Ukraine because one thing is for certain, whenever there's a war, both parties come together. That's what bring, it doesn't bring America together, but it brings both parties together when we have to go to war because both parties work for the military industrial complex. That's what unites us, spending money on weapons. So let's get scared because Putin has amassed more than 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border. And uh, wow, you know, Ben Bird, Professor Ben Burgess taught me, he said, whenever anybody says socialism and communism has failed everywhere they've tried it, when somebody says that, you say, well, capitalism has failed everywhere they've tried it. Soviet Union fell in what 1991 christmas of 1990 christmas of 1991 i can't remember so they've had you know close to 30 years with american style capitalism i know it's american style capitalism because we've been laundering their money for the past 30 years how come nobody says you know capitalism we tried it in russia and it failed, and now they're our enemy, and they're amassing troops on the Ukrainian border, or they're trying capitalism now, some hybrid form of capitalism in China. It's not working. How come nobody ever says capitalism fails everywhere they tried? Because this isn't about capitalism. America isn't about capitalism. It's about 0.01% of American families controlling all the wealth and funneling a lot of it into bombs. That's what, this isn't capitalism. We're being told now we have to spend billions on weapons to protect Ukraine. Let's sell them more weapons. Let's sell those F-16s to Turkey so they don't end up buying the F-16s from Russia because we need Turkey to be part of our alliance, which is bullshit. What we really need is Turkey buying weapons from us and not the Soviet Union or Russia. I'm sorry, Russia. Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Now it's Russia. Do you trust Joe Biden? Do you trust Joe Biden? All war is a lie. You cannot go to war unless you lie to the American people. Joe Biden is a liar. Asking Joe Biden to tell the truth is like asking your coffee maker 
to fry an egg. He does not tell the truth. One of the reasons Joe Biden's domestic agenda has failed is because Joe Biden's word is not his bond. Joe Biden earlier this month spoke earlier before an all black audience in Georgia fighting for the voting rights bill. Once again, he lied. It was in front of a, a group of young African-Americans. Once again, Joe Biden lied and insisted he had been arrested by the police in the 60s fighting for voting rights. This is a lie. He said it in front of young African-Americans, impressionable. It sounded good, but it was a lie. It's a lie that the White House has had to walk back several times since he's been president. It's a lie that he keeps telling that he was arrested fighting for equal housing and voting rights. It's a lie that his campaign has had a walk back since 1988 when he first ran for president and had to quit because of plagiarism. He cannot help himself. He likes to pretend he's Bernie Sanders, who was actually arrested in Chicago. There are pictures of Bernie Sanders getting arrested, fighting for equal housing in Chicago. But Joe Biden won't stop saying he was arrested fighting or marching with Dr. King, fighting for or marching with Dr. King. He is an inveterate liar, and it's why he can't make a deal with the other senators in Washington, D.C. He can't be trusted. If you're a liar who will say anything to get elected, you will say anything to get your legislation passed. If you are willing to say to a, 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 a black audience, if you're willing to lie to a black audience that you were arrested fighting for voting rights, what will you say to Manchin or Cinema? They know he's a liar. They know he doesn't keep his promises. I met Joe Biden in 2008, around then, and we actually talked. I was working on a television show as a comedy writer, and, and I ended up talking to Joe Biden. He talked at me for two hours not impressed. I ended up writing jokes for him and I never got paid, but that's not why I uh, don't like the man. I voted for him. But I remember listening to him talk at me for two hours and coming home, kind of liking him, uh, but he has what is called lagaria, diarrhea of the mouth. And he just couldn't stop talking. And not only that, he wouldn't stop crapping on the Democrats. He's a Democrat, and he wouldn't stop crap, crapping on other Democrats in the Senate, especially John Kerry, who had just lost uh, the presidential race against uh, George W. Bush. And, and Biden was one of his campaign chairs. He, would, he was a spokesman for Kerry. And all he did when he was talking to me was crap on, what a f on John Kerry. And I remember thinking, who would trust this guy? If, if he, he just met me and he's crapping on all his fellow Democrats, imagine 
what he's going to say about me. And you, you know, he's he's they know this, and that's why he accomplished nothing in the Senate other than protecting the credit card companies. There's no great legislation that bears his name. He says he was instrumental passing the racist crime bill, but he, uh, he's never, there's no piece of legislation that he was able to marshal through the Senate. Why would anybody think he could get legislation passed, make deals uh, if he's the president? He has no track record and he can't do it. He can't make the deals. And that's because he's a liar. And are you going to trust Joe Biden to take this country to war? By the way, I don't think we're going to war. I think we're just coming up with excuses to give more money to David Rubenstein, who is chairman of the Carlisle Group, who also runs the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. Uh, are you going to trust Joe Biden to take this country to war? A man who who can't stop lying about his participation in the civil rights struggle. It's really offensive to 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 lie uh, about the sacrifices you made in the civil rights struggle, especially when you were against busing as a senator, especially when you got elected to the Senate as a segregationist. I find that really offensive. I find it really offensive as a Bernie supporter who who we posted on the show the pictures of Bernie uh, as a student getting arrested fighting for black people and having the nomination uh, taken away from him and given to Joe Biden uh, who has stolen the valor of the people who really sacrificed for voting rights. It really is offensive. It is stolen valor to keep lying that you were arrested fighting for the right for black people to vote, fighting for equal housing. It's really offensive because that is one of the great sacrifices made by, uh, by John Lewis, Martin Luther King, Bernie Sanders, not, not as much, obviously, but there were people who went down. The Freedom Riders, a lot of them were white, and they ended up getting beaten up and killed. It's stolen valor. It's repulsive. It is really offensive for Joe Biden to claim he was arrested for fighting for equal housing or getting black people uh, the vote. It's really offensive that he, he keeps saying it, he gets called on it, he walks it back, and then he says it again. And now this guy is thinking about sending troops to Ukraine, and we're supposed to trust him. You know, I keep talking about bringing back the draft, and I really mean it. I do. And it's not just because I hate my children. Uh, I really think we need to bring back the draft. It's not a popular position, but I know that if we had a draft, we would not be spending all this money on weapons we don't need, and they wouldn't be 
able to scare us into fighting these wars for that that aren't necessary when diplomacy will suffice if we had a draft you would care if your commander-in-chief lied or not you would care if it was you you know if it was your if it was you or your son or daughter who's going to be sent to fight in your in ukraine you would vote more carefully for your commander-in-chief you would pay attention to what he says whether or not he can be trusted now Bo biden uh very sad uh left behind a widow left behind children uh served our country from what i from everything i read he was a great man who who tried to make it on his own who tried to separate himself from the shadow of his father and did not uh, have things handed to him to some degree. It's very dangerous in this country to talk about Bo Biden's service in the military. It's also very dangerous in this country to talk about Pete Buttigieg's service in the military because we don't have a draft. So anybody who wears the uniform automatically is a hero and is beyond reproach and there isn't any possibility that they politicized their uniform that's out of the question because only one percent of americans participate in the military and because of that the, the transaction is no draft but the one percent of the people who do serve who volunteer they are sacred heroes and all of them none of them can be criticized and that's why we need to bring back the the uh the draft to prevent uh stolen valor now Bo biden is not guilty of stealing valor uh his father steals Bo biden's valor and, and talks about his son wearing the uniform and again Bo Biden passed away and again he he was a great dad a great husband uh you know served our country I have nothing but the utmost respect for Bo Biden I don't know anybody who would say anything bad about Bo Biden and I'm not saying anything bad about Bo Biden I am criticizing his father stealing some valor about Bo. Uh, Joe likes to talk about Bo's military service. And when he does that, uh, he does a disservice to the men and women who really served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Bo Biden, the truth is, and if we had a draft, it would be really easy to say this. The truth is, Bo Biden was a lawyer who then joined the Delaware National Guard and became a JAG officer. You don't go through basic training when you're a JAG officer. You are a lawyer who gets special treatment. You take a couple of exams and you're a JAG officer. He was sent to Kosovo after the war there uh, when Clinton was president to work with judges he was a lawyer uh, 
who wore the uniform, and he worked with the judges, helped set up the judicial system in uh, war-torn Kosovo. And then he got elected Attorney General of Delaware. Now, this is similar to Pete Buttigieg's service. Uh, Bo, Bo Biden got elected Attorney General of Delaware. And then, as Attorney General of Delaware, he deployed to Iraq as a JAG officer, where he served for a year, half the time while his father was vice president. So he did wear the uniform. He wore the uniform, but he was a lawyer. The son of the vice president, I believe half the time he spent in Iraq, he was the son of the vice president. And during that entire time he served as a JAG officer in Iraq, he was the attorney general of Delaware. War hero, he was not, and he never claimed to be. He had political ambition, and uh, so he served the National Guard more than I did. It's more than I did, and he went to Iraq as a JAG officer. War hero, he was not. And this is the problem with not having a draft, because we're not allowed to tell the truth about people's war records. We allow stolen valor. All you have to do is have worn the uniform, and it's like a priest garb. You're not allowed to be criticized. Uh, John Kerry got swift-boated in 2004 because he served in Vietnam when there was a draft. So a lot of kids came back uh, and they remembered John Kerry's opportunistic, phony Brahmin accent. He, when he served in uh, Vietnam, uh, he had a Kennedy accent and had political ambitions. And a lot of the people who he served with saw that they didn't trust him and they were able to question his claims. I, I don't think it was fair that he got swift-boated when we had a certifiable draft dodger. He was running. I mean, George W. Bush dodged the draft and was AWOL. John Kerry got swift-boated. It was terrible what they did to him. But we were talking about a time when all Americans had to serve and because of that, you could question the service. Like, what did you do during the war? Like, what did Dan Quayle do during the war? But without a draft, you can't question anybody's service. There's no draft. Anybody who stepped foot in Iraq or Afghanistan is a hero. But that would make Robin Williams and Al Franken heroes. They they were, I, I think Robin, from what I understand, went to some outposts that Pete Buttigieg would never step foot in. I think there's some USO performers who were in more danger than Bo Biden and Pete Buttigieg. I know that about Robin. I know Robin would ask where, you know, take me wherever there are soldiers who are alone. And, and he uh, 
he didn't talk about this, but he went to places where it was dangerous, uh, unlike Pete Buttigieg. But to say that, I'm disrespecting the troops. I'm disrespecting Bo Biden and Pete Ju Buttigieg's valor. Uh, so again, not claiming, I, I'm not saying that Bo Biden stole any valor. But he went to Iraq as the attorney general of Delaware, the son of the vice president. He worked as a JAG officer. He was a lawyer in Iraq. That's not the same thing as being a soldier. It doesn't require the same basic training. You don't end up in harm's way. And Joe Biden is very careful how he describes Bo's service. He kind of steals some valor. He never says his son was a lawyer in the military. He just says, my son served in Iraq. And we automatically assume that means he saw action, which I don't think he did. I don't think JAG officers, I don't think sons of vice presidents, I don't think attorney generals of Delaware serving in the National Guard as lawyers they're not sent out on combat missions. They can get unlucky over there, but so can USO performers. So could Lisa Lampanelli. I think Lisa Lampanelli was probably in more dangerous spots than Pete Buttigieg and Bo Biden combined. And boy, that's sacrilege to talk that way, isn't it? Because there's no draft and anybody who wore the uniform is a high priest. This, this is what the incredibly fraudulent Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, trades on. Because there is no draft, he is able to trade on his quote-unquote war record. He's able to use his quote-unquote war record for political expediency because he served in Afghanistan I'll talk about his service. Thank you for your service, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, anybody who wore the uniform and went to Afghanistan, you can't, you can't criticize them, and they can say whatever they want about their service. Well, Mayor Pete, he was Mayor Pete when he was deployed to Afghanistan. He was the mayor. Uh, he was the mayor, I believe, was South Bend, Indiana. And he was so busy being the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, that he deployed to Afghanistan as part of the National Guard. That's how important a job being the mayor of South Bend, Indiana is. And that's how important a job he had being deployed to Afghanistan, that he could also serve as the mayor of South Bend. He didn't go through basic training. He went to Afghanistan Afghanistan, and he had a cushy job pushing paperwork in Afghanistan behind, as they call it, the wire, behind the wire, using his experience as both a mayor and a former McKinsey consultant. We've talked about McKinsey. He was serving in the National Guard in Afghanistan, tracing American dollars where American dollars were 
in Afghanistan. He wasn't going out to, to meet with tribal warlords. He was just auditing bank accounts uh, behind the wire in Afghanistan. He never saw any action. According to his autobiography, he would chauffeur people around Kabul sometimes. That, that meant going outside the wire. And yes, that is it is dangerous to be outside the wire, not as dangerous for him as it is for the people who live in Kabul. Uh, and he can count the number of times he was outside the wire during his deployment, 119 times. He counted it. Uh, if he ran an errand in Kabul, he, that, was a, that was his mission. Uh, driving somebody to a meeting. That was uh, one of his missions. Never saw any firefighting, never had a fire, his weapon. Uh, he was running errands in Kabul, had plenty of time behind the wire to smoke cigars, hang out on the rooftop and think. That's what he said in his autobiography. Never fired a weapon, never saw any action, but there's no draft. And he wore the uniform, so he's sacred. And he couldn't wait to tell everyone how he put his life on the line, risking everything when he deployed. Go watch him during the debates, how he shamelessly uses his military service and talks about how he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. What a disservice to the soldiers and the USO performers who, who were outside the wire in going in helicopters to uh, visit troops who were behind enemy lines. Uh, I can't speak for the, the troops, but I will speak for the USO performers, Mayor Pete, and uh, there, I would say every USO performer saw more action in Afghanistan than you did. And you do a disservice to the soldiers who really served and who really died uh, in Afghanistan. But he'll be running for president again on his war record. And, you know, to accuse him of stolen valor, to ask him about his war record that he's so proud of uh, will be accused of swift boating him uh, because, you know, you're the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who deploys to Afghanistan to be behind the wire, sit behind a desk, using your experience at McKinsey to trace American dollars on a computer computer screen. Uh, not that doesn't make you a hero. Uh, it makes you a resume builder. There's a lot of money. We've talked about the trillions of dollars, right? $14 trillion wasted in Afghanistan and Iraq over this 20-year war on terror. $20 trillion wasted. And who do you think was making money off it? McKinsey. Of course, McKinsey was making money off it. He was building his resume. And most importantly, this is the real crime. 
He was proud of his service, and he says that the war in Afghanistan was righteous. That's the difference between John Kerry and Pete Buttigieg, who he said he thought about in his autobiography. He talks about thinking about John Kerry and how he served in, in, in Vietnam. The difference is John Kerry, problematic as he is, threw his medals away in protest, testified uh, before the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee, spoke out against the Vietnam War when he came back. Uh, and he actually saw action and was wounded. Mayor Pete comes back from Afghanistan having seen no action, except for some video games he probably played on his computer. And he says Afghanistan was a righteous war. Uh, even though every candidate who comes on this show running for office, I ask them the same question. Did Afghanistan attack us on 9-11? Did the Taliban attack us on 9-11? And every candidate who's vetted by Howie Klein, they all say, no, we never should have gone to Afghanistan. Pete Buttigieg trades on his war record, which is negligible. Uh, he, he was safer than a USO performer and says it was, a, it was the right thing to do. We end up in these, these wars that destroy millions of lives because there's no draft. We end up in wars because of politicians who joined the National Guard for their street cred. They put on the uniform and they deploy to sit behind a desk in the green zone, behind the wire, just so they have enough valor and political cover to send real soldiers off to fight and die. You know, Pete Buttigieg wants to be commander in chief and he'll say things like sending troops to die overseas is a solemn obligation that I take various, very seriously because I wore the uniform behind the wire playing video games while real men and women, real soldiers came home wounded with PTSD. Pete Buttigieg's war record is a joke. And you're no longer allowed to say something like that because when there's no draft, anyone who wears the uniform gets a participatory trophy. You're not allowed to ask questions. And that's dangerous because Pete Buttigieg our current Secretary of Transportation, who is part of the Democratic Party's bench, he is taking advantage of the fact that there is no draft, so people are in awe of his service. Bad guy, Pete Buttigieg, and Joe Biden, bad. Bernie, great. Bernie Sanders, Great. Uh, uh, AOC, great. The squad, great. Well, the stock market dropped uh, at one point today more than a thousand points, entering what is called a correction. They call it a correction. No, a correction would be an economy 
that made things instead of trading meaningless pieces of paper. The financial services industry is one quarter of the world economy. Uh, one quarter of the world economy is just trading pieces of paper, meaningless pieces of paper back and forth. It wasn't always this way. At the start of World War II, the financial sector was below 10% of America's economy. Today, when you factor in finance, banks, real estate, insurance, close to one third of our economy is investing, is, is just investing money. And that's the money we know about. And this is not good. This is not good. The idea of investing, supposedly, is to put your money into businesses that will create other businesses, that will manufacture items, that will ne necessitate the manufacturing of more items, and then more businesses grow, and the economy grows because the more things we make, the more services we, we require, and that is a legitimate investment. If you believe in capitalism, if you believe in the language of money, this is a good thing, jobs. But we now have a financialized economy. One third of the economy is placing bets on the value of things. Uh, I think another third is our healthcare system, which is just fraud. Uh, does anybody make an honest living in America? If you're working right now, think about what you do. Do you make an honest living? Is what you're doing, is it really necessary? Uh, or the work they give, you know the work they give you isn't necessary. Uh, but we have a financialized economy, one third of this economy is placing bets on the value of things. Mortgages are now bundled into a security that is traded. Auto loans are now bundled into a security that is traded. When a company issues a bond, Goldman Sachs will allow investors to bet on the security of the bond. You can place bets on Wall Street on whether or not a company will default on a loan. This isn't regulated by the government. This is just done uh, without any oversight. And there is no difference between what the financial sector does and what a casino does. It is the same thing. You can walk into a casino and place a bet on anything. They will find somebody who will uh, make odds make book for you. You can bet on who will win the midterms. You're not allowed to bet on presidential elections, I don't think, in America, but you can do it offshore. All I see now are commercials for online betting. Everybody's betting now. And these, these new trading apps are designed to look exactly like the betting apps. And there really is no difference between betting on the Rams or betting on Apple, Apple stock. You can bet on anything. And uh, Wall Street, the way Wall Street generates all the, the profits, record profits uh, this year, is 
you, you they, they let people make bets on bonds and stocks, on commodities like orange juice. And then when they start to feel they might have made the wrong bet, they're offered an opportunity to offload the risk by making another bet to counteract it. That's what Wall Street is. It's men in $5,000 suits helping other men in $5,000 suits make a series of bets that will lower their exposure to risk. It creates nothing. It makes nothing. It helps no one the same way casinos benefit no one. No one. The casinos, online betting just sucks money out of the economy. It doesn't create jobs. It's a sickness. Gambling is a sickness. Wall Street is gambling. Therefore, it's a sickness. Every time these bets are made on Wall Street uh, and these trades, which are bets, Billions, like five, ten billion dollars, five, five, ten billion bets a day on Wall Street. They call them trades. Every time these bets are made, Wall Street, the casino, uh, they get a percentage off the top. And it's called, it's really speculation, which is a dirty word. Speculation is dirty because it's gambling. So it's speculation. And uh, the financial houses all get a piece of this speculation, but the government no longer does. We used to, we used to for decades, starting in 1916, uh, until the late 60s, America had what was called a financial transaction tax, right? It was also called a Robin Hood tax. Remember Robin Hood? Uh, he stole from the rich and gave to the poor. There was a tiny tax. It was below a percentage on every trade on Wall Street because they wanted to slow down the trading. They doubled the tax when Roosevelt was president because they wanted to slow down speculation because it was careless and it caused the Great Depression. We got rid of the transaction tax, the uh, financial transaction tax, the speculation tax. 29 countries still have it, including London, Hong Kong, Australia. They have something resembling a speculation tax. America does not. We have a, a tiny, tiny, tiny speculation tax. It's minuscule to fund the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodities Trading Commission. They regulate Wall Street, but it's it's infinitesimal. I think the financial houses, they just eat that tax. It's so small. New York State also had a speculation tax on Wall Street. They got rid of that in the 80s. Gambling is bad. Gambling is a sickness. It is a waste of time. It it is a vice within reason, it, it's okay, but the government should not be encouraging gambling. Taxes 
are important because taxes are not just there to raise revenue for our government and redistribute the wealth. That's that's what taxes should be doing. We should be using taxes to punish people for having too much money. And, and, and we have to start changing our language. If you're a billionaire, you need to be punished for being a billionaire. Because you cannot be a billionaire without committing a crime. And most importantly, without you're always a billionaire because you figure out a way not to pay taxes. We need to punish the wealthy. There is something wrong with being a billionaire. You should be punished for being a billionaire. Taxes are necessary to punish people and to alter behavior. That's why we tax vices. We tax liquor because liquor is a vice, right? It's okay to drink, but by taxing it, you'll drink less. Nobody thinks it's okay to, to drink a bottle of wine a night, right? Two glasses tops. We know that it's not healthy to drink a bottle of wine a night. So we tax it. We tax cigarettes. That's the role of government to isolate what is for the greater good and tax that which hurts the greater good. Carbon taxes, right? Carbon bad. Taxing good. You tax anything that hurts other people, especially because the government and the people who pay taxes pay a price for things that hurt other people. We tax cigarettes because it costs taxpayers billions of dollars a year to treat the cancers and heart disease caused by tobacco. Uh, Bloomberg wanted a sugar tax here in Manhattan when he was mayor, but the soda industry and the sugar industry uh, prevented that. There should be a sugar tax. We know sugar causes heart disease, diabetes, and more and more uh, science shows us that sugar feeds cancer. So sugar should be taxed. Can't do that. Too many, too many lobbyists. So uh, we need to do something about our financial sector and make it smaller. Unfortunately, they own both parties. And uh, right now, senators and Congress people can trade with impunity. Nancy Pelosi just sold a million dollars worth of Apple and said, well, why shouldn't we be allowed to participate in, in capitalism? That's not capitalism, that's cronyism, that's insider trading. Adam Smith would be against politicians using the information they get to trade off of inside information. Adam Smith would be against people who are in charge of regulating certain industries. He, would be, he was for regulation and he was also against uh, government officials uh, owning stock in the industries they regulate. So w w this is a, a Democratic Party 
that is is just dead. It's dead. We know the Republicans are horrific, uh, but the Democratic Party they lie, they lie and present themselves as on our side while they're tra like Rokana, something like fifty to seventy million dollars worth of stock trades last year. We have to rethink our economy and, and, and what is important, what is good and what is bad. And we've never had an industrial policy where as a, as a community, we stand for something and we say, this is good, this is bad. Our tax dollars will support these industries and not the industries, we will not subsidize our own death. We will not subsidize Exxon Mobil. You know, I keep reading about these restaurants going under because of COVID. And I know a lot of people who work in restaurants and food services. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, maybe this is a sector that has to go. I'm not saying completely, but I think the food services industry has gotten a little too big because, again, being a waiter, waitress, a chef, those are noble professions. But we've become a nation of morbidly obese foodies. We have a farm bill that comes out every five years that cares more about propping up food that is bad for us than it does food that is good for us. And the restaurant manufacturers, uh, uh, their, their trade associations are partly responsible for one quarter of American children experiencing food insecurity each night. Uh, so maybe helping restaurants is not such a great idea because food is a bare necessity. And it's hard to tackle a bare necessity, uh, uh, make it available for everyone, like health care, when it's for profit, right? Like health care is a human right. It should be free for everybody. But when health care is something like one third of our economy, people say, really, you want to sacrifice one third of our economy to give everybody health care? Yes, I do. Um, and the truth is most Americans, if, if we had politicians who, who talked about food the way it should be talked about in this country, nobody would object to our government feeding everyone for free. We are the wealthiest nation in the history of civilization. Nobody should go to bed hungry. There should be upscale soup kitchens on every block of America providing food and jobs, government subsidized food and jobs. The food would be free to anyone who needs it. Nothing fancy, kind of like Rahima.org. Professor Adnan Hussein's parents run a food pantry in the Bay Area. Check out Rahima.org. This is what the government should be doing. They serve the basics, beans, lentil, yogurts, fruit. Go to Rahima.org and donate. R-E-H-I-M-A.org and donate. This is what the government should be doing a pound of beans, you'd be amazed at what $5 will, what it can provide to people. A pound of beans 
is like five bucks. You add some vegetables. You can not only live on that, but you can also live longer on that. And that's what I love about Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. Professor Adnan Hussein's parents run a food pantry in the Bay Area. And they can stretch your $5. And you can stretch $5 and live longer by living on beans. And the government should have soup kitchens on every corner serving beans, rice, vegetables, and fruit for free. Everyone benefits. Kids, you can't educate kids if they're hungry. Kids are showing up hungry. The only, sometimes the only meal they get all day is the free lunch, which is garbage in our public schools because big ag pushes pizza and dairy and sugar on our kids. They should be eating beans, rice, vegetables, and fruit, period. Everyone would agree to this if we had a party that outlined how this would work. Free food for everyone, paid for by the government. Farmers benefit, especially local farmers, which means that's good for the environment. It would provide jobs to kitchen workers, and it has the added benefit of nobody going hungry in the richest country in the world. The food would be free. There would be no stigma attached to it. These, these food, these restaurants would be open 24 hours, paid for by our tax. Wouldn't you rather pay for that instead of a, 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 a missile you don't need? They would be open 24 hours. Coffee would be served. I know Starbucks would be upset, but they wouldn't be serving uh They'd be buying their coffee. The government would be buying coffee from Starbucks, right? That's, that would be good for Starbucks. There would be musicians performing, paid for by the government, comedians, poetry. There would be art hanging on the walls. Artists would be subsidized, all paid for by the government. Jobs for chefs, for musicians, for artists. This is government spending in the tradition of the New Deal, and it won't cause inflation. It won't. Who, and who would be against it? Well, the, the people who are killing us, the restaurant owners of America, that's who, McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, all the companies who give us cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and of course, unlivable wages, all the companies that extract from our economy by paying crap wages, making people sick, running up our healthcare costs, they're the ones who would lobby hard against feeding everyone in America. The people who are killing us, McDonald's, evil, Burger King, evil, Wendy's, evil, they would be opposed to feeding, to making sure that people eat with dignity. Our government right now could pay for free food that provides fulfilling jobs, little soup kitchens that are beautiful, but our government would rather prop up an industry 
that benefits nobody except a handful of CEOs, an industry that is killing us, an industry that is evil. And the people who run these fast food restaurants are murderers. McDonald's kills more Americans from heart disease, cancer, obesity, and diabetes in one day than ISIS and Al-Qaeda ever did combined. And yet we not only allow it, we subsidize it. We give them tax breaks. We give their, the people they hire food stamps because the people who work at McDonald's can't afford to buy food. McDonald's is destroying our planet, growing soybeans to feed cattle instead of growing soybeans to feed people. Do you have any idea how inefficient and wasteful that is to grow a bean to feed a cow to feed a customer? I thought corporations were efficient. Just eat the, the soybean. Who would be against that? Who would be against your tax dollars being spent on 24-hour kitchens offering up healthy food for all Americans, no questions asked? Healthy food. We can agree on what is healthy food. You want bad food? You want Mc go, go eat at McDonald's. But if it's tax dollars, you, you get beans, lentils, Yogurt, uh, maybe uh, I, I might bend on on the 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 full vegan diet. Uh, I might compromise a little. Artists hired at these restaurants, musicians, poets, and then uh, they're going twenty four hours. Everybody meets there. Uh, it's uh, it creates civic engagement. It takes Americans and transforms them from consumers to citizens. It starts with a, a kitchen that's open 24 hours a day, paid for by the government. That's how you create a community. And, the, and, and these community centers grow where people gather and vote. You can have turn them into polling stations and you add free daycare centers. Uh, this is how you build community where the government provides food 24 hours a day and full-time childcare, no questions asked. I'm pretty much out of time, but Janet Yellen, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve uh, and now is our secretary treasurer or Treasury Secretary, gave a speech at Evil Davos about the that, that productivity is stalling because of supply-side economics and that we need a reverse supply-side economics if we want to grow this economy. And that means the government has to provide a safety net in order for our economy to grow. There's a labor shortage because we don't have daycare. If we provide the bare necessities to the American people, health care, dental, eyeglasses, hearing aid, 
food, free education, free tuition at our public universities, that is how you grow the economy. That's how you grow the economy. We have to have this conversation. Uh, otherwise, uh, we're going to continue to eat ourselves until it's just a, a feudal state where all the land is owned by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos, and we're paying them rent, and we lead these subsistence subsistence lives where there are no jobs because it's all being done by self-driving cars and AI, and they hand us virtual reality glasses as our as the new opiate to keep us from complaining just consume that's not the world we want but unless we change the democratic party from within and demand that poor people poor people start getting elected to congress the senate serve on the cabinets uh, we will die before the climate kills us. So I think we're out of time. I had more, always have more to talk about. There is Gina Hakamaki. There we go. Hello, it's good to see you. Gina Hakamaki. Hello, let me. Dan, uh, is, your, is your guest here? Um, nope, I don't see Gina's guest yet. Okay, let me do this. Let me get some water and we will find out what happened. Sometimes people don't get the invites. I'll be right back. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. Just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an M4 right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. There we go. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinell, who will be joining us a little later on in the show. Our guest has arrived, and you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. 
Friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, subscribe to my newsletter. And every Friday night, starting at 8 p.m., we have office hours. Please join us for office hours. And if you'd like to sit in our virtual studio audience, go to my website to sign up. Well, Jessica Nordell is an award-winning author, science writer, and speaker. And she is author of The End of Bias, A Beginning. And here to talk to us and her is Gina Huckamaki, who needs no introduction. She is a beloved member of our community. And welcome, Gina. Thanks for having me. It's good to see Wonderful. you. You have the book. Yep. Why don't you start? Hi, why don't you start the questioning with Gina and uh, uh, with Jessica, and then I'll ask her about uh, her the witches in her background. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you so much for letting me interview you. I love the book, and I think it should be a required reading for everyone because it would benefit humanity as a whole. And saying that, I want to break it down into the two groups of benefits. First, those who indoctrinate us with biased thinking, and then everyone else because of how we learn. We need to we need we all need the epiphany moment about our having our own biases despite our best intentions and to learn the strategies that you listed in your book and how to overcome those. So if I were to look at the first and the major people that are responsible for indoctrinating the biases into our very being, it begins really young. So early childhood educators, parents, teachers, but then it extends to media. They propagate stereotypes and biases. So the newscasters, the journalists, the advertisers, the politicians, etc., all have an impact in why we've developed the biases to begin with. So my first question to you would be about the first group, those teaching children. And in your book, you say that children don't come into the world with all of these biases and prejudices. It's learned. And so if you could kind of give us some examples of uh, experiments and research in early childhood development on how those things happen. Yeah, absolutely. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. This is, I'm really thrilled to be here. Uh, so yeah, there are a ton of, I mean, there's a ton of research. There's a whole sort of field of psychology, developmental psychology that looks at how children's psychology develops. And there's, you know, current research suggests that kids learn gender bias around age three or four, racial bias a little bit later, like five or six. But um they, it, you know, it, it can be sort of dialed up or dialed down depending on the environment, depending on their experiences, depending on the kind of input they get from parents and teachers and the world in general. So there's some really interesting research. I mean, one of the one of my favorite researchers who you read about in the book um, is Becky Bigler, who does this work with children where she looks at how children develop bias and what can be kind of done to alter it. Um, the work that she does is really interesting because she, she goes into schools and she sort of does these manipulations to see what kinds of 
changes in the kid's environment increase their prejudice or decrease their prejudice. So she's a little bit controversial because she's experimenting with children and kind of shifting their, the way that they see each other. But, you know, one of her, she has sort of this classic research program where she, um, she started by looking at what happens when you label children. So uh, she had a, um, she worked with a, a school where she had teachers, one group of teachers talk uh, to the children with um, using labels all the time. So saying uh, gender labels like hello, boys and girls, um, girls line up over here, boys line up over here. We're going to put, you know, girls, um, artwork on this bulletin board and boys artwork on this bulletin board. And she really like emphasized the, the teachers really emphasized gender labels in those groups. And in the other groups, the teachers totally ignored gender labels. So they would say like, good morning, children, you know, um, we're going to, you know, she, they didn't do like lineup, boy, girl, boy, girl, anything like that. And what she found is that the more you label gender, the more stereotyping children do. So it's almost like, the labeling starts to kind of get children's minds um, acculturated to this idea of different categories. And then the stereotypes kind of build on that armature. And she's done a lot of other research about different kinds of groups. Like um, she did a research where she had, she put some children in red, uh, yellow shirts and some children in blue shirts. And in one group over the course of a summer school, um, the blue shirt kids, uh, one group, the yellow shirt and blue shirt kids were identified by their shirt colors. And in the other group of teachers, the teachers ignored the shirt colors. And in the labeling group, those kids started to develop what we think of in psychology as in-group favoritism. They started to really like blues if they were blue and they really liked other yellows if they were yellow. And I mean, the groups were totally random. So, you know, there was no reason for the kids to like uh, yellows or blues more. It was just that the teachers were constantly labeling them. And so they started to kind of develop this like in-group, um, this in-group, you know, uh, favoritism. So I think it really is the power of labels, you know. Yeah. And it, that's what you kind of emphasize that it's the way humans learn from when we're little dog, cat, dog, cat. Okay, these are two different groups. And then the emphasizing, and it gets reinforced constantly. And then it's those associations of which one is good and which one is bad. And that's how we end up with the biases. So coming to the teachers, the teachers have to reduce the, you know, emphasis on the grouping and making one good and one bad. Mm-hmm. And you, you also note that our brains love to be right. We love when our stereotype predictions come true and we get irked if they don't come true. So can you describe how our ability to stereotype is addicting and neurally rewarding? Yeah, I mean, stereotyping is really interesting because basically it's um, it's basically a prediction, right? Like I see you and then I start to predict things about what you're going to be like, what you should be like based on my perception of the categories that you belong to. And like, yeah, as you, as you point out, I mean, one of the, one of the interesting things about um, stereotyping is that, and, and predicting is that we, we like to be correct. We feel good when our predictions are right and we don't like it when we're wrong. So there's some like really interesting research uh, where a, a psychology professor 
brought a bunch of people into a lab and had them interact. And she had, she hired actors um, to portray Hispanic students who were either high socioeconomic class or low socioeconomic class. Um, so high socioeconomic class, um, these students were uh, the children of wealthy people and they had like very expensive European vacations and they kind of defied American stereotypes about Hispanic students. And what she found is that people actually, when they react, interacted with um, these students who defied stereotypes, people reacted with cardiovascular threat. They actually reacted as though they were being threatened. Their blood vessels changed, um, their heart rate changed. So there's really something very, very concrete that happens when our stereotypes are violated. Um, but you were asking about addiction. So one hypothesis that people are starting to think about is that because these predictions are sometimes right and sometimes wrong, right? When we interact with someone and we stereotype them, sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong. This is very similar to what's known as, as an intermittent reward cycle, um, which is what we experience when we refresh our inbox. Like sometimes we have a new message and sometimes we don't have a new message. Or if we're on social media, you know, sometimes we see something we were looking for, sometimes we don't. This intermittent reward cycle is an addictive reward cycle. So it's very hard to extinguish this behavior if we start to get hooked on, um, on a cycle of sometimes getting, you know, sometimes getting a reward and sometimes not getting a reward. So there's some thought that maybe, you know, stereotyping could be almost habit forming. It could be almost um, addictive in the way other kinds of intermittent reward experiences are addictive as well. And then I think you mentioned that even if our prediction was not right, we didn't like it, but we also right. like justified it and, and made it so that it was still right. Like we lied to ourselves about what reality was to still mm -hmm. promote the bias right. in our minds. You mentioned a term called outgroup homogeneity. Can you define mm -hmm. the term and how the media, so now switching from like early childhood development to our mainstream media and how they often present their stories along these lines that also perpetuate biases. Yeah, outgroup homogeneity, um, it's the idea that we see our own group that we belong to as very various and very diverse. We see our own group as just being composed of individuals who have lots of differences. But when we look at a group that we don't belong to, we tend to think of that group as homogenous, as more monolithic. So we have this tendency to sort of see the behavior of our own group as being just like the result of you know, individual differences and the behavior of other groups as the result of some kind of, you know, um, cultural characteristic or trait. I mean, you see this all the time when you when you see um, acts of violence committed by like white Americans versus non-white Americans. Often extreme violence committed by white Americans is explained as having to do with mental illness, you know, some kind of individual pathology. Whereas yeah, individual violence, versus the group. Yeah. So Right. So when we see extreme violence committed by, you know, non-white Americans, then it's often described in the media as 
related to some kind of group identity. When in fact, you know, it could also be attributable to mental illness or kind of individual pathology or individual difference. But because there's this tendency to outgroup homogeneity, we, um, you know, mainstream media often will kind of default to making a group, kind of a group identification rather than an individual. Um, it causes a bias and prejudice against entire groups of people. They're not looking yes, yes. at as individuals are categorized by their group association. Whereas me, like a white woman, if I did something wrong, it's because there's something wrong with my head. But if there's somebody else and another, it's because they belong to that group. Right. Right. So, and yeah, once you, I mean, once you start kind of um, being alert to these patterns, you really see them everywhere. You sort of can't stop seeing these patterns be played out over and over. Yeah. Then you had an interesting research project that you highlighted called No Tell, Address the Media Effects. Um, can you elaborate on the results of the show, the media influence on creating biases? A little bit about what the background of that community and then what happened to them after they got television. They had No Tell and then they got television. Sure. Um, so this is, a, yeah, so this was an experiment that I I found really fascinating and wrote a lot about, which is that in the, in the 70s, there was this small logging village in British Columbia where, um, that didn't have television because of kind of a fluke of geography. They just didn't get the signal. The signal was blocked by the mountains. And in the early 70s, they were finally going to get all of the technology to actually get television in this village. And so there was uh, a sociologist who learned about this and kind of had this bright idea like, oh, this is a chance to see the effect of television. If we could do some measurements before and after this village gets television, we'll see if it has you know, an impact. And so she you know, and her team rushed to this village and gave a battery of tests to like the whole village and asked everyone a million questions. And then two years after television was introduced, she went back to find out if anything had changed. And she found that a lot had changed, actually. Um, elders were more isolated than before. Uh, children were more aggressive than before. And there's a whole, I, mean, I have the book somewhere. Um, there's a whole like, book of her findings called The Impact of Television. And, but one of the interesting findings was that children did more gender stereotyping after the introduction of television, their gender stereotyping began to approach the level of children in towns that had had television for a long time. So children were more likely to say that like certain jobs are just for boys and certain jobs are just for girls or certain personality traits are more for boys and more for girls. So it really sort of demonstrated that just a simple, you know, just like simply the introduction of television began to train children to, um, to see each other and themselves in a particular way. So that's why I wanted to cover when it starts from early childhood development and the people that are associated with that, you know, part of our life that are creating the biases, but then that is perpetuated through media and our media mm -hmm. is hitting us hard. Mainstream media, the terms that they use and the groups, groupings that they do, it's just reinforcing all of the negative biases and stereotypes. In your book, uh, in attempting to overcome our own biases, you mentioned that the human mind has two distinct modes of operating. 
effectful, deliberate thinking, and then this rapid automatic thinking. Can you describe these modes and how we can train ourselves to use this info to curtail our own biases? And my, my understanding is it's when when we have something that is emergent or frightening that we do the we get into the rapid, you know, automatic thinking and that we grab toward our own biases rather than thinking things out. But can you describe kind of that effect on us and how we can fix that? So we are a little more mindful on what we're doing. Yeah. You know, the kind of the idea actually of, what we think of as unconscious bias or unintentional bias is really um, that when we, when we encounter a person who we identify as being part of a category or a social identity, then we, we have all of these associations in our minds that we've absorbed from culture over our lifetimes. And at the moment that we, you know, identify that person, encounter that person, all of these, associations and stereotypes begin to kind of influence the way that we're interacting automatically. So um, we are not necessarily intending to react in a particular way, but we have automatic, a kind of automatic way of thinking. And so there, there's sort of broadly, there's this idea that um, there's really automatic kind of spontaneous, less intentional sorts of responses. And then there are more, deliberate, thoughtful, effortful responses. And the automatic, you know, a, a lot, there's a lot of things that we do that start out as deliberate, but then become automatic because we're so used to them. Like, um, you know, driving home from work, you, the first time you do it, you have to think, okay, do I need to turn left or right? And, you know, where's the stop sign? Um, but if you do it a hundred times, then it starts to become automatic and you can kind of do it without thinking. Um, you might even drive the whole way home without really being fully conscious of all of the decisions that you're making. But your question was, what do we do about it, right? Right, what do we do about it? Well, um, I wrote a whole book to answer this question. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, there's a lot, a lot in the book about what we, it, I mean, the, I really wrote the book because that, that was the question, like, what do we do about this? So there's a lot, um, I can lead you, know, you into some of the things that you mentioned, like for, it says, what can we do to promote cultural education and help end bias? Because like you said, the end of bias, a beginning, we need to start somewhere. But per that Connie Rice, laws are not solely effective. Right. You know, it, it, she talks about it, it creating the, the floor, but the ceiling is dependent upon people and what we're going to do anyway. And then, Diversity training in policing had not been demonstrated to be very effective versus mindfulness exercises um, and then community safety partnership type networks, um, you know, the, the other strategies other than just diversity training. Right, right. Yeah, there are a lot of a lot of other strategies. I mean, you know, fundamentally, I think it starts with people accepting that they might be susceptible to some of these reactions. Cause a lot, I mean, most of us think that we're pretty objective and we think it doesn't really apply to us. You well, know, you like, talked about the, the police department, uh, the, I think it was LAPD 
um, where they started having yoga as exercises and other meditation before yeah, Oregon, mindfulness Oregon, yeah. so that they would have less stress reactions and going mm-hmm. with less of uh, the mentality of I'm going into this terrible situation and so I'm going to react aggressively automatically and actually step back and look, being better in, play, in a better place to assess the whole situation and that mm-hmm. it had really good results. Um, can you tie together how all these contribute to implicit bias and, and what implicit bias is? Yeah, I mean, it, it, well, what you're talking about with the mindfulness is really sort of interrupting that automatic response. So implicit bias is really what I was talking about earlier, where we, you know, we grow up in a culture, we learn the categories that are salient in that culture, and they're, they're culturally dependent, like they're specific to cultures, certain times, certain places, but we learn the categories that are important in that culture salient. And then we learn a lot of associations associated with those categories and we learn stereotypes. And then when we encounter someone, we identify them as being part of one of those categories. And then all of these associations influence our reaction to that person. That's what we think of as implicit bias. It's like it's happening automatically. It's happening quickly. It's happening maybe um, in a way that conflicts with what we think of ourselves as being like. We might think of ourselves as like, you know, not sexist, not racist, you know, not ageist, none of these things. But yet when we're actually, you know, going about our daily life, all of us can be susceptible to being influenced, you know, by some of these cultural ideas that we've absorbed. Which, so that's what we think of. Describing that, that epiphany moment. And we all have to step back and take a look at ourselves, but you described one yourself about, going into a library and there were people that were getting ready on their prayer rugs and just the gut reaction because of what's been shown in the media and what we've been taught from when we were little about the aggressiveness or difference in cultures and, and whatever it might be, it's an automatic fear flight or fight reaction that we shouldn't right. be having. So then you have to step back. What am I, what am I looking at here? It's it's a it's a whole different way of assessing what's really happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're really talking about like self awareness, mindfulness. You know, there are a lot of different names for it, but we're really talking about slowing down enough to see what's happening in our own mind, to see what's happening in our own behavior and the patterns that we're participating in. Because once we see it, then we can interrupt it, and that's I think where agency begins. That's where, you know, the, the opportunity to make a different choice begins. And, you know, then the the sky's the limit, like, you know, then you can actually start to interact with the world in a way that's based more in reality and more in human connection and less in, you know, kind of cultural nonsense. Which I I think you also um, talked about the benefit of interacting with the others interacting with other groups and how it'll change your perceptions and reduce your biases when you see people are people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also talked about a concept called priming, planting a thought in a person's minds in ways that could influence and in how they see and perceive the world. How do you see that 
you know, the media influencing that or using that as a technique. Hmm. Actually, our politicians do that as well. They guide us into our own biases. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, yeah, I mean, in in psychology, the idea of priming is that if you, if, if you, if your mind kind of absorbs a particular concept or idea, then it, it can influence things that happen later. Um, so that was actually how implicit bias was discovered was, um, was through priming experiments. White, um, white Americans were shown words, subliminally shown words that had to do with African Americans. And then they were tested um, to see how it influenced their later behavior. And it was found that even when these white Americans weren't aware of the words that they'd seen, like they, they flashed in their eyes so quickly they didn't register them consciously, it still affected their later behavior because they'd been primed. So yeah, I mean, it can be, it certainly can be used intentionally. I think it's often used, you know, unintentionally, but it certainly can be used um, intentionally to, to, um, to manipulate people. I'm not, I, I don't have any specific um, examples of, you know, intentional priming, but you could say dog, you know, dog whistles would be perhaps an example of priming. Right. Um, I pretty much asked most of the questions that, that I could think Good. of. That, that's, you did great. And Howie Klein is about to come up. So this was great. I, I really appreciate this, Gina. Very quickly, Jessica, uh, you, you are a descendant of witches who were burnt at the stake here in America. I, I recently, you know, discovered this. I was doing all a bunch of genealogy research, actually, for this book, because um, I wanted to figure out how I fit into the story of race in the United States. And I, yes, I discovered that I, my, I believe it's eleventh great grandmother was the last woman to be tried for witchcraft in the state of Massachusetts. She was known as the Witch of Wallingford. Mm. So it explains a lot. And do you know if she, most of those witches, I understand, just inherited their husband's money and Salem wanted that money. Do you know if she was wealthy? Oh, fascinating. As far as I know, she she wasn't. Her husband, I did a little bit of digging as much as I could. Her husband um, helped get her exonerated. So they she was married at the time. And she and her daughter were actually both tried, but they were, and she was tried to be That's the difference between me and her husband. I, uh, <laughs> I well, it, I, my hands are tied. They say you're, we have to wrap it up. I, I, will you come back? Sure. Great to, great to talk to you. Great. Everybody should go by The End of Bias, A Beginning. And it's written by Jessica Nordell, N-O-R-D-E-L-L. And go to jessicanordell.com, please. Yeah, you can contact me through my website, jessicanordell.com. Or, yeah, let me know what you think. I'd love to hear what people think of the book. Great. And Thank you so much. It's absolutely excellent. Great job. Thanks. Great job, Gina Huckamaki. Well, I hope to, we do this again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Thank David. You. Thanks, Gina. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Howie Klein is coming up in a second, I hope. I just want to take care of something because I've gotten some emails. Uh, And this is why we need to bring back the draft. 
Uh, earlier, I said Joe Biden lies. I said his son, Bo Biden, was a great dad, a great father, and never traded on his service in Iraq. I said Bo served a year in Iraq while he was also the attorney general of Delaware and worked in Iraq as a JAG officer. He was a lawyer. He was the son of the vice president. And while he was in combat, he was only behind the wire working as a JAG officer. That's not quite as dangerous as being a soldier. He didn't claim to be anything other than what he is or was before he died. His father chooses to remember Bo's service differently. And I think that's a disservice to the men and women who put their lives on the line. And if we had a draft, we would be able to differentiate between a JAG officer and a combat veteran. Now, someone wrote to me during the interview and said that uh, Bo uh, received a bronze medal so that I was out of line for criticizing how President Biden, our commander in chief, chooses to remember his son's service. His son had a bronze medal, to which I reply, if there were a draft, Americans would know that a bronze medal can be awarded for a host of reasons including something like meritorious service as a JAG officer. And that appears to be why Bo Biden got his bronze. This is why we need to bring back the draft. We have a commander in chief right now who plays fast and loose with the facts. He's thinking of sending troops to Ukraine. He will say anything, anything, including falsities about his son's war record. And we need to be careful. The truth counts, especially when we have a commander in chief who lies and is threatening to send our troops to Ukraine. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, which raises money for progressive candidates around America. And he is also author of Down With Tyranny. Sorry to keep you waiting and sorry. That's all right. I enjoyed your little rap just now and I wanted to talk about it. Good. Thank you. Uh, because Biden uh, is a liar, has been for his whole career. He's known as a liar uh, from the very beginning. He, he, he was, you know, caught like uh, using other people's work, for example. He's, uh, you know, and we don't like Trump. And we're happy that Biden uh, is, is in the White House instead of Trump, I guess. Uh, somewhat happy, but or relieved maybe is a better word. But when, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are very angry right now that you said that Biden is a liar. And they're even angrier now that I'm uh, echoing it. But right. that's what he is. And there's no reason to deny it. A liar is a liar. He's a proven liar. Uh, you know, when they when they do fact checks on people and they see, you know, what percentage of the time he lied. Well, of course, he doesn't lie as much as Trump. No one lies as much as Trump, but he lies far more than any normal politician. I mean, you know, normal everyone lies a little bit. Every politician will say something that's wrong or, or even egregiously wrong. Uh, you know, even the best, even Elizabeth Warren and Bernie uh, have said things that turned out not to be true, according to the fact checkers. Uh, not much. They don't do it much. Uh, and Biden, when, when, during the um, primary, I kept checking. And sure enough, I mean, Biden was like, you know, 10 times more of a liar than, than a normal Democrat would be. So. Right. So lots to talk about. We have a bad connection. 
we nope. do. Can you call me back? I'm going to call you right back. Thank you. Sorry about that. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter and sign up for my newsletter by going over to davidfeldmanshow.com. Again, Bo Biden was a great father, a great husband, and did it all on his own. He didn't trade on his war record. His father has chosen to remember it for his own political expediency. I'm only criticizing our commander in chief, especially when he's now threatening to go to to some kind of war. Or what do you think is going to happen, Howie, in Ukraine? I don't know what's going to happen. I'm I'm very very worried about it. I mean, one of our uh, our regular contributors thinks that the U.S. is trying to get a war going. I it's unimaginable that that's the case, but. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I, I literally don't know. I mean, I, I don't have any inside information on this. And uh, if Biden does it, you know, at least we don't have to worry about him being the nominee. Or the Democrats win the midterms. How does that work? We were told at one time that when we go to war, people rally around the commander in chief. But now, that kind of thing is over now. Now people rally around, uh, you know, pro-Trump, anti-Trump. <laughs> that seems right. to be the only thing anyone rallies to. In fact, you know, I, I saw a, uh, I just went by on the transom today. I didn't really read it, but it, it said that a majority of um, Tucker Carlson viewers want us to get into into it against Ukraine and for Russia. Against Ukraine for Russia. For Russia, he, he uh, Tucker Carlson is, uh, you know, a Putin uh, pu- uh, publicist or Putin propagandist. So he's always, uh, you know, talking about how great Putin is, and his his listeners, that's what they listen to, and they believe it. You know, there's a uh, a post that's up at the top of Down with Tyranny. I, I just put it up a couple of hours ago, and it, it's by a sociologist from Illinois named uh, Darren Shurkat. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, mm-hmm. but. It, it's called. Um, How can we be well, so sure that most Trump voters are morons? Yeah, that, that was my uh, title. That, right. uh, his title is down a little bit, which is cognitive, cognitive uh, sophistication, religion, and support for Trump. So he's he's talking about why. You know, I just say that Trump voters are morons. He's talking about why they're morons without ever using the word moron per se. Mm-hmm. Although he agrees that morons also. But I, and I and people should read that. Uh, anyway, it's a really, really good post. I'm really proud uh, that he he agreed to give it to me for Down With Tyranny. But I was thinking he would be a really get, good guest for you as well. I would love it. Uh, you would love him. Professor of Sociology, Southern Illinois University. We should. Ha- I will reach out to him. Uh, I'll send you an email. Well, what do you think? When you think of somebody like uh, Cawthorn and McCarthy and Green and Gates, they're idiots. They are. But we have idiots. Well, well we you, have you, you went from a, uh, you, you, you spanned a, a whole uh, trans, uh, you know, <laughs> a whole spectrum there. I mean, Cawthorn is an idiot. So, so you know, and then defend, def, depending how you define idiot, we, we can include the other two. But let me just say something. Cawthorn, um, you know, is, is a, I think he, he went to some Bible college for one semester or maybe two semesters, but I think it was just one semester and he flunked out. 
his whole life, you know, I looked into him really closely when he was first running, and his whole life proves that he's a moron and an idiot. He's really a stupid person. Uh, you want to talk about liar, his whole life has been a lie. It's shocking to me that people voted for him. It's shocking because it just shows that the majority of the voters in that district are morons. How do you vote for someone like Madison Cawthorn? It's unbelievable to me. But you're talking about idiots. So, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy, on the other hand, you know, we don't agree with him, but he's a, you know, normal, typical American. He's just like everybody else. You know, he's out to uh, do things that help himself and to, he's a careerist. Uh, he's a hateful, awful person, but he's very successful uh, at what he did. He comes from kind of humble background, more or less, and he's worked his way up to fulfill his dream. He probably he's probably going to be the next speaker, which is what he's wanted and what he's worked at. So you know, it's, it's hard to call someone like that an idiot in the same way that you can call Cawthorn an idiot. And even with Marjorie Taylor Greene, even though she was putting out to succeed. Uh, when she ran her gym, she did become a millionaire. So mm-hmm. she became a millionaire from her gym business. Um, you know, she lured people with her, you know, wiles into her gym and got them to sign up. But, you know, it, you know, I, I think she's, she's an idiot in a lot of ways, but, but not in the same way that Cawthorn is. Cawthorn is literally, I mean, you know, it would be great if we had the IQs of these people. My guess would be, that Kevin McCarthy and and uh, and and, and uh, Marjorie Trader Green have normal IQs, whereas in Corbyn's case, my bet would be you know he's got, he's got a, a subpar IQ, right. you know below the, below the norm, below the median, right? Maybe right. far below. So let's talk about anyway. Yes, there are many morons. I'm sorry I interrupted you. What were you going to say about the morons? L- let's talk about what he has to run on, what the Democrats have to run on. In uh, your piece that posted about noon, will Biden turn things around before the Democrats get their asses kicked in November? Doubtful. Build Back Better is dead. There's the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And Build Back Better uh, is probably going to be broken up into pieces now. Most of the pieces I think they're not going to ever pass because they're not going to be part of reconciliation. So you need 60 votes. And that means at least that means every Democrat and 10 Republicans. And that doesn't exist. So, yes, I agree with you that Build Back Better is is probably dead. Build Back Better is dead. But there is the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Biden and the Democrats, can they run on the bipartisan infrastructure bill against? Well, they have no choice. What are they going to run on? But who they else? Failed can they everything else that they, that they they tried. Even even the things that should have sailed through Congress, they they couldn't get that together. So you know they'll run on the you know the the, 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 the that first COVID bill that they did and the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which they'll try to run on. But the name of it is bipartisan, so I don't know how they can run on it that much. And it, and it's it. it you know, and they're talking it up as though it were like the greatest thing in the world when it, it really wasn't the greatest thing in the world. But even, even Bernie, is, is I, he was on one of the shows yesterday, and even he was saying how great it was. And, you know, it just wasn't. And you have, you write that there are Virginia slime dog, Rob Whitman, a Republican who was an obstructionist, you say, who was against 
the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but now he's running on it. He was against it, and he talked against it. He didn't just, it wasn't just a passive vote against it. He was blabbling around that if you vote for this, you're voting for the socialist Green New Deal. And now he's trying to take credit for the things that it's doing in his district. And he isn't the only one. There are Republicans all over the country who see what's happening in their districts and, and see jobs being created and see you know, uh, crews out looking at uh, how to fix bridges and pave highways. Even in Alabama, they're they're building this uh, much needed highway. And, and and the congressmen from those districts, even though they voted against it, they're they're not saying I voted for it, but they're not saying they voted against it. They're just saying what a great thing they helped bring to the district, as, as though they did anything but vote no. So so you know, in Rob Whitman's case. He, he got so embarrassed when he got called on it by ABC News that he removed the tweet where he made he made that claim that, as, as you know, sort of a half-assed claim that would leave somebody who wasn't paying close attention thinking that he is bringing that money to the district rather than that he voted against bringing that money to the district. And he removed the tweet. Right. Let's talk uh, about music because you had an interesting piece. Over. Yes, it is interesting. I, I was fascinated by it myself. And in fact, I'm going to do a contest now. I'm just putting it together in my head. You know, did you, you probably didn't see it yet, but there, there's a new book coming out called Disturbing the Peace, 415 Records, no. and the New Rise of New Wave. Did you see it? It's, it's a new book? Yeah, it's, it's a book that's, that's coming out in a few weeks. So you uh, ran 415 Records? I started it and ran it, yes. And Bill Kopp, a uh, prominent rock journalist wrote a book about it. So lots of pictures of me and lots of, uh, you know, anecdotes from my life and stuff like that. It's, it's interesting uh, for people who, who like the early new wave independent DIY scene, uh, especially people who are interested in the San Francisco music, although there, you know, we had bands from other places too. But um, so let me just so people wait, know, so we, I have, you have a, a, you have a piece over down with charity entitled, Music biz has deteriorated, not because of musicians, but because of extreme capitalism. Yes, I thought you might like that. Yes, and, and you talk about you left the record business. You were the president of Reprise Records. You ran a record, you, and you were big over at Warner Brothers. Uh, well, Warner, Reprise was half of Warner Brothers. Right. So, just the, be the better half. Uh, you quote Eric Satie. Uh, go ahead. Somebody called me today, a friend called me today, uh, and, and said, do you know this guy Fleetwood Mac? No. I, yes, uh, M-A-C-K. And I said, yes, I, I do. Uh, why do you ask? And he said, well, I just heard this new song on the radio, and I can't believe how great it is. I, I, I just want to get this, this song, if you could ask him, to send me a copy. I said, well, what song? He said, it's, it's called Landslide. <laughs> and I said, well, I think that song was like new before you were born. Right. As a matter of fact. And Fleetwood Mac is a very, very famous band. Right. And you should ask Mother, who's definitely a big fan of theirs. Right. That's kind of sweet, but, though, actually. It, well, this, this is a straight guy, by the way, who only knows one kind of music, which is uh, Broadway. Right. So, but that know. is sweet to hear 
Stevie Nicks singing Landslide. No, hopefully not oh. the Dixie Chicks. They did a version of it. And uh, when Stevie Nicks, when they 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 started that uh, their big tour for, for when they got back together again, and and we released that uh, that live album. The first show was in Boston, and, and I went to it, and I was standing in the audience, uh, very close to the stage. And Stevie uh, came on and introduced the song, and she said, "And this is for my friend Howie Klein." Wow. And I was passed out. I, I started screaming. <laughs> I started telling everybody around me. I didn't know anybody. I was just in, in a crowd of people. I said, that's me. That's me. She just dedicated it to me. <laughs> so, and, uh, and, and she gave me a, a, a tape of it later. I'm reading a book. I can't wait to read your book about uh, It's not my book. This is, this is a Bill Copp's book. And what I was saying is that we're going to do a contest and give away copies of, of signed copies of it. So I'm, I'm sort of putting that together now. I'm trying to get uh, some of the candidates uh, to buy into the idea. So far, one has. They all have to tell me what their favorite band is, and then we'll ask people to vote based not on how much they like the Green New Deal or based on how much they like Medicare, but based on what band they like. So I'm reading a book. I want to talk about capitalism and, and the current state of music. Yeah. So well, oh, go ahead. Well, you noticed that I said extreme capitalism, so I'm not putting down capitalism per se, I'm putting down this, you know, ultra greed and selfishness. Now, there's a case to be made that capitalism will always lead to extreme capitalism, and I'm not going to argue that. I'm not going to say it doesn't, but uh, what I was putting down was this extreme capitalism that I've seen in the record industry now. I mean, I was asked by Deutsche Bank to help them, uh, you know, they paid me to do this, uh, to help them with a bond, um, a big bond uh, sale on Warner Brothers records. This was after I had left the company. And uh, and they paid me very handsomely to, and the reason was because they wanted me uh, on their prospectus when they were selling the bonds uh, to, to customers. And they have to legally, they have to do due, due diligence about it. And they were very, very unhappy with what I had to say <laughs> and certainly never hired me for anything else and didn't use me in the prospectus. Because what I told them is that, no, you you should not be selling this bond. This is a Ponzi scheme, and uh, and it's not about. Uh, they're not about selling records or, or music. They're about selling uh, selling themselves uh, to, uh, to to investors. So, uh, um, well, let me ask you I about. Before, I, um, uh, yes. I want to ask you about the current state of music. I've been reading a book about Alan Klein. Did you know him? No. He was the Beatles manager. I know who he was, of course. Yeah. Yes. He was the Beatles manager, the Rolling Stones manager. Well, he, uh, briefly, the Rolling Stones manager. And he was the Beatles. Sam Cooks. And he was a, a Jewish accountant who found money. Now, there, he's a mixed bag, what they say about him. The, the, the reputation he had is you're getting ripped off by... All, all the record producers. I will do an audit. I will. The record producers. You, 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 you know, the record producers that were our artists. They weren't ripping them off. The, right. the record, the record executives, the, the record, uh, the record companies were ripping them off, not the producers. So I will. The producer do is the guy who goes in the studio with them, and right. you know, uh, you know, says you got to make the guitar louder, stuff like that. And and he said, I will go in. I'll do forensic accounting. I will find the money that is owed to you, but I'm going to get a bigger percentage than you think I deserve, because if I don't do this, 
you will not get any of the money. Some of the uh, rock stars respected that. Some didn't. But isn't that hyper-capitalism? We're talking about the, the 60s and the 70s. Where- the hyper-capitalism there is, is the record companies that were ripping off the artists, not, not Alan Klein. I mean, Alan Klein... I don't think was doing something horrible when he when he said that. I think I mean if if that's what he did. I mean you know I'm just going by what you just said. Whereas the record companies ripping off the artists, which which is true, they were. That's the hypercapitalism, and that is, that's what needs to be punished. Speaking of which, do you know who Sheldon Silver is? The uh, the New York State uh, criminal. I think he was assembly leader. Democrat. Yes, he was assembly. He was actually, if, if New York State government had a king, it would have been him. Right. He, he ran New York State government for, forever. And a de- he, he was, was a the, Democrat, correct? Yes, he was a Democrat. And he was, he was you know, everyone knew he was a gigantic bribe taker. Uh, if you wanted something to happen in the assembly, you had to give him large sums of money. And... Uh, and they finally got him, uh, you know, they, they and they could have charged him with a lot more, but they got him for a four million dollar bribe and uh, put him in jail. And he, he he was he had a six year sentence, which he, he's he was currently serving until today. And he isn't serving it anymore because he died. Oh, he died today. Yes. OK. In prison. In the prison hospital. OK. And do we speak ill of. The people who deserve to die? Well, no. I think the ill, we speak not, we don't need to speak about Sheldon Silver. I think we need to speak about the other politicians who take bribes and who are corrupt, who aren't in jail and deserve to be. What do you think? I think we keep locking them up. The, 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 I keep waiting for Donald Trump to get indicted in Fulton County, Georgia. I keep waiting for Latino. What about in New York County? I keep waiting for the Manhattan District Attorney to file yes, well, charges it, it, and the Attorney General. We'd like it to go faster, wouldn't we? And and they say, what they say is, well, it's not good for the country because if we start locking up Trump, if we look backwards and lock up who, Trump, who says that? The argument against who, 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 who says that? I have heard Democrats say, really? Yes, that it's not. I haven't heard anyone say that. And I talk to members of Congress all the time. I don't talk to right wing members of Congress, generally speaking. I do talk to one or two of them, but I don't hear anybody saying that. It's what they're thinking. They may not be saying it, but they. Well, it's not what they're tweeting. I mean, you know, look at someone like Ted Lieu. He's he's tweeting all the time. That, and Adam Schiff, both of them are saying that Trump needs to be locked up. Well, those are Congress people, and those are yes. good, and those are good Congress people. But I think Adam it, Schiff is, is a conservative. Yeah, but he he's a he, anti-Trump conservative. An anti-Trump. <laughs> he's an ever Trumper. What they say is it's a bad precedent to lock up a a commander in chief because. It, no, it's a good president. I, I agree with you. But you could lock up every man who ever served as president. Every president commits a crime. And Didn't he say something about this? Didn't he, he talk about how... Um, uh, that, that, uh, that there was, I, I don't remember. It was so long ago that I read it. That I think it was him and not, not uh, Sophocles. I think it was Plato. I could be wrong. 
saying, or not Socrates, I mean, saying that um, every, you know, ruler, every king or whatever they had as the, ru- as the ruler, uh, after their term, they should be shot. They didn't have guns, but, you know, right. they should be killed. Right. I don't know if he said that. Uh, I think he did. It might not have been Plato, but someone did. Some philosopher said that. Uh, and I liked it. I thought it was, I think about it all the time. I don't think they should be shot, but they should be arrested, put on trial, and you keep doing that until you get honest people serving in the Oval yeah. Office who stop That's lying right. That's right. When you used the word precedent a minute ago, I got all excited because the precedent that we should be making is uh, to politicians, if they are corrupt, if they steal, if they cheat, if they take bribes, they go to jail. They, and they, and they, they go to jail for a long time. I hope you can hear me now. I dropped my uh, my phone down my uh, shirt. <laughs> <laughs> what are you What are you What are you cooking? I'm not. <laughs> okay. No, I, I mean there's there's a, a, a leaking potato soup that's that's cooking, but I that I did it all uh, before the show. Okay. Now it's on, it's on the stove. All right. So now uh, you, we you need to talk a little closer. If that's possible. Sure. It is possible. I had it right here like this, and that's when I dropped it down my shirt and couldn't find it for a minute. So between now and the midterms, you're going to be introducing us to some great candidates. This is, yes. This is where we yes, do. I, will. Uh, I want to ask you before you go about. No, don't tell me we're done already. I know. It go, half hour goes very quickly. Uh, oh, I didn't get a half hour today. You were like talking to that uh, witch. And, well, we have uh, like five. We have five more minutes. Okay. <laughs> did, you call, did you call her a witch? Isn't, I, I only t- tuned in when she was talking about like she's from a family of witches or something. I, I, I it sounded great. I loved it. She sounded like she was wonderful. I, I yeah. mean, I didn't mean to call her a witch in a derogatory way. <laughs> in a positive, yes. Uh, so between now and the midterms. How many resignations are we seeing in the Democratic Party? You, you mean how many retirements? Retirements are we seeing in Congress from safe districts? Well, safe districts don't matter, right? I mean, you know, if someone retires from a safe district, it's you know, it's fine. Who cares? Well, that's it, how we it, get leftists. Shouldn't that? Shouldn't that? Isn't that where we should be sending the the the, the ultra leftists to run for office in a safe? district should i give you a should we break a little scoop yeah uh, i'm pretty sure jerry nadler is going to announce that he's not running and he's your congressman right no maloney is uh well we wish he would retire instead yeah. but it looks like uh, it looks like he's going to and uh so are you going to be running somebody who's better than nadler I, I, I hope I, I think that there will be people who run who are better than Nadler. We'll have to see. I don't know. I don't know. You know, it used to be when someone like that would go. What happens is is it, it suddenly uh, you know the state senator from the district and a couple of the assemblymen from the district. Uh, you know, maybe you know some uh, city councilmen from that district. They they had it all locked up. It's not that way anymore. In fact, when when you called just now, I was working on a post about that. Now. 
people are sick and tired of these professional politicians. Whereas in the past, they, you know, they would say, um, you know, we want somebody with experience. Now they don't. And so anybody could run. Almost anybody could run. Yes, anybody could run. I mean, if Matt, if Matt Cawthorn, the least qualified person in the history of Congress, maybe tied on some level with uh, uh, Lauren Boebert, if they could run for Congress and win, anyone can. Right. But is this an opportunity to build a leftist infrastructure in the Democratic Party? Because there, except for a handful of Democrats in the House, we have very few leftists serving in D.C. Is this the opportunity to start? It's an opportunity. I mean, take a look for just as an example in um, in North Carolina. I'm bringing this up because I, I believe you know her. Uh, G.K. Uh, Butterfield. You know, he's a, 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 at best a moderate, at worst a conservative. But he's been in that district forever. The district maps that came out, even though they're probably going to be thrown out, his district went from a, you know, I don't know, a D plus nine or something to a D plus one. So, so it would be a district he would have to fight for. And in a bad year like this, it would be a tough fight. He doesn't know how to fight. He doesn't know how to raise money. He's never had to do it. He's been in a safe seat all this time. He's lazy and old. Uh, so he, he's, he announced his retirement. So what happens? Erica Smith, who was going to run for the U.S. Senate, suddenly this was this is her where she lives. This is her district. She was a state senator in this district. She ch- switches up and she's running for Congress now in a district. She's probably going to win. She's she's a front runner. And um, and there you go. We go from a conservative Democrat to a, a progressive Democrat. Right. So that's what you're talking about when you're talking about, uh, you know, building a uh uh, a progressive base and and that we're not that lucky in every single one of these races but we are in some of them i mean and i'm certain in nadler's race there will be a, a, an outstanding progressive that runs that that that's, that district is full of outstanding progressives lindsey boylan i don't know if you remember her she accused, andrew, andrew cuomo she was the big andrew cuomo accuser she mm-hmm. primaried jerry i don't know how left of center she is though not very. Yeah. Uh, very yeah, quickly, how I is... We didn't, support, we didn't uh, endorse her. How is Congressman Alan Grayson's campaign? Uh, Alan is in the middle of a lawsuit right now, so I think he's really putting more energy into that than uh, than the than the campaign but it, it's it's a worthy uh, a worthy suit. It, it's it's against uh, those people um from uh, no labels and you know all the, oh, yeah. the yeah the idiots worst of Democrats and he and the suit is doing really well. Alan is in great spirits and he keeps telling me every uh, every week he says he's almost done and he'll be able to put all his energy into the uh, into the uh, into the campaign. But you know it's been yeah. Alan is a good friend and I love Alan. But I don't believe that. <laughs> Okay, I should have him back on. Howie Klein, yes. we have a candidate next week, correct? Regularly. I thought you had Alan on regularly as a regular guest. Uh, yeah, I try to get him as much as possible. Uh, who do we have next week before you go? Who do we have next week? Oh, we have uh, Neil. Uh, damn, what's his last name again? I, I, you know, this is, this is my mind just slipping. I, I, I'm, oh, Neil Walia, that's who it is. W A L I A Neil Walia. He's he's his district is basically the city of Denver. It's Denver County, 
so, and, and that's a very, very progressive place. They have a decent uh, congresswoman in there now. She, she's, you know, she's not great. She's not terrible. Her progressive punch score is a B. But a, a district like that should certainly have someone with a very high A, someone who is, you know, cutting edge, someone who is pushing the, the boundaries. She's never going to do that. That's not her. Right. She's just a... You know, she's a Pelosi person. Whatever Pelosi wants, she's there. She never, she never varies from that. And Neil is an amazing guy. I mean, I, I, I want you to meet him because he is phenomenal. And he's, he, and, and he's so smart and he's got such a great perspective on things that I, um, I'm just really looking forward to having him on next week. Fantastic. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. Read him every day over at Down With Tyranny. Thank you, Howie. Thank you, and I hope everyone reads that uh, that music piece and the piece about uh, Trump voters being morons. Right. I'll email you tomorrow about uh, the professor. Thank you, Howie. Bye-bye. Bye. David Cobb joins us, and you have a hard out. You, you are going to do some banking tonight, right? Well, I'm going to do some public banking, to be sure. Talk to me about public banking. What, what, what do you have at eight o'clock? What meeting? Well, uh, I, I will be convening with my colleagues at the California Public Banking Alliance. We meet once a month uh, uh, in order to continue to uh, cross-pollinate and coordinate the effort to bring public banking specifically to California, but we're also supporting uh, uh, our colleagues all across the country where there is pending legislation uh, that would actually do that. So. Uh, in California, just as a reminder, uh, we passed the first law, uh, and uh, this is to your hardcore Democrats uh, in the in the crew. I worked very closely with progressive Democrats in the state of California, uh, and we passed uh, the first law in a hundred years that allows for the creation of public banking. And to show my intellectual humility, uh, I want to say very clearly. Uh, this time, about a year and a half ago, I was arguing with my colleagues saying, no, we want a statewide public bank that like, uh, we've got, we, we have one uh, progressive willing to champion that. Uh, and we should like we should stay strong on that. And uh, we had several folks telling us we think we could actually get this if you would be willing to amend the language to have 10, uh, a pilot program to allow 10 local or regional public banks, uh, but we think we could get it. And David, I said, this is a mistake. We shouldn't do it. We should stick to our guns, be what, for what we're for, don't compromise before the fight begins. And I was overruled by my colleagues, right? Because I believe in little d democracy and you know the collective will of the group, et cetera. So, and I, I said at the time, a year and a half ago, Okay, but I just want y'all to mark my words, like you know that uh, we're we're compromising before the real fight begins. And I have never been happier to say I was wrong; they were right. Uh, the uh, on a straight party line vote, uh, Democrats in California uh, passed not only the uh, California Assembly but the state Senate. Governor Newsom signed it. We now have the ability uh, under law to create up to 10 local or regional public banks over the next, uh, I think, seven years. Uh, and right now we're negotiating with the Department of Business Organization uh, in order to promulgate the rules associated with what those are gonna look like. And David, get this, um, you know, look, I'm a lawyer, right? And, and you're, you're a smart guy, like, you know this, there are rules 
and then there are rules, right? Like you and I could sit down and write rules that make it basically impossible to create a public bank, right? Uh, no matter that there is enabling language, uh, the rules could be so stringent, so draconian, so difficult that none would happen. Or we could write rules that would make it super easy, right? So I wanna be really transparent and say, I and others argued with the, uh, with the DBO uh, to say, and we said, look, the state legislature and the governor signed a law enabling public banks. Public banks are good, they want to have these. You should make it easier to create a public bank than a private bank because of and all the reasons why, right? Wall Street lobbied the hell out of the DBO and said, no, 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 and uh, the, like public banks are public money. You should make it more stringent to create a public bank because it's public dollars. And to their credit, the DBO played it straight down the middle and they said, public banks are still banks. So it's going to be just as difficult to create a public bank as a private bank. We're not giving you any, uh, 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 we're not lessening any capitalization requirements. We're not lessening any insurance requirements. We're not lessening, we're not making it any easier. And David Feldman, they also said to Wall Street, and we're not making it any harder either. So literally that's where we're at right now. And I predict uh, that by 2023, you will literally see uh, the first public chartered banks probably in this order, Los Angeles, uh, Oakland, San Francisco, uh, and then uh, those will be the first three. Uh, so anyway, and all to say- this, this is something that we once had. Well, it's interesting. Uh, it is absolutely something that we once had. Uh, so, uh, you know, remember that there was a time when all money was sovereign money. Uh, and the uh, like right now, this is crazy, David, but literally now in the United States of America, private banks are actually creating most of the money supply uh, M1 in this country. Uh, by uh, because it's it's debt right, and they're able literally uh, to to dis make decisions on how the policy actually works. So um, the 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 idea of public money, it's still using the fractional reserve banking. It's not as good as it could be. I mean, ultimately, I'm a fan uh, of true sovereign money. Let's 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 say that we the people collectively through our elected representatives ought to create all money. We should get rid of private banks, just as surely as we should get rid of private health uh, care, right? Like, I, you know I'm a socialist. I believe that if things are fundamentally uh, human rights, they should be uh, provided as a matter of the social contract. I totally get it that there are, but like, that, that's what I want, but I can't get everything I want. So I do not let the perfect become the enemy of the good. It's why I work with progressive Democrats where I can, and you know that. Well, you know that there are a lot of leftists and greens who hate me. They think I'm a sellout because I do that. Just like there are a lot of Democrats who hate me and think that I'm naive because I won't join the Democratic Party. My point is this. There are concrete solutions that we can implement right now, uh, and we should implement them wherever we can. And public banking is one of them, and I'm very excited uh, about that. And I haven't forgotten uh, Dr. Fraud's sort of nudge to me. I need to get Ellen Brown on this program to talk about public banking. And I wanna actually ask your indulgence, David, to have uh, somebody who's gonna do a more full throttled, you know, 
uh, Green Party approach sometime, because as you know, like I actually navigate that. I'm I'm not a partisan. So so uh, we have some people who want to talk to you, and we all, we have to get you out of here by eight o'clock. Uh, and so raise your hand if you want to talk to David Cobb, because I'm seeing things acting up in in the Zoom room. Before we take a question from Bruce and who else? Uh, I saw somebody's hand raised. Are you worried that the left is out of new ideas, that we're reactionary, that that we might find a better home among conservatives in the Republican Party? Because it feels like the enemy, which is the richest one percent, are smashing things up. They're playing fast and loose. They don't care what the future looks like as long as they can write it. We have big tech. They they're not lefties, big tech. They are at they're libertarians who want government off their back and they want total freedom to write the future. Would we find a better home among reactionaries? Could we appeal to a post-racial, post-racist Republican Party who are conservative and reactionary, want to return to Glass-Steagall, conservation, Roosevelt, breaking up the trusts, would we have a better home in the Republican Party? So, uh, and I say this with with uh, kindness, David, I think the problem is that you're mixing not just apples and oranges, but now you've added vegetables to your fruit. <laughs> like, so, so I'm going to back I'm up. I'm fetishizing the two parties. You really are. And yeah. and, and uh and I want to like, so I want to answer what I think is really your question, which is actually quite exciting to me. And that is, can we actually unite across a broad spectrum of ordinary folks for a what you and I would call a progressive agenda? Uh, and I think the answer is yes. That absolutely will not I mean, I could, in partisan. Like uh, Josh Hawley, for example, Senator Josh Hawley. He and I could find common ground, not on America becoming a theocracy, not on abortion, uh, but breaking up big tech, uh, breaking up the big banks. I, I think there are. He's a dishonest broker, but you could make the same arguments in the Republican Party, but just not the racial ones. I get, but no, you're right. It's it's a. Yeah, you can't do it. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, uh, the 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 point that I'm trying to make is uh, uh, that I do believe that there is much common ground issue by issue, and that's why I always remember the insightful words of the great labor activist Samuel Gompers, who said, uh, "In organized labor, we will reward our friends and punish our enemies." And when it comes to electoral politics, he said, we will have no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. This is why I think with all due respect, this sort of like constant Democrat versus Republican is missing the point. Remember right. that it was literally Richard Nixon who signed the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. But it was passed. Uh, that stuff was passed before he became president. 
Oh, no, no, that's not actually not true. Uh, the Clean Water Act was, I think. Not only, uh, was on his I, I was being corrected, but I can tell you this, that it is uh, that the, the narrative that I have, and I'll stand corrected, but that what we had were uh, large movements that were actually forced uh, Nixon's hands right. on, on many of these things. So what I'm getting at is this. Uh, I think what I come to real clarity that Ne- the, the, the Democratic Party are controlled by neoliberals who basically believe the market and capitalism is the answer to everything, and they're privatizing everything as fast as they can. The problem is, and that's the leadership, right? Now, there's there's there are notable exceptions, few though they may be. Just as the current leadership of the Republican Party are actually neo-Confederates and neo-fascists. And we have to come to terms with that. And that's frightening. And frankly, I don't think that either the Democratic or Republican Party are going to be up to the ecological and economic and political crises, multiple crises that are happening, which is why I am going all in on trying to work on helping people to meet material needs uh, uh, as the as the slow moving collapse happens, um, you know the 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 like there's not enough genuine progressives uh, in in Congress whether they're green like like there's not enough of us even if we all voted to actually get over the profoundly undemocratic nature of the U.S. electoral system. And I could easily go down and talk about how if we had proportional representation and ranked choice voting and we got money out of politics and we did all these things, but we can't do that fast enough, David. Uh, so, so to me, like, as you know, I engage in electoral politics. I engage in policy work uh, with elected officials when and where I can, but I spend a lot more time with ordinary folks trying to help incubate and grow worker-owned cooperatives, housing cooperatives, participatory budgeting processes. In other words, David, what I'm looking for is let's find ways to collaborate and cooperate whenever and wherever we can. And I am an unapologetic leftist, and I say, and look on our website at Cooperation Humboldt, I'll work with anybody, uh, even if you don't believe these things, but I'm not going to pretend I'm not who I am. Right. Uh, Bruce? Yes. Hi, David. This is uh, a very exciting news about the bank, State Bank of California. And my question is, is the state required to use the bank? And I ask because... I've been hoping for this to happen ever since the EDD department started distributing benefits through Bank of America. And I thought, yeah, explain no what reason. the EDB is that is that uh, unemployment. unemployment unemployment benefits came through Bank of America. They used to send a direct check to the person applying for unemployment. And then about five, eight years ago, maybe they started sending a debit card through the Bank of America. So does the unemployment is it required to use this? bank so bruce uh not not this one remember uh that the 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 law that we passed were actually for local or regional public banks okay we we were originally advocating for a true public bank uh that would have been able to do what you're talking about so in this case the 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 state would not actually uh be be using a public bank it is it is our hope and expectation that we'll be able to move to a public bank 
whenever people get a chance to see how good it is, when they remember what it was like uh, to, to, to have uh, public money rather than uh, private banking money. Great. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Does it help when we talk about how bad things are? I do it all the time. All I do Listen. on this show is talk about how bad things are. But if you turn off the TV and you stop reading and you just walk outside, am I freezing here? Have I frozen? I think no, I, 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 I can. Not I, for me. I can hear you. I, I think I just froze. Hang on. Your, your video image froze, but I'm still hearing you fine. I think this is better. Okay. Um, if if you if you go outside, it's not as bad as it's presented. Like where you live, up near Humboldt, how bad is it? Listen, right. My life is great uh, on a personal level, right? Uh, and uh, like the the culture, the politics, like we're doing pretty well. Uh, but I also think it's important to tell the truth. And the truth is that there is an ecological crisis. It's not coming, it's here and getting worse way faster than any of us believed. But wait, there's more, there's an economic crisis uh, and that crisis cannot be solved by capitalism or tinkering at the margins of capitalism because capitalism is, in fact, the economic crisis. And the ecological and economic crisis are creating the political crisis of polarization. And that's the reason that it's happening so quickly. Right. So you put all of those together and we really are in the beginning stages of true systems collapse. So I think it's important to tell the truth but not simply to be a doom, doom and gloom sayer, right? I don't want to be, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to either be Pollyannish, uh, nor uh, do I want to be Eeyore. What I'm saying is I take the world as it is, not as I want it to be. And I say, but how can we get the world to where I want it to be? How and where do I have agency to do it? So I know when I come onto this program, David, that I'm having a freewheeling conversation with a, and let's be honest, a marginally influential person, right? Mar like, very marginally. <laughs> but you know, it's true. You have an audience, right? Uh, people listen to you. Uh, people, people find you entertaining. Hell, I think you're funny, right? Like a part of the reason, like, you know, that part of the reason that I, I, I can't, I, originally started keep coming back was because you were cracking jokes left and right uh, with our mutual friend. And Mostly I was like, left. wow. Mostly no, left. I mean, Thank I, you. I think you are really genuinely a funny person. And what I found is most leftists are not funny. Like they just don't have a sense of humor. Right. right. Uh, so. Um, well, Julie, oh, Ryan, thank you for your, your kind thoughts. Uh, uh, I appreciate it. But are we doing a disservice because it's very reminiscent of what got Reagan elected. The doom and gloom coming from Jimmy Carter and the left being constantly harping on everything that's going wrong. In the late 70s, we were running out of oil. We needed to conserve energy. Well, we were partly correct. We weren't running out of oil. That was a lie. 
we had plenty of oil. We will never run out of oil. It's almost a renewable resource the way they can find it, unfortunately. But we did need to conserve because of the environment. It was doom and gloom. And then the sunny lying optimist, Ronald Reagan, came in and said, there's plenty of oil. You don't need to conserve. Life is great. That's what people want to hear. Are we falling back to old habits of just scaring people and creating paralysis? I think I contribute to that. So I, I, uh, I know that we only have five minutes left because I've got to jump. But, but with respect, I disagree with your frame about Ronald Reagan. Yes, Reagan had the whole morning in America, but he also used fear of immigrants, uh, fear of blacks, fear of, fear of, fear of, right? I mean, what Ronald Reagan was a master of was the big narrative. And I do think it's a mistake if our narrative is only critique. And I think that there are some leftists who are frankly not playing to win. They have sort of accepted that we can't really build a mass movement. So instead, all we can do is critique, right? And that's where identity politics comes into play, right? Because instead of actually trying to do something, you say, well, at least in this small little sphere, I can police people's conduct, police their, their language, watch for their pronouns and play a gotcha game. Right. And what I'm saying is I'm interested in talking to those people who are actually still believing that it's possible to unite and build a mass movement on an unapologetic uh, progressive vision. And we'll make mistakes and we do stuff. And we and that's again. Part of my thing is I like you because you tell jokes, right? Like I want to be around people who are going to have fun when we do the work, right? I want to be around people who, yeah, if I make a mistake, help me. I didn't, if I make a mistake, I didn't do it on purpose. But I I am so sick and tired of leftists who are dour and sour yeah. and are not actually trying to win. Right. Before you go, we the difference between Reagan and what we're doing now is we're posing, and I hate to use this term, existential crises. We're talking about life and death. And Reagan's gloom and doom had solutions. Hate black people, hate immigrants. Well, he didn't hate immigrants the way Trump did. Uh, the demonization, there's something sunny to demonizing people. Sure, and let's I, demonize the billionaire class. That's what we need to do. The, 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 those who are despoiling the environment and locking up children. Like there's plenty of people to demonize. And, and I think, you know, David, that you and I and Dr. Fraud can very quickly get into like there. Like, I, I want to end with this. I used to always say I only have one enemy. And that's my class enemy, uh, because I have a clear understanding of how power actually operates. Sadly, I now have to say, I, frankly, I have two enemies. There's the class enemy, and then there are the members of my own class who are intentionally, whether they know it or not, are breaking with the fascists. I have members of my class who I thought I could win over who are really, literally going to go fascist uh, rather than socialist. And I'm just trying to win over as many people as I can to the socialist vision because I think that's the only path forward. Great. You have to go. David. I gotta Cop go. Thank you. Dr. Broad, great to see you. Great. Thank Bye -bye. you. So great. David Cobb, 
Thank you so much. Joining us now is the host of Capitalism Hits Home. It's not just in your head. And she has a show on Pacifica Radio, Wednesdays at 2.30 on WBAI. At WBAI. And what is the name of your show on WBAI? It's called Interpersonal Update. Interpersonal Updates. So picking up on where we left off, I'm a big believer in in solutions as opposed to paralysis. And and I think we have to couple the world is coming to an end with because these people have too much money and name check them and tax them into oblivion and make them as hated, if not more hated than people of color or Muslims or homosexuals. We have to, we I think teaching people to hate properly is a positive step forward. Absolutely. And to hate their flunkies, like Manchin and Sinema, right. who have betrayed their electorate and make it clear. That's why I think we should go if look, if the Democrats wanted or could ever risk actually going to people and activating them, of course those people would be finished. Sinema and Manchin, but they're not. They're not willing to go to the streets. They're not get it, willing to get ordinary people angry. And that's something Trump did very well. Right. And we have to, because we too have enemies. And we can't go the way of Joe Biden, polite to the end and surely ending for us. If he wanted that agenda to get through, of course he could have gotten it through. But he would have to go to every neighborhood, be on every social media platform, getting people out. And they don't want to activate people. They're afraid of where it'll go because it won't go corporate. And they are corporate. To the Democratic Party's credit, the Democratic Party of Arizona censured Kirsten Sinema. Yes. I've never heard of that before in the Democratic Party. I know the Republican Party censures Oh, yes, anyone who disagrees with Trump. But for the Democrat, I've never heard of the Democratic Party censuring their own senator. I didn't either, but they need to also organize demonstrations and information across that state in addition to censuring her. Right. And I think Bernie has been talking with somebody in the House about campaigning, running a primary challenge against cinema and mansion. They're not up for re-election this year. I think it's in the next cycle that they're up. But we have to vilify them because they don't care. They Look, the lobbyists' connections that they have have promised them lucrative jobs. They've taken so much money and they'll get so much more. They don't need these jobs anymore. Right. You'll get another flunky to do the corporate bidding and they'll give these people a sinecure, some safe place. They have to be hated. This is the problem with the Democratic Party. Mike Nichols gave an interview to The New Yorker. This was more than 20 years ago, and I never forgot it. He said, the secret to Hollywood is never tell anybody what you really want, because then they know what to take away from you. And mm -hmm. a scrapper, somebody who really has fought their way to the top, uh, knows what people really want and what to really threaten to take away from them. Joe Biden is a, a, a pampered little senator from Delaware, and he's surrounded by pampered little Harvard and Princeton 
West exec mm -hmm. lobbyists who were, you know, give it's the white glove treatment. A real scrapper knows exactly what Joe Manchin wants and what he doesn't want taken away from him. And that is how you play politics. You go on uh, almost heaven, his yacht, get to know him, size him up. What What is this man's Achilles heel? What What is it that I can take away from him that will destroy him? And that's how you bend him to your will. Those are the kind of Democrats we need. Chuck Schumer isn't going to do that. Chuck Schumer is a lightweight. He's also got one foot in the corporate money bag. Yeah. They don't want to get people excited. And also Biden doesn't care that much. Right. He's not willing to really fight. Right. He's not willing to, to rouse people to fight. He is a patrician, spoiled white man from a state that really thrives on giving corporations tax breaks. What do we expect? We're getting the kind of bland stating he has huge bills and he states he wants them to pass he's not willing to play hardball he knows they won't pass he doesn't care that much right the republicans god bless them they uh, will drop a manila envelope on on the table and they will get their people riled up too right they will go to the people and get them riled up and get them hating. And so that, you know, Dr. Fauci's children are afraid because they're so irrational and hateful. And if I don't suggest choosing targets like Dr. Fauci trying to bring science to the American people, but grotesque lobbyists, you know, there's five lobbyists to every congressperson in our Congress. Right. right. And when I looked this week following a hunch when I looked at Adams's appointments, I found uh, the new mayor of the new mayor, new of new mayor of New York City. I found five, no, six deeply corrupt people. Head of well, not the head, but on his housing team, his housing transition team is Rick Gropper or Groper. Probably doesn't want to be pronounced Groper, but he was in the Camden Property Group, and he is the manager of that. They own that building that burned because they wouldn't replace right. the automatically closing doors. And they had 18 complaints about doors. He also is in on the Bronx preservation uh, stuff, which has thousands of complaints back years. He also has on his uh, roster for his new economic czar on development, Carlos Isora, who was an informal, not declared lobbyist, but who was offered and interested in the $100,000, Tim Zeiss, who is a developer who is so hated, the Housing Preservation Department does not want him to get anything because his buildings are so terrible. People are freezing, they get splinters from the floors, there are rats, there are roaches, the doors don't close. That's who he was working for. And now he's gonna be in charge of development? What kind of development and for whose benefit is he gonna have? Also banks he has. Uh, Where was the left in this race, in this mayoral race? There was nobody to vote for. 
Garcia was the most progressive of all, and she lost by very little. And we had a, con- a comptroller who we liked. I forgot his name. But Brad then he Lander? got. I'm sorry? Was it Brad Lander? Somebody got me too'd and he had to step down. Yeah. Oh, no. I know who that was. Yes. I can't he got remember. He by a woman who worked for the opposition. Um, I can't remember his name either. It'll come to me later. But Adams also hired as his deputy mayor, Phil Banks, former NYPD head, chief. Well, the day after Eric Garner was murdered by police, Banks took off on a vacation with two known corrupt people and went around in a Porsche gambling and having fun. And he did not come back because a man was murdered by his own force. And now he is the deputy mayor. In addition, Adams hired his brother, whose latest experience was assistant head of parking at Virginia Commonwealth University. He wanted him to be in charge of his special uh, guard there at $242,000 a year. And when people said, hey, you know, what's his qualification? Besides, he's your brother. He said, he makes me feel safe and I'm the mayor. Well, he got so much crap. He demoted his brother, who now is only going to get only $200,000 a year as his private security person. So what, what are we talking about? His chief of staff, Frank Caroni, is totally mired in corruption. So that what we have is people who are involved in the Democratic Party and who have sold out to corporations fleecing poor people for extra money. When they looked into the the housing violations after this happened, they found over 2,000 closing door violations around the city. And those are mandatory, particularly in buildings that have poor people, because those buildings don't have sprinklers. So their only chance when a fire starts is to contain the fire with a firewall of a closing door. So what are we talking about here? Are these people going to represent the poor of New York City? Doesn't look like it. And so that this is really a hoax. And I think it shows the deep connection of the Democratic Party and all of these guys, because Frank Caroni used to be the Democratic Party council. And what are we talking about? I think we have to face that the Democratic Party is a party, a corporate party, It's sort of capitalism slightly lighter than the Republican, in fact, much lighter than the Republican Party. But of these two capitalist parties, no one will represent the mass of people. And, you know, Adams said how he was such a populist. He's starting stop and frisk again. He reinstated solitary confinement. And he's hired thugs. So what do we, you know, I think we have to look at the Democratic Party and say, we can do better. We can do better than capitalism and we can do better than the Democratic Party that is so mired in capitalist corruption. It's not just capitalist corruption. The the party, especially cities, have learned to balance their budgets on the backs of the poor, not just by denying them services, but keeping Mm -hmm. them in permanent cycles of debt. It's a shakedown operation where you look at poor people and they are a 
like a natural a, a natural resource where you can extract cash keep them working but keep them in debt keep pulling them over uh find them give them tickets give them tickets give them tickets and that's how you pay the bills by looking well, at every you can't afford you know you can't afford to tax the rich because who will give money to your campaign then and and they can they'll tie the they'll tie it up in court they the rich have accountants and lawyers so the government won't pick on somebody their own size they pick on small the middle class people. small people right. and that's every time a black person gets pulled over for a busted tail light they are given a ticket because that's that's the job of the police that's, That's how you right. pay bills. Yeah. Meanwhile, the building on Columbus Circle, a very central place, 59th Street and Central Park West in New York, has all these buildings, all these apartments with secret doors. 75% of them, I read, you know, I haven't checked this myself, but I read, are owned by people who are LLCs. They don't even have their name on it. Right. They're basically safe deposit boxes for the rich. Right. And nobody right. is going to do anything about it. Jeff Schneider, three thousand violations in the Bronx, fire violations, and some of them dating back years. If after three years they don't fix them, the city should take over the buildings and make it affordable housing. That's obvious, right? You know, so many units. It's not. It's. It's eminent domain. It's the, the it's it the Fifth Amendment. They could do it and say it's eminent, eminent domain. domain. Uh, it's a, an injury to public safety to have it continue. That's right. And then New York would be an affordable city. New York uh, is empty. Manhattan is empty. It was empty before COVID. It's always been. What did you describe these apartments as? As safe deposit boxes empty safe deposit boxes they just they're literally building assets they're constructing uh, on uh, fifth avenue south these pencil thin skyscrapers that are that nobody lives in they don't have to they don't want to because they leak and they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're they're all breaking down they're, they are so you could hide $220 million and it's artificially propped up by oligarchs and money laundering operations. And also there, and sometimes dictators hide their money there. Yeah. So, you know, when they're finally kicked out, they can come and sell the apartment. Eric Schneiderman was the attorney general before he got caught beating up women during his sex acts, he was going to crack down on all these apartments. He was, you could not buy, he was going to make it so you couldn't buy an apartment in New York unless you revealed who the buyer was. But yeah, well, I think once you declare that, they're going to follow you. That's what happened with Spitzer, who declared his investigation and punishment of the banks they're going to follow his every move so if he tries to import a prostitute 
They'll nab him. And so you have to really be clean if you want to go after rich people. Yeah. The New York Times had a series, which was very good a few years ago, where they studied the block on 57th Street between, I think it was 5th Avenue and 3rd Avenue. So 5th Madison Park, Lexington. 75% of the buildings of the apartments there were not lived in full time and not just away for the summer either, but they were owned and as safe deposit boxes for the rich. Who's, maybe their kids went shopping here a couple of weeks a year or whatever. The same thing is true with the Lewis Meyer building at um, in Brooklyn at the park right across from Prospect Park at um, Union, what is it called, Union Plaza, um, right there at, at uh, across from the entrance to, to the park. A lot of those apartments are owned by people from Spain or Portugal or elsewhere it, as an investment, but also as a safe deposit box for their cash. And so that's why rents are so high. And we it's have homeless. They don't even have the decency. The people in charge know why there are homeless in New York City. Of course they do. They don't even have the decency to build homeless shelters. They, they know, like one apartment building goes for $200 million in Manhattan, but nobody has $200 million to build homeless shelters. Exactly. You know, one man, the same day as the fire that killed those 17 people, eight of them children in the Bronx, a man bought the most expensive apartment, not apartment building, just a little apartment on Central Park West for $190 million. So what is happening to, so to me, Manhattan is smoke and mirrors and a lie. Every, as far as I'm concerned, every store you walk into is a lie. A mom and pop grocery is anything but a mom and pop grocery. Nobody can afford those rents. It looks like a mom and pop, but they're owned by venture capital who just brand them as mom and pops. They're not, that's not a family. There's no such thing as a family run grocery in this city. They'll tell you it's family run, but they're a front for venture capital. Well, I think that's exaggerated because I think above 110th Street and on the Lower East Side, there are big differences. I live in Stytown, which is, you know, it's owned by Blackstone, a huge corporation. Evil. Blackstone, isn't Blackstone evil? Evil, huge corporation. However, it is not that it is not owned by absentee people. It really isn't. And it's not owned at all. It's rented. And this whole neighborhood um, from around 14th Street down to maybe 1st Street, no, Houston. It's small, you know, and there's a lot of life on the streets and a lot of music and a lot of people and a lot of, unfortunately, poor homeless people, too. But I think in New York, if you live above 110th Street or above 138th Street even, it's a different story from if you live on 57th. I, uh, I suspect that Wall Street has so much money that has to be laundered 
I know I'm a broken record about money laundering, but this yeah. there's something like $70 trillion that has to be cleaned. They can make, you know, these venture capitalists, they get their hands on this cash. It's got to go somewhere. And somebody sets up a chain of locally owned Guatemalan mom and pop <laughs> shops, and they're just sure. fronts for venture capital who have a, a chain of sub Rosa grocery stores. I can't imagine anybody being able to afford the rent in New York City unless they also own the building. And that has to be an investment from the fine. We have financialized every aspect of New York. Everything well, is there are there are pockets. There are people who are here on rent stabilized rents who are on, you know, on lower rents than by law. There, there are a lot of people rent controlled, rent stabilized in the neighborhood, but we are losing as they build higher and higher buildings. You know, what happens to this city when the office space is not only overbuilt but empty? The, the, the new reality is New York City is not coming back, not because of COVID. But because the rents are too damn high, you run a company. Why would you why would you pay to lease office space when you can have everybody work from home and everybody would prefer to work from home? I don't see Manhattan real estate coming back. What are they going to do with it? What are they going to do with these empty buildings? Well, the office buildings, I really don't know. They should be housing the homeless, as should be the hotels. But I don't know what they'll do with the office buildings. But I do know that New York City, that this country has changed. When yuppies have a little money, they don't go remodel a house somewhere in the exurbs outside the suburbs. They want to be in the city. They don't have kids. They have dual incomes. They want to be where they can go to do things. And where there's a lot of life, and that's the city. It's not the dead suburbs. They're not there in Westchester. They're in Manhattan. Now they're often yuppies. And between the yuppies and the absentee uh, owners using apartments as safe deposit, safe deposit boxes, a lot of housing is gone. But New York will be a magnet because of the life because increasingly people don't want to be in the suburbs and have kids. But what life is there? Themselves in the city. But what is the life in Manhattan when it's unaffordable? Well, if you're two people with yuppie salaries, you could afford it. But, but you you're, so so the art, so food and art caters to upwardly mobile a holes. You know that's right. That's but that's that that is the that's decay. That's the end. No, it's decay. It is definitely decay. And you'd need a socialist movement in this country and a redistribution of the wealth. Look, there's what is it? Um, Seven hundred and forty billionaires in the whole world. And most of them live in the United States, just taking all of their money, but five hundred million leaving 500 million to them which is ridiculous amount to leave to them we could solve the homeless problem we could give everybody universal health care 
we'd be fine. Right. But there has to be a socialist movement and a socialist domination to go anywhere near that because, look, we have a pay-to-play democracy here. That would have to change. You'd have to do what France and Germany and all of Scandinavia and the rest of the you know, more developed thinking world does is not allow any private money in elections and have proportional representation. So if the socialists got 10% of the vote, they'd have 10% of the seats in the Senate and the House and so on. You need massive change. And Americans are just beginning to wake up and they're ahead of their politicians. They're not going to work. They're on a passive resistance to work and leaving work and refusing. And also, of course, they can't fill those jobs because they have kicked out the immigrants who were the people who would work for crap at horrible jobs. And so, you know, they're refusing. Labor is organizing everywhere. People who draw comics on strike, architects on strike, you know, people who never did it before. The, the um, Chicago Art Institute, my God, you know, people who thought they were above labor are now striking. They got rid of the docents at the Chicago, the, the free white women who donated their services to the Chicago Art Institute were said, sent packing. You have to be paid and that's right. You have to no be more paid white, because... no more white, wealthy matrons. Right. Who then take the jobs away from people who need to work for a living or they point, well, we could get that job done for free. No, no. People are really without a movement that that is strong enough for them with a weak AFL-CIO. They're still doing it. Their class consciousness, and this is very hopeful, is being showed by the fact that they are not working or they're on strike. That is huge. Right. And I think we have to have hope and we have to say, of course, they're, they're showing us a labor party is needed here. Labor is unrepresented and labor is in turmoil. Right. Either people are quitting or they're on strike. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands and many more. Well, if you count the people who aren't working, then it's many, many, many millions. Right. Let's say four to five million. But it turns out if you look at the figures differently, it's more like 11 to 12 million. Right. We have we have a, a serious problem in this country because we don't have a news media that reports on what somebody like Janet Yellen is saying. Uh, she was the f head of the Federal Reserve. And now she's uh, secretary treasurer, uh, treasury secretary. And she went to Davos and spoke. She didn't go to Davos she, because of uh, COVID. She had to do it virtually. When you hear somebody like Yellen, who's still in a position of power, she didn't say this when she was chairman of the Federal Reserve. She nibbled around the edges of this. But as Treasury Secretary, she gave a speech last week that was not reported, where she talked about something called modernized supply side economics, where she said supply side economics doesn't work. It's a failure. It, mm -hmm. it, it stifles economic growth. When you cut taxes for the wealthy, when you deregulate, it doesn't benefit. The, it, it's bad for business. It's bad for the economy. That, that money concentrated in a few hands with no regulation 
doesn't. They don't need to spend it either. They have so much they can just, you know, put it away, buy apartments here and there. You and, know, and she called it. She calls it modernized supply side economics, which is a euphemism for a social safety net. That if you provide, if the government invests in childcare, schools, roads, and bridges free tuition of public universities that trickles okay. up. It's it's not trickle down. It trickles up into. It does, but they don't care. They're just in there to make money. Take the money and run. It's not really the rest, the verbiage they pay for. They get people, you know, intellectuals to excuse what they're doing, but really and, and put a pretty face on it. They're just accumulating more for themselves. And that's what it's about. And it's out of control. And I think only a socialist movement would right. take control. Or, or, well, it's a socialist movement that repeats over and over again. It, you know, it has to be repeated over and over and over again that it's good for the economy. It's good for business when there's a social safety net that you you repair the thing is we have to know that and we have to know if there's going to be any social safety net if there's going to be any kind of justice if there's going to be a life for people there has to be a socialist movement here a class transformation of this country so you don't so a man isn't virtuous because he's rich which is what people think no you have to do something constructive with your life. And people have to be taxed from their untold billions. Trump has lost his businesses. He has been, he has had six chapter 11 bankruptcies. He got 214 million from his daddy. He did nothing to deserve it. No, that and the wealth tax has gone from 600,000, just in my lifetime, $600,000 that you could leave to each child to 11 million. Well, if you're going to give people an equal start, why does the first 11 million tax-free? And then if you want to transfer paintings or jewelry or gold or set up trust funds or education funds, those are all tax-free. Right. right. So that what you're doing is you're giving the country away to the 1% and then the other 19 or 20% that serve them. Yep. We can't even, we, we can't, forget getting the rich to pay their fair share. Forget that. We can't even get the IRS funded. The, the no, IRS. because they, you know, they were gutted. And who they go after is not the people with the fancy lawyers. Right. You redo it. And the only way to do it is to redo the economic system. So we are not a capitalist country, or at least not an unalloyed capitalist system. We could be capitalists like Sweden. Okay. But with so many taxes and so many restrictions. So, you know, if you close a factory, you have to get everybody else, a jo everybody a job, you're fired. Right. Okay. That every, even in Germany, Every business that hires a larger group of people has to have a representative of the workers on the board of directors and the representative of the neighborhood. Because, of course, in a capitalist system, if you're in a town and the town hires all the workers, then you want to move to China. Too bad for the 
thousands of people whose lives are destroyed. It's your personal decision for profit. That's outrageous. And people would have to realize, wait a minute, we've been had. And not only realize it as they already are doing beautifully now, I don't want to be part of this. This sucks. I'm being used. I'm out. But together, want something better. That's the real thing here. And that's what David is working on, you know. He's trying to create an alternative. Right. There are lots of ways to do it. Militant labor movements, strikes, neighborhood groups, but with a socialist awareness, this system has to change or it won't help racism. It won't help sexism. It won't help forced heterosexuality. It won't help any of those things. Right. You know, um, there was, what is the name of the woman who wrote 1619? Jones was her last name. She was asked to give a speech on Martin Luther King Day. And what she did was she took excerpts from his speeches and put them together, but she changed the word from Negro into black so nobody would know it was a dated speech. And people said that's too radical. It has no business here. After she spoke, because he said, you must end capitalism to end racism and so on. It was very interesting that those were Martin Luther King's words. Yeah, I've said this before. Martin Luther King in America is a cloud. You get yeah. to see whatever you want. You look what is what is that? What does Martin Luther King look like to you? Yes. And and people take him out of context and they twist them into different contortions. And so you can hear Tucker Carlson saying that if Dr. King were alive today, he'd be against affirmative action and against critical race theory, because you're not allowed to remind people of who Dr. King really was. Really was, and what he stood for. And also, you're not allowed to remember that most of the country didn't support him in 1963 when he gave his I Have a Dream speech. There was a poll, we have to wrap it up, there was a poll after the civil rights uh, Uh, acts were passed of New Yorkers. We started talking about New York City. New Yorkers were polled I'm not talking about New York State, New York City in 66, 67. And a vast majority of New Yorkers felt Dr. King and the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65 were excessive. This is the the silk stocking congressional district that, you know, is so liberal. They, you know, and Leonard Bernstein inviting the Black Panthers to dinner parties. Most New Yorkers weren't too keen on Dr. King. We, we have to wrap it up. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host mm-hmm. of Give Them an Argument, as well as... No, I am the host Not of Give Them, I'm sorry. I'm, not, oh, so. And it's not just in your head. And now on WBAI at 2.30 on Wednesdays, interpersonal update. Thank you. Sorry, I was... Oh, it's okay. My mind, You're wonderful. My mind, I'm, I'm on muscle relaxers. Uh, my back went out. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Let us, let us now go to let us now go to a country that's better than America. And that's yeah. not that's not saying much. Canada. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Fraud. Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the religion department and over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Thank you for joining us. I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about, but picking up on what
Dr. Fraud is saying. Uh, how do we frame this to the American people? To me, when, when we talk about changing, let, let me take a stance here that I think I believe I, I, I'm, a, I'm moving further and further to the left. I, I think capitalism, I think it would be nice if we tried it. I don't think this is capitalism. Right. I, I think so. I think the pathway to socialism is through democracy. I think this country is very, America is very stupid, easily frightened. So how do we get to socialism, which I would favor, the nationalization of banks and businesses without it? I don't see how we do it without reframing everything uh, and without it being peaceful. I don't I don't see I just don't think I think if it's too militant, you're you know, the FBI and the Chicago police are going to come together and treat us like Fred Hampton. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is the kind of question that uh, we're always asking ourselves over the course of American history on the left, in the labor movements, in the former Socialist Party, in the era of Eugene Debs, but also uh, with the civil rights movement. And, you know, you were just talking about um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and um you know, the various ways in which he's appropriated uh, and made to mean for different Americans with different um, orientations and interests. But, you know, during the end of his life, I've mentioned it before, that very famous, well, it wasn't so well known, but it has become subsequently quite famous, his three evil speech from August uh, 1967, where he um you know, basically said um, we have to fight against racism, we have to fight against poverty, and in other words, the inequalities of capitalism, and we have to fight against militarism and combat this war in Vietnam and U.S. empire abroad. You know, that was a very coherent vision, it seems to me, of what the key challenges were then coming out of the 1960s when there was this social change, revolutionary fervor to improve society and um, accord civil rights. Um, and I think, you know, frankly, that same message is needed today. Those are the three key components. Uh, but I think um, what you pointed out is democracy. I mean, that's the problem is, I mean, you look at the um, Americans think that they're not socialists. I mean, they think that, you know, they've heard so much about it. They have, you know, legacies of the Cold War and, you know, the last, uh, you know, decade and a half of neoliberalism has uh, suggested that there's the triumph of capitalism. You've got no alternatives. That's it. The best you can hope for is some small, modest, minor policy changes on the margins here. But if you look at what Americans um, actually are interested in, what they support, um, they definitely, you know, want what we would think of as democratic socialism. So if we actually had a democracy, if we had more opportunities, 
for collective action to reflect the will of the people, you know, we would have health care, universal health care. We would have a basic, uh, you know, livable uh, wage uh, in in this country, and we'd be moving towards transforming our economy and us, our society away from, you know, dirty and destructive fossil fuels towards, um, you know, something much more sustainable for ourselves and the planet. But we don't have enough democracy for that will to be expressed politically. And so with Dr. King and uh, lifting all boats, racism is used as a cudgel to keep white people from believing in government and believing in social services because white people have been trained to believe that government means helping black people who don't want to work, even though the numbers speak truth to that lie. Right? That, that yeah, you, that's you have right. the welfare. Welfare is more whites. Yeah, that is exactly what Ronald Reagan managed, it seems, to accomplish. Or if he didn't accomplish it, he managed to represent and embody those resentments, concerns, and anxieties about the gains that were made both politically and socioeconomically through government programs with the great society. But I mean, even as Dr. King himself mentioned, is that the great society never actually accomplished its complete goals. There were some very positive developments that took place, but in that very same, you know, speech, he, he said, you know, and everyone loves the, the I have a dream speech. It's very interesting that in his own words, he invoked dreams and dreamers. He said, we were the dreamers of a dream that dark yesterdays of man's inhumanity to man would soon be transformed into bright tomorrows of justice. Now it is hard to escape the disillusionment and betrayal our hopes have been blasted and our dreams have been shattered. The promise of a great society was shipwrecked off the coast of Asia on the dreadful peninsula of Vietnam. So even at that time that there's all this resentment for government, you know, doing, um, you know, you know, all these programs and policies to aid what was seen as one segment, one that was incorrect. It was obviously uh, meant to lift all boats. You know, these were programs that, you know, were universal in orientation. You know, maybe just proportionately they assisted, uh, you know, black folk, but that's only because black folk were disenfranchised and suffering disproportionately. But even then, I mean, the Great Society never really fully achieved its aims because, uh, the administration was bound up in this war in Vietnam, U.S. empire undermined the possibility to really democratize the benefits of the American dream. And so that's why Martin Luther King in 1967 is already saying our dreams have been shattered. Mm -hmm. Earlier, I mentioned this quote that I from Mike Nichols, the great comedian turned director, who said, I read this 25 years ago, he said, the best advice I can give you about show business is never tell anybody what you want because that informs them of what to take away from you. That's how they bend you to their will. They find out what exactly you want and then 
they know what to take away from you and get you to bend to their will. So what I really want is a government that provides a baseline for everybody. Food, shelter, education, security, health care, clean water, just the basics, you know, uh, social workers, schools that, and then if people want to play the game of capitalism, if they want to compete, if they want to play soccer or baseball and compete and be divisive, go ahead. But in the end, there's a baseline that no, there's a, there is not just a safety net, there is a, a bed that's nice that you can sleep in every night. That's what I want. Well, that's not so much to ask in, you know, 2021 in the wealthiest society in the history of the world. I mean, a simple minimum of human dignity isn't too much to ask that you would have the benefits of good education, reasonably, you know, reasonable education for everyone who needs it and wants it, uh, uh, you know, shelter, food, medical care. These are absolute minimums. And basically the point you're making is that these should be decommodified. They should not be considered commodities for sale and for profit making. These are public goods, public utilities for a minimum standard of a decent life in a modern society. I mean, that's, it seems a core minimum. I mean, I might argue, hey, we should go even further and we could have those debates and arguments and we'd be in a much better place uh, to make the, make the case if we actually had uh, some firm ground and foundation for a standard of life that was shared universally. Uh, then, as you say, okay, you know, if some people want to, you know, they have a, they, they need the um, incentive of a little profit for their innovation and they want to invest in some research or they've got a great idea and, and it means a lot to them, you know, to pull in investors who expect to make money in order to achieve that vision of a new invention or some new technological advancement. Okay, fine. I mean, I'd love to see all of that, you know, removed ultimately, but you could tolerate that if there was an absolute minimum guarantee. But the problem is, is once you get um, those groups uh, that are engaged in profit making, accumulating enough capital, they inevitably, it seems, turn into they have to be watched constantly and regulated and constrained because um once they have enough capital, um, the, you know, their, their first goal is to find ways to undermine that social safety net right. uh, in order to increase inequality so that accumulation, you know, can continue. And the way they have to do that is they have to suborn um, the democratic uh, system of government. I mean, it Would cannot you agree? be democratic. You know, uh I think of myself as when I was younger and my animal spirits that they talk about. Oh, you've got to unleash the animal spirits of capitalism. That's what great, creates all the innovation in the world. I remember my animal spirits and I know what my animal spirits are right now. I'm competitive and I'm hateful and I'm resentful. I'm a human being. And what uh, this show is evidence of all of that. <laughs> I, have a, I have an enemies list. The animal spirits are out. Yeah. yeah. 
But it's not about, I mean, I, I want to be comfortable. I, I want to make money. I, 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 but when I became a comedian, I wanted to be famous and I wanted the world laughing at me. But I never thought about the money. I never thought uh, I'm going to make a lot of money. I, I thought uh, I'm going to be funny and famous and all the women who wouldn't sleep with me will blah, 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 blah all that stuff. Thank God I didn't get it. But people don't do things for money. We're too smart. The truly creative, the truly driven, the great baseball players, they're not thinking about the money. They're thinking about destroying the opposition. So I think this is a conversation that needs to be had on a, is it, is it Laszlo or Maslow? I was, uh, who was, I confuse him with the guy from uh, The Third Man, The Hierarchy of Needs. I think it's Maslow, isn't Maslow's it? Maslow's I'm not positive, but. But we, we need to have a conversation in this country as to what constitutes a, a baseline of non-commodifiable needs. Uh, I don't think we, uh, we've had that conversation in this country. Oh, of course, we definitely have not had that conversation. It's, it's seen as a complete pipe dream to even talk this way, you know? Um, yeah, it's astonishing uh, that... Um, but wouldn't it be great to have a show where you could have, where some, you would think somebody could assemble Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates... And ask them, what is a bare necessity? What do, what would you be willing to agree? Mitch McConnell, bring, ask them, what is a bare necessity that everybody should have? And they would say, the tools. Yes, that's right. The opportunities, the tools, and then you have to let them sink or swim. You know, there's, there's no... Uh, you know, safety net. I mean, so that, you know, that is definitely the neoliberal. And I think, you know, the PMC uh, kind of orientation is, well, just get an education, equip yourself with the skills. And, you know, we should have a society where there the opportunities are there. But they think of opportunities in a very abstract way. They don't think really about all of the social factors that go into a person actually being prepared, being capable, um, uh, and 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 actually having real opportunities. You know, not you know that you could go to a, a job interview, but what goes into actually getting you even to the even to that point? That's where, if you had the strong uh, social safety net, the universal programs, and you know what you're talking about, decommodifying basic goods like education, decent housing, and so on, then you can talk a little bit more about meritocracy because you have, you know, you don't have the inequities that already help pre predetermine the outcomes. Maybe not on an individual level for every individual, but in aggregate, you know, and that's the thing is that they always play upon the fact that there are cases where an extraordinary person, everything, you know, either they have 
some extraordinary drive or some extraordinary set of circumstances that allow them that they could come from, you know, a poor uh, family uh, and rise, you know, to the heights of, of success. There's always a couple of cases of the, uh, you know, that they can point to, to then make that seem as if that's the typical paradigm and judge everybody else negatively against right. such a standard, even though it doesn't take into account at all any of the social conditions that actually do, uh, you know, uh, serve as obstacles to more people. And this is everything that you find out is that, you know, even in athletic competition, you know, you find out that once you actually open up the field and allow those who are excluded to be included within a generation or two, the whole situation looks dramatically different. And it's obvious that some people benefited from the fact that others were excluded from this arena of competition. They draft, uh, the universities draft people from the, uh, what would you call it, from poverty or lower, lower class? I, don't, I hate to use the term lower class because it sounds like I happen to think Bill Gates, yeah, working is class. the working yeah, class, yeah. Uh, they draft them. They tap them on the shoulder and like, uh, come with us. You're, 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 you'll, it'll look good to bring you into this, into the, the ruling elite and you'll cre help uh, perpetuate the myth of, of a meritocracy. We'll get a couple of you up through the ranks uh, and... Yeah, and it's not that it never happens. So that's the, the point right. is, but if you don't have sociological analysis, you can't see that these are exceptional cases that could be explained in a variety of ways and not just by the determined individual that if we all just, you know, acted in the same way, we all could. I mean, because that's the whole point is that we can't all under this system, we cannot all have those you know i uh, you know uh, conditions of success and material well-being we this, cannot our entire economy is predicated on luck one third of this economy is financial services which is entirely about luck they will tell you otherwise but it's all luck if you make money on wall street it's luck if you outperform the markets it's luck and then the other third is our healthcare sector, which is all luck. You get sick in America with a platinum health insurance program, your your luck ran out. Your financial luck ran out. You have a sick kid, your finance doesn't matter how well you're covered. Your luck just ran out. So this whole thing is luck, who you were born to. Uh, who helps you? It's all luck. And they just hammered down this idea. No, it's about working hard and just believe in the lie. That's the thing. Americans do work hard. See, that's the, the right. thing. They work longer hours, and yet there's still many millions who don't make it. So it clearly cannot be about the individual working hard. So that's when they say, well, work smarter. You have to have these skills. Of course, you know, if you don't equip yourself with education, you haven't created the opportunity for yourself. That's what you need to be doing. But, you know, how do you get you know the opportunity to get a decent education if you haven't had a good high school, if 
get and had a good, you know, primary school education. And then you got to take out incredible loans because tuition, which in a state school used to be virtually nothing, used to be almost free for an entire generation of, of people, suddenly, you know, was uh, made unaffordable. And they said, well, just take out loans. I mean, that is uh, really unrealistic kinds of argumentation, you know, um, you know, this this kind of vision of society is what really needs to be confronted. This idea that it's up to individuals, um, you know, in a kind of merit meritocracy, we do not live in a meritocracy. And that's become increasingly clear to people. Um, and that's why we have populism and resentment against the elites. Um, and a kind of nascent class consciousness is because people realize that they are working very hard. They have done everything that they needed to do to guarantee themselves in previous generations for a decent standard of living, but it's not available to them now because of the inequalities that have come with dismantling these universal programs and marketizing absolutely every corner of our lives. And we have a culture, by culture I mean movies, plays, TV that document the richest 1% as ruthless, vindictive, and nasty. And the message is in order to get to the top or get a taste of what the top has is you have to be vindictive, ruthless, beyond competitive. You have to be a sociopath. That is the 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 TV shows and the movies that expose the way the ruling class works trains a generation of middle class, working class people to think, oh, if I want to make it, I just need sharper elbows and sociopathic behavior. Uh, because, and, and the, the creators think they're doing a service by exposing, like six. I love Succession. I think it's ma it's a masterpiece, but it reinforces the messages. If you want to get ahead, you have to be as brutal as these people. They all because it's just a game to them. They don't care what whatever their company makes is an accidental accidental byproduct of serving themselves. Yeah, I, I've been enjoying it. I haven't finished the season three, but it's clear that the youngest son who most resembles the father in, you know, being pretty ruthless and generally uncaring about others and the consequences of his actions on others is the one who's rising. And the eldest son um, is, uh, you know, never going to make it because he occasionally shows a little bit of care and regard for others right and that's deadly like you know this uh, so i think you know right wall street is. the michael gordon gecko i remember when wall street yeah came i remember out. that michael douglas played him as a hateful despicable character oliver but it was an inspiration probably to so many i mean that's the thing yeah that's the thing. And I find myself even watching, you know, I couldn't stand the youngest son, you know, in in, in the family. Uh, um, Roman. 
Yeah, Roman. That's yeah. right. His name is Roman. Yeah. You know, I thought this is the worst character of them all. There's nothing interesting about him, but I'm seeing him rise and I'm kind of fascinated and I get it. I'm, I'm understanding. And yet I find myself less, um, you know, they're all horrible, but I'm finding myself less, con you know, condemnatory of him. I just feel like, well, he's picked up the way you have to behave in order to advance right. to gain his father's trust. He He's doing what was necessary, where yes, the you know other son just clearly never could develop the inner fortitude to not care about anything except his own advancement, and that's his fatal his fatal flaw. And so I, I've become a little, I mean, you know, I've became I was a little sympathetic toward him, but I also now there's some sense of contempt for him that has been created by the whole atmosphere. That why is he so weak and he keeps making the same mistake over and over of caring about others, about his siblings, about you know. Um, he wants to be ruthless, but he fails to actually follow through. So you're absolutely right that this is meant, I think, broadly to be a real critique of how corrupt, bankrupt and um, vicious this elite is. But in some ways it is glamorizing and naturalizing the critique. <laughs> you know, so you know what I think causes it? I think it's the mechanics of acting and writing all those actors by the way i recommend succession uh I, you know the sopranos i love watching evil people the problem is gandolfini who is possible i think he's gandolfini is the greatest actor who ever appeared on television but he's, he's the greatest and i think the actors on succession are great but in order for them to play these characters, they have to inhabit the characters and show their humanity and show them as being complicated and sympathetic. The, the rules of television and movies dictate that, you know, the Oliver Stone movie W about George W. Bush, which I love, it's a very sympathetic portrayal of a war criminal. And Josh Brolin plays George W. Bush. And you can tell that Josh Brolin got into, into that character and began to see the humanity in him. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, I think that's what you're suggesting on some level is your genuine enemies you can't afford them to be humanized. Right. Now, you shouldn't dehumanize others to make them enemies, but your genuine enemies, you know, the people who do oppose your, um, you know, uh, progress, um, you know, who deny you your rights and make it impossible for us to share um, an equitable, decent society. They are our enemies. And if you huma humanize them, you are definitely undermining, the, you know, the chance to really mobilize successfully. It, it, it is not you're not being an artist. I, I love Oliver Stone. I think he's one of the bravest directors ever. But uh, there's no humanity to a person who lies his way into the Iraq war and can enjoy shock and awe and know that these bombs are being dropped and thousands of innocent children are being 
killed and then try to make a movie that shows the Oedipal nature of this war that his father never believed in him and he and you're you're it would you humanize Hitler because as far as I'm concerned the difference between George W Bush and Hitler is numbers how many numbers Hitler put more numbers on the board and it was a different theater to to perform in I want to see I want to see the mind of a demon not something that I can then he, what they're offering is something that I can relate to. But he, I don't want George W. Bush to be relatable. That's part of his venality is that he acts like he's a, a relatable human being. So that W, great movie, but it does a disservice. It's not. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I just I, you know, I think you're absolutely spot on with this problem. I've been very distressed that Trump, you know, the specter of Trump uh, humanized George W. Bush in our culture broadly. And this movie sounds like it's really, I haven't seen it, but it sounds like it's just a reflection of that uh, kind of liberal intelligentsia that uh, recovered George uh, Bush's image as a counterpoint and simply because the Bushes came out and opposed uh, opposed Trump. And this just whitewashed all of the crimes of those previous administrations and the hundreds and thousands of people who suffered as a result. It would be interesting to have a movie that actually explained to us and tried to investigate how it was that somebody like George W. Bush seems not to have lost any sleep in the course of 2003 to 2004 uh, as the bombs go down. Why was he so composed? Uh, something there should be explained. Like what yeah. kind of a person is capable of that? Uh, I would like to see an explanation for there was a movie called The Comey Rule starring Brendan Gleeson playing Donald Trump. <clears throat> it was fantastic because Brendan Gleeson came to it from a place of hatred. He played him as a disgusting, flatulent demon. And, you know, Shakespeare... You know, Iago was a, a villain. There was no, you know, you could you could you can play up the villainy and have it be enjoyable. Richard the Third was kind of sympathetic because of his phys the way he was born, but just a pure villain. So we need to start demonizing people in our art. There are bad people who we don't need to. Professor Adnan Hussein, who is on the Mudgeless podcast, and who is on. Guerrilla History. Well, I do want to tell you about Guerrilla History, that we are having a special collaborative session with Danny Haifong of Black Agenda Report uh, to do a Q&A session with us and him and the rest of the Guerrilla History crew. So you can post questions for us to answer and discuss on Twitter if you go to at Guerrilla underscore pod and just post what you'd like us to talk about. Um, but I want to invite everyone um, to uh, a talk I've organized for Muslim Society's Global Perspectives with uh, Dr. Arun Kundani, What Was the War on Terror? 
4 p.m. Eastern uh, tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, and you can register for the Zoom uh, uh, online talk uh, at queensu.ca slash MSGP, or just follow me on Twitter to find out information about it at Adnan A. Hussein, H-U-S-A-I-N. And he was on uh, one of our most recent Mudgeless episodes talking about Islamophobia, the war on terror. But he'll be giving a talk, and he's the author of an excellent book, The Muslims Are Coming, uh, from Verso in 2014. So I do encourage people to attend tomorrow, check out the Mudgeless, and um, you know, check out his book. And I saw that picture of you. What, 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 what was the the body of water that you were walking on the St. Lawrence river. This man walks on water. (laughs) (laughs) You were, you were walking across the St. Lawrence river. You're the Messiah. When it's frozen. Oh, oh, that explains it. When we come back. Thank you, professor. When we come back, we will be joined by Bay area radio hall of famer, Peter B. Collins. And we're going to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and don't forget office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. I'm going to be able to do this. Uh, My software just crashed again, so I can't play Henry Huckamacki's interview again. Thank you, Apple. Thank you so much. Let me hang on my thing. This is okay. We will be right back, I hope, with Peter B. Collins. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. He will be joining us in about an hour. Let's go to San Francisco, the Bay Area. 
Marin County, where Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer Peter B. Collins is standing by. Welcome, sir. Ukraine. Hi, David. Ukraine. Yes. Don't we have to spread freedom and democracy? Don't we need to go to war to protect? We got to support the freedom fighters. Yeah. I mean, Putin is amassing 100,000 soldiers on the border. He stole Crimea from us in 2013, <laughs> 2014. 2014. Yeah. We, it, it's appeasement. If we don't fight Putin, at first it's Crimea, then it's Ukraine, then it's Belarus. Next thing you know, it's Latvia. The dominoes are just all lined up and ready to fall. Yeah. How, in all seriousness, should we be concerned about Ukraine? Does Russia, are they entitled to Crimea? Are they entitled to Ukraine? What's going on? Well, uh, that's an arguable point. But historically, Russia views Ukraine as part of its uh, greater sphere of influence. It was a critical part of the Soviet Union. And uh, Putin in particular believes that, uh, you know, it was a huge loss and that uh, his vision of manifest destiny is to uh, draw the line that Ukraine is where NATO must stop and Russian uh, dominance will prevail. And I think that, you know, <clears throat> we have layers of official disinformation that have been now compounded by Russiagate. And we have members of both political factions in our country chomping at the bit, uh, eager for uh, a confrontation with Putin. And they fail to really look in a realistic manner at the lay of the land there. And Putin has uh, many advantages, not the least of which is the massive deployment of his troops along Ukraine border and uh, to the north in Belarus. Now, I, I have never been to the region, and I don't want to pretend here that I am uh, any kind of an expert. doesn't prevent me from having strong opinions. A route into Ukraine via Belarus takes you right into Chernobyl land. And are there Russian troops that are willing to penetrate the Ukrainian border and uh, just march right through Chernobyl to get to Kiev? We're talking about Kiev, uh, right? Kiev is where Chernobyl was? No, Kiev, Kiev or Kiev in the Western pronunciation is uh, several hundred miles south of Chernobyl. Okay. So the Russians can come in from the east, moving westward toward Kiev, or they can try to come in from the north via Belarus. Uh, I find that to be a, a less likely scenario. But let, let's back up a minute here to look at what brings us to this brink. And that is America's outsized uh, belief and faith and support of NATO. 
And just in the last week, uh, Biden gave that almost two hour news conference where he stumbled and fumbled and uh, really blundered, particularly on this issue. Because, number one, he hedged on exactly what level of provocation that Russia would have to present for the U.S. to trigger the uh, massive sanctions that we say will bring uh, Russia to its knees. And he contradicted himself by first saying that he had great faith in the unity of NATO. And then he said, well, actually, we've got a few problems in that. And just in the past few days, okay, uh, Germany has fired its uh, Navy secretary, I think it is. Um, oh, yeah, he spoke who, the truth. Yes, I, I have a quote I can pull up from yeah. him in a moment. He, um, he asked yeah. for his resignation. It, he, he, he realized he goofed. Yes. Uh-huh. And in addition to that, uh, in, a, in an attempt to arm the Ukraine, which, of course, is run by a comedian who had the perfect phone call with Trump, uh, the British refused to ask Germany for passage through its uh, airspace. But that didn't stop Britain from grumbling that they had, therefore, to fly around Germany to bring supplies into Ukraine and, I think, some NATO neighbors. Uh, this has produced a range of sniping among the most critical NATO partners. And uh, Macron, who is up for re-election in France in April, uh, essentially uh, tried to, w without you know, quitting NATO or putting a huge wall between France and NATO, he s offered Putin uh, dialogue with Europe, not with NATO. And so as, as we look at this, the U.S. is once again, you know, potentially embarking on a military misadventure that is based at salvaging NATO. And I talked about this last well, week. Is, I, I interrupted you. Tell, tell us what the German naval secretary said. Uh, it's an article by Joe Laria. And it's at consortiumnews.com. Joe is a friend of mine who is quite a, uh, a, an accomplished journalist on international affairs. And he uh, is a longtime uh, UN reporter uh, for the Wall Street Journal. So <clears throat> the admiral who, who resigned was K. Achim Schoenbach, the head of the German Navy. He said talk of a Russian invasion of Ukraine was nonsense and that Russia is merely seeking respect for its security concerns in Europe. Here's a quote. Schoenbach told a meeting of a think tank in New Delhi on Friday, it's easy to give him, Putin, the respect he really demands and probably also deserves. My minister, he continued, asked me what does Russia really want? Is Russia really interested in having a small, tiny strip of Ukrainian soil to integrate into their country? No. This is nonsense. I think Putin is putting pressure on it because he knows he can do it. 
and he splits the European Union. But what he really wants is respect. He wants on a high level respect. And my God, giving someone respect is low cost, even no cost. And Schoenbach also acknowledged that the Crimean Peninsula is gone. It will never come back. And I agree with that. It's, it's, it's tough for some people to accept because I never felt that that quickie um, uh, referendum of the people of Crimea and the Donbass about Russia uh, taking over Crimea was really legitimate. But, hey, we, <laughs> we have presided over far less legitimate uh, uh, power grabs and land grabs uh, historically. So, there are a lot of Russian speakers, a lot of Russian speaking citizens of Crimea, which was Stalin's gift. Didn't Stalin give up Crimea and give it to the, to Ukraine? Wasn't Crimea once a part of Russia? Yes. Yes, I believe it was. And yeah. I do think that it, it was either at uh, Malta or uh, one of the other uh, meetings with Roosevelt and Churchill toward the end of World War II when that carve-up uh, was made. So, so, so this admiral, this German admiral, spoke the truth. The Germans don't want to upset Putin because they've gone off nuclear power after Fukushima and they need gas. And there's a new pipeline that's about to come online. Nord Stream 2. And what is that? It is a underwater pipeline in the Baltic Sea that brings Russian gas into Europe. And it is, it's not active at this point. But Nord Stream 1 uh, currently provides, I believe, 40% of the natural gas supply that Europe is relying on this winter. And prices for that natural gas have already uh, gone up substantially. So politically, this, uh, you know, uh, Putin has Europe over a proverbial barrel. It's uh, right. not barrels of oil. It's right. barrels of natural gas. And so the U.S. is in a position to lose a whole lot here. But I see very little that America can gain. And we talked about Biden benefiting from a distraction from domestic affairs. Uh, but the risks are, are quite large. I will note that I didn't have, a time, uh, have time today to research actual defense stocks. But last week, the Scott, uh, stock market went down five days in a row. And today, the market uh, recovered a little bit. <laughs> and I have to believe that it's not that we've tamed inflation or uh, killed COVID. I think that Wall Street is saying, oh, well, our defense stocks are going to be uh, carrying us through this uh, unstable period when the Fed raises interest rates and tries to reduce the interventions that have propped up Wall Street uh, through the pandemic. Uh, so we're, we're at a very critical stage here. And we are I, just want to, I just want to point out, because I said on the show, the market dropped a thousand points today, but it did recover. So it, it was on a, a roller coaster ride today. 
So, uh, yeah, the Dow was up less than 100 points, but NASDAQ had a pretty good day and the yeah. S&P was. But it was it was more than just rocky. There was it went into correction territory. So you're saying that they said, whoa, 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 whoa wait a second. We're going to go to war. This is good for defense stocks. And if gas becomes more expensive, that's good for oil companies. Mm hmm. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, to me, uh, when I look at Joe Biden, when I look at his team, which includes Victoria Newland, who was, uh, you know, she has worked for Democrats and Republicans, but she and Joe Biden were Barack Obama's key people in Ukraine in 2014. And it was that uh, period that led to Hunter Biden's payday at Burisma uh, that we're told is, you know, no big deal, uh, you know, personal family matters and all that stuff. Uh, but relying on their judgment and Antony Blinken, uh, who, you know, is very tight with Biden, but we, I think, are going to learn the true limits of the wisdom of Joe Biden on foreign policy. And, of course, he was part of the gang that supported the uh, invasion of Iraq and the occupation of that country. Uh, he, uh, Stephen Zunas, maybe you met him in San Francisco. He's a professor of politics at USF. And he likes to put up in social media uh, reminders of, of Biden ignoring testimony from Zunas and other uh, academics who warned against the invasion of Iraq. And so I can't point to more than one example of Joe Biden's wisdom on foreign policy. And that is that he was the uh, apparently uh, only or one of just a few voices in the Obama cabinet who opposed the twin surges into Afghanistan while Obama was president. I agree with Joe Biden on that, but he's Mr. Same Old. Uh, and, you know, when when you look, for example, at the way U.S. treats Russian allies like Cuba and Venezuela, well, Biden is embracing uh, the legacy of Trump on both of those issues, and he is ignoring the legacy of, of Obama on Cuba. Uh, Obama was bad on Venezuela. And so we believe that we have the right to uh, starve the citizens of our neighboring countries because we don't agree with the regimes that are in power. And yet we are now lecturing Putin. Uh, and uh, let me just, pardon, I have to unplug for a second reach back here, but I have Sunday's uh, New York Times front page, and the uh, th this is so similar to the run-up to Iraq. Headline, Russia is said to plot for ally to rule in Kiev. Britain sounds alarm on plan for puppet. So uh, I'm a, a student of bylines. When I read a newspaper article, I look at who wrote it and pay attention to the history of these people. Is it David Sanger? Of course. He is Mr. Pentagon mouthpiece. He was provoking uh, Biden during the press conference, wasn't he? Yes, he was. 
Yes. Along with uh, Michael Schwartz, who I don't know, and Mark Landler, who was a major promoter of Russiagate. Now, the byline that's truly missing here from these, this piece of crap is Judith Miller. <laughs> <laughs> but this is one of those unnamed sources coming out of the United Kingdom and being parroted by American officials the same way that Dick Cheney parroted Judy Miller's coverage on the Sunday talk shows right. just a few weeks before we launched into Iraq. Right. And, and so, you know, this, uh, this follows the coverage we discussed a week ago where uh, we have accused Russia of planning to create false flag incidents in Ukraine to justify an invasion. And as I said last week, that's plausible. But we know false flags better than any other nation on Earth. Right. And we've got more in our collection. Uh, so as you look at this critically, we really have to ask ourselves, number one, is Joe Biden up to the demands of this impending crisis? Number two, is he listening to anybody who is telling him to put the brakes on? Because today, the White House announced that they have alerted uh, American uh, forces that 8,500 might be sent to NATO countries as soon as later this week. Now, we were told that US, the U.S. will not intervene. And let's ask ourselves, 8,500 U.S. troops against more than 100,000 Russians on the Ukraine border? What are they going to do? But we Play spend video games, more, work, work on their wordle. We spend more on defense than the 12 countries below us combined, including mm -hmm. Russia. We've spent all this money on defense. I refuse to accept that we can't go up against. I'm joking. Well, so, it, so all this money for defense, and yet we we can't stand up to a hundred thousand troops in the Soviet Union, and then we're in Russia. Interesting. Well, we're not staging to do that. Uh, today we had a little practice round uh, where uh, coming out of an air base in uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, we uh, claim that Patriot missiles took out incoming missiles from the Houthis, uh, Houthis in Yemen. And, uh, you know, this is a developing story. So at this point, uh, I can't determine uh, how true it really is. I've always been uh, doubtful about the uh, effectiveness yes. of anti-missile uh, yes. uh, devices and systems, including the Iron Dome I, in Israel. I'm so These glad you're are, saying this. Do you remember? Bill, hyped. Do you remember Bill Sapphire? You're probably the only person who remembers Bill Sapphire's reporting in the New York Times after the first Gulf War about the Patriot missiles, how they didn't. Do you remember this? Yes. And the, You're the only the, person I know. You are. Go ahead, please. Well, the, the source of that reporting Jesus, was good. A, wow. a great guy who I've interviewed uh, three or four times, Ted Postal. 
Yeah. And he never went postal. He is a uh, retired or emeritus professor from MIT. And he has done uh, very detailed studies of Iron Dome and before that the Patriots. And it's all press releases. Okay. Uh, sure. You know, in certain circumstances, they can knock something out of the sky. But the, the, the kill rate is somewhere between 10 and 20 percent. Uh, but uh, Raytheon and the Pentagon and uh, the Israeli government always say that it's 80 to 90 percent. Right. And, so, and, and excuse me for one second. Yeah. I, I cannot believe you remember this and you know about this. I'm in awe of you. During the first Gulf War, Saddam Hussein was firing Scud missiles at Israel. And we deployed to protect Israel because Israel promised not to get involved in the first Gulf War because if Israel got involved, it would kill the coalition. And Saddam Hussein figured, I'll bomb Israel with a Scud missile. The Israelis will have to get involved and that will destroy a coalition of Arab countries that don't want Israel involved. So America gave Israel these uh, Patriot missiles and everybody celebrated the Patriot missile. Look at it. We can shoot missiles out of the sky. Look at that. It's what Reagan had promised f three years earlier about Star Wars. It's the beginning of Star Wars. And then Sapphire began reporting about this, a Republican columnist, and they discovered that these Patriot missiles didn't shoot the Scud missiles out of the sky. And when they did hit the Scud missile, the Scud missiles created a lot of damage. They broke up, they, they shattered and landed in bad places. And we've just accepted the lie that we can shoot missiles out of the sky. One of the last things uh, Obama did was he planted, I believe, Patriot missiles in Japan or somewhere when he was pivoting to the Pacific. He did something that provoked the Chinese by putting anti-ballistic missiles in the Pacific. And I remember thinking, they don't work. They don't work. None of these things work. Well, David, one of the most memorable and bizarre radio interviews I ever did was with a guy named Sonny Bono. And he had no political experience except being mayor of Palm Springs. And yes. he decided he wanted to run for the U.S. Senate. So I did this hour-long interview with him, and we started off easy talking about uh, Sonny and Cher and music and Palm Springs. And then I, I you know, got serious with him, and I said, Sonny, what do you think of the Patriot missiles? And his eyes started to move real quickly, and he got real nervous. And he said, well, I like what I saw on TV. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you think about what Professor Postal says, that they don't actually work? He said, oh, I haven't heard that. <laughs> and in the next two minutes, he took three different positions on increasing, uh, decreasing, or leaving the defense budget the same. And uh, at the end of it, he said, why, why did you have to ask me about those Patriot missiles? <laughs> uh, 
but I, I would like to recommend to your esteemed audience um, an analysis from Scott Ritter. And I've talked about him before. Yes. He was the one who told the truth about uh, no WMD in Iraq. And he, he paid a huge price for it. They framed him for uh, uh, pedophilia. He spent a couple of years in, in state prison in, uh, I think, in Pennsylvania. Anyway, uh, he's a man I deeply respect. And a lot of people are allergic to his recent work because he gets paid by RT and he publishes columns that are not censored uh, by Moscow. But his latest piece is at Consortium News, and that's the site that Robert Perry uh, set up, and, and Bob died a few years ago. And uh, he, he riffs off the uh, uh, phrase that is used by Jen P. Psaki, by Biden, and by Tony Blinken about this massive toolbox that they apparently got on a closeout deal before Sears shut down. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, we have all these tools in the toolbox and uh, they include sanctions like he's never seen before uh, and all of this threatening language. And Ritter's headline is America's toolboxes are empty. And he explains uh, various scenarios uh, for example, like putting troops into Poland and uh, other steps that the U.S. conceivably could take. And he basically uh, uh, concludes, and let me jump to the end here. He said, um, the toolbox is empty. Russia knows this. Biden knows this. Blinken knows this. CNN knows this. The only ones who aren't aware of this are the American people. Right. And we are at a new low. If you thought the uh, media malpractice uh, in the run up to the invasion of Iraq was extreme. Well, we, we have a new level because of the increased partisanship of media coverage. And uh, so we also have Democrats who have pivoted from being against George Bush's war in Iraq into supporting anything that they think will put Putin in his place. And they have no idea of the consequences. And so an, a nation of sheeple um, are sitting there with their remotes, flipping back and forth between the football playoffs and the cable news channels. And, you know, they know a lot more about the football teams. Well, they're allowed to. Right. They're, they're yeah. allowed to. The and it's West Exec. It's all the West Exec lobbyists. That shop is making foreign policy for the military industrial complex. I like to think I like to think that it's brinksmanship in the service of the contractors who make our bombs and missiles and that it's a game being played because Russia sells weapons to Turkey. They make money selling weapons. If they create artificial hotspots, it's good for both our economies. But this isn't about a, a hot war. This is about creating the need, the belief that we need we need weapons. And well, and, and David... Um 
It's hard to know because we have to rely on American media for this. But Russia has claimed development of a hypersonic weapon. And this would uh, blow right past our defenses. Uh, the Patriot missiles would be, you know, pedaling like Flintstones trying mm-hmm. to keep up. Uh, and if it's true, uh, this could be the venue where Russia will debut a single hypersonic weapon, just like we debuted atomic bombs in Japan in 1945. And if that happens, uh, this could be very short. And then it's going to be, uh, okay, let's dish up the respect. Let's appease this guy. Uh, hey, you want Poland? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I can't predict, but I want to raise that point because, again, it's not being discussed by the rented generals who are now back in their perches on cable news. They're all in it. It, it, we have to wrap it up. It's what Michael Corleone observed when he was in Cuba when the rebel jumped on the hand grenade and said to, uh, uh, what's his name? Castro or Shea? No, when Michael Corleone says to Hyman Roth, oh. he said, I saw a guy jump on a hand grenade. He was, you know, with Castro. He said, Batista surrounds himself with mercenaries. He said, they're not going to jump on a hand grenade. Mm -hmm. Not to take anything away from our military, but there are a lot of mercenaries, a lot of contractors who uh, work in our military. And the people at the top are eyeing jobs for contractors, Boeing, Eric Prince. Uh, it's why we haven't really won a war uh, since when? Not to take I'll anything. Get, I'll, not, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah, not to take anything away from uh, our soldiers. I, I support our troops. I don't support the people in the military who send our troops into uh, hot spots without the proper equipment. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do not support the generals because they're all going to get rich once they leave. Uh, Well, and they can be as bad as Petraeus and these other people who kept the uh, Afghanistan war going for years, knowing what the end game would be and filing false reports and spending billions of dollars and uh, putting American lives on the line. Uh, So, yeah. Uh, David, before I exit here, um, I just wanted to give a brief update. Back in September, uh, I was sharply critical of the FBI uh, based on BuzzFeed's revelations regarding the so-called Wolverine Watchmen. They were reportedly plotting to kill Governor Whitmer or kidnap her and uh, hold her hostage. Let me bring Professor Marianne here because she's also been on top of this story before. Everybody Hi, Marianne. Uh, so finally today, what are we, uh, five months uh, since we discussed it on your program, uh, the New York Times has finally uh, published a piece in advance of the trial coming up on March 8th of five men charged with uh, participating in that plot. Uh, there were a, a dozen 
FBI agents and a handful of others who were paid informants or uh, aligned with the FBI, there were more government infiltrators and handlers than there were schemers. And the FBI wrote the script, uh, paid people uh, fairly handsomely for orchestrating all this. And the New York Times gets a little bit of credit for actually covering it and presenting the defendant's side of this story. But they do it in that typical, uh, uh, you know, false equivalence uh, presentation where they still give the government credence for the claims that it has made. And so I just want to encourage people to watch this critically. Uh, It's not likely to get much coverage uh, because it would force the networks that uh, bought the story lock, stock and barrel in 2020 to admit they were wrong. And I don't see anything in this article in the Times today that even hints that they got it wrong. Uh, But I do encourage people to keep an eye peeled for it because it is another case of a big FBI frame up. And because it is not uh, Muslims this time, it's white Trump supporters from mostly Michigan Uh, It'll be very interesting to see if the right-wing media uh, play this up as a way to uh, try to demonize the FBI, which it deserves, and to blame all this on Biden somehow. So, I'm all for honey traps that lock up white militia members. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) I have have no quarrel. I think if you're in a militia... And uh, you're playing with uh, AR-15s and assault weapons, and you can convince these people that they have no idea if the guy they're playing war with is legitimate or an FBI agent. I like that. I'm sorry. You may. The the problem with it is that it became part of the election uh, dynamic. And... uh, for the FBI to stage that and pull their ripcord uh, just weeks before the 2020 election, I have a problem with that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan of J. Edgar Hoover. Although, if you if you look at the FBI infiltrating the KKK, uh, they were able to defang some some of the firepower of the KKK by doing to the KKK what they did to the Communist Party, which is make everybody suspicious. So we do it. Look, uh, entrapment, honeypots. Honeypots are legal. There are some bad hombres, as they say, playing with assault weapons who happen to be white nationalists. They're a danger to our government. And if the FBI wants to infiltrate and find out how far some of these people are going to go and convince them to do it, it's unfair. But it's nice to see it being done to white people for a change. Well, they they have uh, continued to turn a blind eye to Adam Waffen, despite the disclosures of murder plots that they carried out that were successful. 
And I'll just end this by saying, when they came for the Wolverines, David Feldman did nothing because he wasn't a Wolverine. To which I reply, you gotta go for somebody. If you're a government, you have the police, you gotta lock somebody up. There's always gotta be a them yes. as opposed to us. Well, but I, I know who's not us, and they are the white nationalists marching in the woods with weapons. And I know that corporate executives are not us. I, you know, lock up, lock up these Wall Street robber barons. We have to, we we have to, we have to lock up somebody. I, I can come up with 2.5 million people to lock up. Anybody can, and it's all the ninety-nine percent. Well, I but so I would. They, they got us. They got us all turning each other in. I mean, like perfect. Well, that's if, a perfect tyranny. Well, you haven't seen my enemies list. <laughs> we need an enemies list, and that we can agree on, and start locking them up. Thank you, Peter. Because it's it's upsetting. But uh, we do have a problem with an FBI that seems to care more about uh, the, the Black Panthers still than uh, the militia. So Indeed, yeah. Thank you. And, of course, Muslims and, you know, <gasps> hanging out in mosques. Thank you, Peter B. Collins. Go to PeterBCollins.com for a literal treasure trove of interviews, radio shows, podcasts. PeterBCollins.com. He is, you're, you're amazing. You are, you're amazing. I'm thrilled that you do this show. You have Bye, a, Peter. Bye, Marianne. Take it away. Thanks you have for a, the extra an time. And you have an amazing memory. You have an amazing memory. It's incredible. Well, Marianne Cummings is a professor of physics, particle physics, I believe. Did I get that right? Yes, yes, yes. you did. I have no idea what that means, but uh, particular particle physics. Particles. Uh, particles, yeah. yes. Uh, and you are also our only elected member of the community. You were elected parks commissioner of Aurora, mm -hmm. Illinois. And what are we gonna do about the Democrats? I cannot do a show. Like I get up every morning and I make notes about what I wanna talk about. And all I wanna talk about is how much I hate Joe Biden. And I'm thinking, you can't just talk about how much you hate the Democrats. I mean, it just at some point it, it gets, Monotonous. I mean, I, 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 I hate McConnell. I hate McCarthy. I, I just, but to me, I'm, I'm torn because it's so easy to hate Trump. And you hear, you turn on the news, and it's always we got him tonight. We got him. Trump is in trouble. I don't. Uh, what are we going to do about these Democrats? Well, um, it's not about 
what we do about them. It's what we do ourselves. And what we do ourselves is that we enable all of this stuff. We have, when we say vote blue, no matter who, or I've got to support this, we, we've just basically given them permission to be as awful and uh, as they can possibly get away with for the benefit of their donors. Um, for so, instance, I mean, here's, okay, before, go ahead. Yeah, uh, so I was thinking over the weekend, F it. I'm going to do what Professor Marianne Cummings. I'm going to say, you know what? Let them lose the House. I mean, I'm going to I'm not going to vote for my, my congresswoman. I'm going to look for a third party candidate. And then I thought that's privilege, that there are people who will really suffer if uh, the, the, we lose. Well, first of all, she's going to get reelected. It's a safe district. But my saying, F it, let the the Democrats lose the House, uh, there would be real suffering, wouldn't there, if the Republicans? There's real suffering anyway. Yeah. I mean, the bottom half percent of this country is losing ground. We just lost whatever is bit of good with the... um, the $300 tax credit for kids, which of right. course only applied to people with young kids, but that was something. Right. Uh, we, because thank God for Omicron, because it got a three month pushback on the ending of the payment of student, uh, the uh, suspension of student loan payments. I mean, you know, uh, the Democrats have done very little except for make real the change we really need almost impossible to get. You know, they've just basically been a block for the last 20 or 30 years against any progressive legislation or any progressive policy of, of, of a widespread nature being implemented by the Democrats. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I mean, everybody was all up in arms about uh, Louis DeJoy uh, as postmaster general. Well, Biden just recently uh, made clear that there is going to be no major uh, change in the post office. Um, he has uh, he has he has nominated a couple new people to the board. Uh, I don't know who they are. Dan Tangerlini, don't know, and Derek Kahn. One of them's a Democrat. One of them's a Republican. Really? Yes. So. Um, so the board, so nothing's going to change. Uh, well, why, how, so, why would he do that? Uh, I don't know. Khan, according to The Hill, is a Republican who worked in the Trump administration and for Senator Mitch McConnell. Ooh. Oh. So, Making him unlikely to remove DeJoy. Maybe that's, you know, his great bargaining chip. Yes, for yes, 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 yes. Feel yes. better. <laughs> yeah. And, and basically McConnell took it and... Now what? Mitch McConnell has absolutely zero uh, incentive to do anything that uh, he wants. Well, but yes, but McConnell said, I will do blank if you do, if you put this. Yeah. yeah, I I think that's literally true, David. He will do blank. (laughs) But at least it makes sense. It's it's keeping the wheels in a narrow political way. It makes sense. But, um, you know, they've um, I mean, DeJoy appears to be set on privatizing parts of the post office. 
Um, I mean, Congress is considering a Postal Reform Act, and it's going to, the, I think part of it is going to be something like a, a four, $46 billion in financial relief to the U.S. Post Office. Um, so, but, you know, that also includes like slowing down uh, first class mail and expanding commercial package delivery, at least. You know, in other words, uh, subsidizing uh, FedEx and UPS and other private carriers. So, you know, there we go. That's extremely consistent with uh, what what Biden, at least what remains of his frontal lobes, seems like. At least his, his lizard brain basically kind of like jives with that. that. That's his instinct. That's where he wants to go. He doesn't want anything to do with any FDR reemergence in the Democratic Party. Right. How bad so, is it in Illinois right now in terms of the weather and the homeless and COVID? And what are you dealing with? As, as I've got I've, I've got to, like, dig my car out of my driveway. But, you know, I, I should have done that earlier. But I, you know, I, I need some exercise. So I'm going to do this. Um, we're still at about in my zip code. We're still at about 44 percent vaccinated. And I think that is just two vaccines, not the vaccines plus the booster. It's a, uh, it's a poor, largely Hispanic zip code, and nobody at City Hall seems to be interested in the fact that a big chunk of the city is uh, not vaxxed. Poor so, uh, Hispanic, you say? Mm-hmm. So the, the people who take care of our kids and our elderly and touch our food uh ah yeah you would uh, be correct there i mean they're in in every broad community like the very affluent suburbs of chicago which is we're in the middle of needs a place like my our neighborhood <laughs> so needs a place for the low-income people like myself to live uh so we can do stuff for the you know the well-off and right. that's exactly what this area is. Right. Uh, and you're right. There's a lot of people working in food prep. There's a lot of people who are working in, in hospitals. I, I've i been in the hospital often this last couple of years with my friend who has been dealing with the, with the fallout of a traumatic brain injury from a car wreck two and a half years ago now. So, you know, I see it. So, you know, I, I, I see the people who work there. I see the people who... Uh, live in this area she's got good karma though uh she's a former co- uh community uh, community college professor and she meets up with her former students she's always meeting up with them in the icu um but anyway that's the way that's that's uh does this remind yeah. you of of the carter years uh it's worse but back then the hostages were taken we felt impotent we had just lost mm-hmm. the, we lost the vietnam war we were being de-industrial oh, yeah i mean carter i didn't really pay too much attention i paid way more attention a few years earlier as a kid with nixon and we got rid of nixon and that and then we got rid of his vp gerald ford we thought that that was you know great uh and Carter just seemed to be okay. It's another Democrat. Um, I wasn't 
old enough to really appreciate Carter. And I wasn't either for the good elements of Carter, because I think if Carter had been. What were the good uh, elements? Like there the were second no. term, I, I think we would have been, there would have been way more uh, emphasis put on uh, getting us off the oil. Right. Getting us to energy efficiency. Uh, and I know that Professor Harvey J.K. has explained things that I was not aware of of all at the time. I wasn't even, but I was aware of somewhat later that he had, in fact, signed legislation to deregulate the savings and loans. So that much did. But, and the uh, airlines. But I, t- I didn't vote for Carter. My first time voting, I voted for John Anderson because Carter was turning too right wing. Ziggy, Ziggy Brzezinski. I thought, my God, your national security advisor, and you got somebody who grew up under the Iron Curtain, behind the Iron Curtain. That's not a dispassionate guy looking out solely for the the security of the United States. This guy has an agenda. I knew that at the time, so I didn't vote for Carter. And then I woke up and what a nightmare Reagan was elected. And uh, do you worry that what 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 this country is thirsting for right now? is a Reagan type, a sunny optimist who's going to come in. You know, FDR was a sunny optimist who said, you know, we can beat this depression and I have ideas. And he cheered everybody up. Are you worried that? Oh, well, uh, I mean, a sunny optimist who is kind of out of touch with reality and has like dementia. Uh, We got that right now. I mean, I, I think... Yeah, there were a lot of people with Reagan, like my even my parents, who were staunch Democrats, but nonetheless, they were kind of like tickled. Wow, we remember seeing him in the movies and that kind of thing. I, I don't think people have that feeling toward Biden. Um, I, I, I think people would have really liked a Bernie Sanders type populist. Unfortunately, there won't be one forthcoming in the Democratic Party in 2024. And there may be like doppelgangers on the Republican side who will be running on that. So that's probably what the Democrats, which, you know, everybody sees the polling and, uh, you know, COVID has not gone well. And the fallout for COVID will be felt by at least half the country. Now, you know, the, the laptop jockeys, or as you would say, people who read email for a living, which means they that, that, that was that was. Uh... Uh, 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 Professor Liu, who said that. Oh, okay. But what I'm saying is that they feel that everything's great. Our 401ks are recovering, with, you know, whereas people in my neighborhood are really suffering. And um, I remember distinctly Pappy Bush, you know, just about nagging everybody at one of the debates that, hey, we the recovery from their last recession is almost a year long. You know, what are people complaining about? But it was a jobless recovery or low or the jobs that were coming back at the time were low paying jobs. It always seems to be that way. Um, it's, it's recovery for the, you know, the top 20% and higher and everybody else treading water or getting worse. So uh, when, when a candidate or president's rhetoric is not matching people's reality, um, then they've got that party has a problem. And what concerns me, I mean, we've been talking about Ukraine, but you know, there is one tried and true way for a party who is in serious trouble politically facing a set of elections 
uh, manages to save itself. Right. And that would be? Going to war. So let me ask you. And a real war. A real war with Ruskies, finally. So that's what I wanted to ask you. Has America changed? Transpose 2001 to uh, 2022. We're attacked on 9-11. Knowing what we know now, after 9-11 and the 20-year war and Vietnam, can a president take us to war? Aren't we well, divided? Aren't we divided? People are watch are not involved in it. I'm sorry. And the war people, you know, I think people don't want to go to war. I mean, there's not a big feeling to go to war. Uh, I think if we do go to war, there won't be the enormous. Uh, well, maybe there, there might be. I might be more. J- I might be the ones changed. I might be the one that's more jaded. But. I, I don't know if people are going to go on the street by the millions like we did protesting the invasion of Iraq. Um, Biggest anti-war effort in American yeah. history didn't stop the war. I've got people, I've got pictures of my own parents on that big march, into anti-war march in Detroit holding up, you know, drop Bush, drop, drop Bush not bombs signs. Right. Right. Were pigs flying that day? I don't know. That was an amazing day. So. But when you when you saw uh, uh, Milley testifying after Afghanistan, before Matt Gates, before Republicans being disrespected, uh, can this president lead us into war without the Republicans trying to stop it? Well, the Republicans might try to stop it. But there might be one thing holding them back. They probably won't do it directly because it turns out that a good chunk of their base aren't interested in war. I mean, like Trump was speaking out against the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war. I mean, he was popular because he was speaking out against this foreign incursions when our infrastructure was crumbling. Um, he he made the deal. Wars, he made he negotiated the, us getting out of one, but he really he expanded Obama's drone program. He you know he basically did what the military-industrial complex wanted him to do. Didn't like, Pom, didn't Pompeo make the deal that we had to be out of Afghanistan by the spring of last year, or, or start well, or or they we, would start attacking our troops. Wasn't that I good? don't. I know that uh, the original deal was was pushed back against by the Democrats the year before, and Liz Cheney, that Lynn, Liz Cheney, not Lynn Cheney, that's her mom. Liz Cheney suddenly became who had been pro-Trump completely up to that point. That summer in 2020, when Trump is now messing with her daddy's war, that's when she went to war against Trump. So, you know, um, the uh, the pullout date was uh, April the 1st and the Biden administration postponed that date. Um, and 
I think it, you know, the people are trying to give Biden credit. Okay, give Biden credit. But really, the Taliban decided they'd had enough and they were just taking over their the government. We spent 20 years propping up fled. And uh, but it seemed like the Taliban pretty much, you know, abided by the terms worked out by the previous administration. You right. know, they, there was this bombing. It wasn't them at the airport, but they pretty much let our troops. I mean, it was a remarkably uh, orderly withdrawal of our troops without major incidents to our troops. And, uh, you know, but uh, Biden is very much at war with Afghanistan. And it looks like there's going to be some massive starvation unless we reverse some of our policies withholding uh with withholding international aid to that area so you know that uh, and we've bumped up our war budget i know myla does not like me referring to it as the defense budget and she's got a point i'll refer to it as the war budget what was that for well oh that's right war with the ruskies god damn it Never got around to that war. Right. But now we have an opportunity. But we don't have. Uh, they, he can't send us into war. He can't. I just don't. We don't have. It, I was. People were, look, what they are can or can't do. Of course, they can go to war with Russia. I mean, they could have war. Can we win? Who wins that? Um, I. You know, I, I was inter- I was listening to a bit of uh, Peter's talk about that, and I forgot about Chernobyl being right in the middle of all that. Going, wow, okay, um, world's biggest wildlife preserve uh, outside right. of the Arctic wildlife preserve. Right. But um, anyway, uh, going you to know, you know Biden going to war with Russia would be like Biden. Uh, finding Mamie Van Doren in his bedroom. You know, it's uh, he wants to uh, do something, but uh, the flesh is weak. I don't think like he, he may think he's looking at her. I mean, he who knows what goes on in his mind right now? I mean, is he is he reading really reading through national security briefings like Bill Clinton and pouring over documents and having meetings with the Joint Chiefs of Staffs over over strategy and diplomacy that, you know, I don't think he's doing any of that. He's going back Um, to Delaware every weekend. Half his time is in Delaware and they don't tell us who is visiting. They won't release the visitor logs as to who's coming to talk to him in Delaware. Who do you think? Yeah, it well, is? he's got Blink- he's he's got Anthony Anthony Blinken or anything. I don't know if Anthony Blinken is a Dick Cheney, but he seems to be sort of the guy in charge. And apparently, we're going to, from what I read in the papers online, we're give, we're going to be sending two hundred million in military aid to Ukraine, deadly aid. So, um, you know, let us recall that the current corrupt government that we're trying to prop up we and many other many of the european countries were instrumental in and in installing back in 2014 or whenever it was our, and, foreign, our um, foreign policy is being orchestrated by blinken mm-hmm. stinking and nodding off wasn't that Blinken, Lincoln, and Nod? Isn't there an old joke from the yeah, first? Yeah, Lincoln, Blinken, and Nod. Yeah, Blinken, Lincoln, <laughs> and nodding off. Lincoln and nodding off. 
<laughs> That's good. Who's ever came up with that? I just came um, up with that. Oh, God. Okay. Mind of a comedian. Um, I just... Uh, yeah, well, I, you know... And, I and thought it was good. The but West it, Exec guys were were far more kind of, you know, financial analysts as, as, more, as much as anything else. So, you know, we're going to this war. It's our... Perpetual war has kind of been what's driving our economy now because I think that's our ma- major export. Yeah. I don't even think it's Hollywood movies. Cars. I understand so, China is now making movies that are very entertaining that mm-hmm. de- that demonize uh, America, that that make us the bad people, and it's very watchable. And it's very easy no, to hate American I, imperialists. Even Russia is doing it. Okay, so I loved, I absolutely adored the series, The Americans. I was kind of sad when it was over, but, you know, it was it was very good. Um, however, there there's two uh, Russian versions of The Americans. In other words, uh, young Americans who have come to Russia and were raised as Russians and they're spies. And uh, one is a sitcom, apparently, but the other one is very serious and I uh, kind of serious sort of, this is what the CIA has been doing all along. Um, and I've heard it's actually quite good, you know, very good uh, uh, production values and things like the actors are great. And so I, I would kind of like to, after I'm done, you know, binge watching Better Call Saul and about a dozen other programs, maybe I'll get around to it. Um, what are you binge watching? This is important to me because I, 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 I'm done with success. I, I've only, I've watched Succession three times now, and I, hmm. I need something well, new. I'm watching The Mandalorian every time I go over to my parents' house. I, I watch uh, episodes of The Mandalorian with my mother. And then we'll watch episodes of uh, Boba Fett. And then we'll watch episodes of Ashoka, uh, the the series, the, the spin-off series with that Jedi played by Rosario Dawson. Um, I have to finish watching Stranger Things. I have to finish watching Ozark. I mean, that was, I, I stopped while it was almost getting too intense, but I really want to watch that. I want to get back to watching that. And I abandoned The Wire de- years ago. I've got I've to gotta finish watching that. And that's, uh, that's sort of what I'm doing. And, you know, here I, there, there are campaigns in the dead of winter. We are going door to door for signatures. I was doing it for my friend, Rachel Ventura, this past week. I'm going to be doing it for Janaid Ahmad, who is, uh, I guess, coming on your show next week. Yes, it was going to be yeah. this at uh, six o'clock tonight. Tell us about your guest, please. Yeah, well, Junaid was a Bernie delegate and he was part of, he, he was loosely connected with our progressives of Kane County. And Kane County is uh, a county that's huge. It, it still has about, um, overlaps with four congressional districts and his is the one to the north of, uh, north of us up and up if you if you can imagine the fox valley river it's about 35 miles due west of chicago and there's all kinds of small historic towns up and down this river and aurora there aurora is one then batavia geneva um saint charles and then 10 miles further north is elgin and that's where Junaid is is at so his uh, district is very interesting, and um, it's 
it's got it's got a large it had a large Hindu uh, population. It has a significant Muslim population, and you know, I think this time around, just uh, just parenthetically, we I think the people like Junaid, who is only running because he's just dismayed that the that the squad hasn't been able to make an impact, that they were trying to play nice with the Democrats, and it is not working. He's got two kids in high school, at least two, and, you know, he says nothing's getting done on climate. So that's what kind of pushed him over the edge. Because this year is the year of, re, you know, of uh, redrawn districts, I'm urging anybody who's still on the fence about running or supporting somebody who's uh, primarying a, uh, a corporate Democrat to get on board with that campaign, because I don't think people thought much about this. A lot of these districts, um, the, the incumbent will not have their natural advantage. I mean, the eighth, the current configuration of the eighth district is only about 30% of the former district. In it, so that is a that gives you less of an advantage, and that is an opportunity for it, for challengers to rise to the occasion. So, um, and I think Janaid is already a threat because there seems to be a shadow candidate that has a Muslim name. He hasn't raised any money, but they're trying to get him on the ballot, and we think that that's basically. Uh, you know, being put up by his opponent and to, to split the Muslim community. Mm. Uh, I think that Junaid is appealing to far more than the Muslim community, but the Muslim community is important up there and they tend to be very progressive. You know, they tend, they were Bernie supporters the last time around. So that's uh, great to know. So, but apart from that, I'm just saying what I'm looking at at the outside, but uh, Junaid, uh, he says, you know, boy, I do not need to do this, and I do not want to make this career. He's got his own business. He's just doing this because, A, he can, and, B, he feels he needs to, and not necessarily in that order. I think he feels he needs to do it, and right. he is able to do it. Um, but as he tells me, do I really want to be doing this? And I said, well, if you don't want to be doing this, then you're somebody, but you're doing it anyway, then you're somebody I'd want to support. Right. So, um, well, I'm really so grateful. We're, we're, what we're trying to do moving yeah. forward is have on every show have a candidate who's running for the House or the Senate. And I think that will inspire Americans to not be feel paralyzed and powerless. That's what or, they want. Or jaded. And I mean, look, I, I understand disappointment. I just understand feelings of hopelessness and, you know, just kind of nihilistic tendencies. But when you see people like that, uh, another candidate uh, I'd like to have on is my friend Rachel Ventura. You had her on your show yes. last year. Yes. And she was running against Bill Foster, did very well. But she decided this time around she needed a win. And I think she's in a very good position to win. Uh, she's running for state Senate. And again, this is you know, around the Will County. That's just to the south. Joliet is to the south of, of Aurora. Bring, it, bring her on, please. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's I, I mean, I, she was so discouraged. She was, she was basically running, she was a campaign manager for John Lash's uh, uh, mayoral campaign last year. 
And that was soundly defeated where the Democratic organizations were supporting the Republicans, not John. Now we find out, even though he swore up and down, he had no further ambition. The guy who won last April, the the incumbent who got reelected, is now just announced that he's running for governor as a Republican. And people are shocked and dismayed. I'm sorry, what am I telling you guys? <laughs> Here's my fantasy. We have to wrap it up because Professor Mike Steinell is here. Here's my fantasy oh, yeah. before I give up on the Democratic Party. Here's my fantasy. That we're going to lose the House, the Democrats, uh, and rightfully so, because there's nothing. It doesn't matter if we lose the House and the Senate in the midterms, because Biden uh, can't do anything with a, a Democratic Senate and House. So it's, we might as well have the Republicans in charge. I know this sounds glib. So in 2024, the Democrats have somebody to blame, to run against. And what we see at the end of the midterms are uh, more members of the squad, a far left infrastructure. No, th we're not going to see any third party Congress candidates elected. No, right? I mean, it's structurally set up. So, what, third so my fantasy is that, you know, we support all the left wing candidates that you want to bring on and that Howie wants to bring on. And we rack, we get some numbers on the board. Nancy goes and we have a radical left in the House of Representatives that sets the sets the stage for uh, 2024. You have to believe in the future. If you believe mm -hmm. that the planet is doomed or that COVID is whatever, uh, you're wrong. You're wrong. The planet is not doomed. We are, but the planet yeah. is not doomed. And the planet's going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be fine. It's, I think Carlin, I, I think George Carlin said that. So I want to, uh, I apologize. Yeah, uh, but we're, even with climate change being catastrophic, we're going to have to keep moving forward. That's what we do. And we have to make sure that we write the future, not Elon Musk. And yeah. get angry and know who the enemies are and fight for the candidates who are not corporate yeah. owned. They and want I think that there are. And the, and the what's really great is that there are candidates who's looked at, you know, maybe you could say the squad did what they thought might work. Fine, try it. It didn't work. We've got candidates that are willing to like beef them, you know, give them a little bit more spine and willing to take on leadership. If the Dems lose in the midterms, unless we go to war with the Ruskies, um, I, I, I think they'd lose anyway. Uh, there's a chance for a progressives to be challenging Biden, Harris, 
Buttigieg, whoever. Right. And, and I think that they're going to be worse than Bernie. If it's my kids, if these the, the leftists oh. coming up, if they could find if it's people like me, they're going to beg for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> hey, know. quick, quick question. We have to wrap it up. Uh, quick question. As Parks Commissioner, if Aurora, Illinois said, you know what, we're going to take a building and we're going to create a free kitchen around the clock that serves coffee and feeds anybody, no questions asked. You can come in it's and it's free around the clock. Uh, and we're going to, and it's not, if you look at Rahima.org, mm -hmm. you look at Professor Adnan Hussein's parents' food pantry, $5, you can, you can make a bean lentil soup with vegetables and rice. $5 can feed a lot of people. What would happen? Oh, yeah. if, what would happen if you set up? Who would try to stop you, McDonald? If you start, if the city starts feeding people, say, you know what? No questions asked. And this and it's nice. And we're going to have musicians and artists and we're going to pay them. And, and it's going to be there's going to be free food. Nobody's going to go hungry in Aurora, Illinois. What would happen? Who would fight that? Um, I think at this point, nobody. I mean, people are still stunned that the mayor of our town, who they thought was Demo was a Democrat, was a Republican. And now it's like everybody's kind of looking at stuff he's done and deals he's made and went uh, like, oh, wait a minute, this guy. So I think that that idea... I. I actually floated that idea or something like that to the park district. You know, I had several asks and I actually got some of those asks. So, uh, you know, who would make an argument? Who would make an argument? No one against that. It's not fair. It's not fair to whom restaurants that are all going under. It's not fair to McDonald's. It's not who isn't it fair to if government money is spent to hire chefs you know, a Keynesian approach to creating jobs. And these jobs are to make sure that nobody in Aurora, Illinois is ever hungry or nobody in Aurora, Illinois has to. You know what? I don't want to cook. I, I, I'm rich. I don't want to cook. The food is free. I'm going down to I pay taxes. I'm going to go get a free meal. I'll meet you down. Mm -hmm. Just, you know. Uh, I'm a multi-billionaire living in Aurora, Illinois. I pay enough taxes. I'm going to go eat down at the community center. Who would be against free food for everybody with no stigma? Where you encourage rich people to eat down there? So that you know, we we were thinking of something um, set up for the Hesed House, which is where the homeless live. But now I'm thinking that's probably a way better idea. Just where anybody can get food. Why not? The amount of food that's wasted that that, that grocery stores have to throw out that, you know, restaurants but I'm have talking to about a out. place, a restaurant, a free restaurant where people sit right. and there's a community and 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 we pay people to sing and do comedy and read poetry and your art. Move your head for one second, please. Your art, the government pays buys your paintings and hangs them on the walls 
And who would be against that? This, this is boy, this put this makes me enraged because Henry Huckamacki says, you know, the left hates organized religion, but the Catholic Church feeds people. Yes, as does Hezbollah. Yes. So, you know, that's a that that that's a very good point. And in fact, you know, that's what the churches haven't been doing much. Now, of course, the last two years has been life in the in the era of cholera around here. So, you know, it's everywhere else, COVID. But my God, why not do that? And why is it hard to do it? Who who would stop you? Who would go on record? I'm you not know, talking about fancy food. You, you want fancy food? You go like in go New York. Huh? Go to a restaurant. Go to a restaurant. Go to Zabar's or wherever. Talking yeah. about like what Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org, what they provide. Food that not only can you live on, you'll live longer on. Are you a vegan? Yeah. I don't even want to call myself a vegan because that's trendy. I was just going to say I believe in a plant-based diet. Oh, that's better than I just say I'm morally superior. I'm on a, I have a morally superior <laughs> yeah. diet and I stand in judgment of people who don't eat the way I do. That's the difference. You're a politician. I'm not. Yeah. Thank you, professor. So. Thank you. <laughs> let's so. let us uh, let's continue this conversation about uh, setting up 24 hour restaurants. Well, there, my God, uh, Professor Mike Steinel joins us. And I've seen that picture before. Hello, uh, David. Da Dana Gould. <clears throat> Dana Gould <laughs> sent that to me <laughs> 10 years ago. And okay, tell the people who are who are listening on the pod. I'm showing on my background the famous picture of Jack Ruby shooting Lee Harvey Oswald. And somebody very cleverly has turned it into uh, Oswald's leaning back. We've got a microphone stand. And Ruby, instead of a gun, has a Stratocaster. And the, and the uh, sheriff, actually that sheriff, lived here in town. And really? Died recently. Yeah, and he used to talk about this day. Um, but anyway... I showed this photograph to a student when I first saw it. My uh, teaching assistant was in the room. Somebody sent this, you know, and I said, oh, look at this. This is funny. And he comes over and goes, what band is that? <laughs> it didn't didn't even register. I said, that's not a band. That's that's Oswald getting shot by Ruby. He goes, oh, never seen that before. It's so good. Anyway. It's been around for for years. So the the guy in the 10 gallon hat who was ushering, escorting uh, Oswald out of the jail to another jail, the prison transfer. What did he say yeah. about it? What, what did he say? He never said anything. He didn't say anything, you know, like that was conspiratorially. But you wonder why they, do you remember that? You know, it's, first of all, I've been, I've been going down rabbit holes because of your show. 
And we're going to get to meatloaf in a minute. But anyway, okay, <laughs> you were very funny on uh, on uh, Sam Cedar. If you haven't, listeners, if you haven't heard the show on Friday with with David Feldman on Sam Cedar Majority Report uh, in mourning for meatloaf, you got to listen to it. Yeah, I it did. A, pretty... I did a little of it on this show. <laughs> I, uh, Today, yeah, I, I. Oh, I didn't catch. I, I haven't been. I've been. So, I've been snowed you. under, man. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Sam shows that uh, the majority report is is so great. And uh, so we can talk about meatloaf if, if you'd like. Yeah, we can talk about that later. But anyway, you you mentioned uh, what last week, Kitty Carlisle came up and meet and, and Dorothy Kilgallen and Dorothy Kilgallen. I have a song I'm going to do live called Who Killed Dorothy Kilgallen? <laughs> So I've been spending far too much time online reading about the death of Dorothy Kilgallen and all the stuff she was uh, about ready to. Do you know that Arlene on Francis? The Arlene Francis. Yes, yeah, she was on What's My Life. Was that her replacement? Arlene, no. Arlene Francis killed two people, I believe. Uh, Accidentally? She, well, her she had a air conditioner in New York. By the way, if you want to grow an audience, the key to growing an audience is discussing Kitty somebody. Car no, no, Kitty Carlisle, Dorothy Kilgallen, and Arlene Francis. This is how you get an international audience. Arlene Francis, I believe, very sweet woman, as I understand. However, she, you know, killed in, somebody, huh? I, I think two people. I think one what. There was an air conditioner that was attached to the window. And I'm surprised this doesn't happen every day on the hour. I agree. In New York, those big buildings with air conditioners, old ones. Yeah. yeah. So it fell out of her apartment and landed on somebody. The cleaning lady took the rap on that one. But there was also a head-on collision, I believe, uh, either her yeah. husband or Arlene late at night, I believe. Maybe maybe I'm thinking of Jackson Pollock, but uh, I always confuse Arlene Francis with Jackson Pollock. This is how you lose. This is this is so Dorothy Kilgallen, columnist, gossip columnist, right. died under mysterious circumstances in the '60s. She had just done an interview with. Jack, Jack Rubenstein, owner of the Carousel Club, right, who killed in plain sight Lee Harvey Oswald. They knew who Jack Ruby was. They kind of let him into the garage that morning. He shouldn't have been allowed in there. Well, here's the thing. I think it was set up so that everybody could see the killing. If if Oswald had been killed in his cell, that would have raised a lot of eyebrows. Yeah. But you're too like young Jeffrey to remember. Epstein. Like Jeffrey Epstein. Right, right. Like we got you're to the bottom to of that. You're too... Yeah, we did, certainly. Um, we were sitting... That happened on the Sunday after the Friday of the assassination. Right. And my family... Am I too loud or too soft or whatever? Am I good? Uh, I'm not going to silence anybody who's talking about what you're talking about. Go ahead. <laughs> but anyway, we were sitting there at my grandparents' house, 
and watching, I think the football game was on. My granddad liked to keep it on during while we ate. And uh, <clears throat> there, I think it was, a, anyway, they broke in and uh, they said, we're going to, they're, they're moving uh, the assassin from this jail to this jail. And then I think we saw that live on TV. If not live, we saw they, somebody was there to, to, to video the whole thing. You know, the TV cameras were there. Ike Pappas from CBS News, I believe. Yeah, and you know, I bought the Russ Baker's book. Oh my God, that's a, I'm in the David Feldman. You had him on a couple weeks He's ago. The best. Uh, family of secrets about the Bushes and uh, the whole thing of where Poppy Bush was on the day of the assassination. He was, he was in, uh, well, this is so, this gets so intricate, but he was in Dallas the night before for sure. And maybe the morning of. As was um, Richard Nixon. He was in Dallas. Wow. He left like the night before. Everybody well, anyway, was, a, it was, everybody was there. It was, a it's crazy. Of people it's crazy. Who wanted Kennedy dead. <laughs> it said, "Welcome." The hotel said, "Welcome, Kennedy haters." <laughs> well, you know, Dorothy had also um, broke. She wrote about Marilyn Monroe and the and the uh, and and Jack and and Robert Kennedy, and uh, forty eight hours after that story came out, she just alluded that there might have been something there. Um, Bobby visited Marilyn on the day she died. And she died. She died 48 hours after that story came out. And um, and then, of course, she went after old blue eyes and she had some she tried to um, reveal some things about uh, the plots to kill Castro. But anyway, so you want. So as I want to hear my song about it. Well, yeah, in a second, please. OK. But as I understand it, Marilyn died in 62 and Bobby was. Marilyn died. Yes. And she was sleeping. As My understanding is she was first she was sleeping with Jack Kennedy and then Bobby, the brother, carried on with her, was very worried about her. And then she was keeping a diary. This is what I've read. This is conjecture. That is probably true. She was threatening to go public with the romance. She was keeping a diary. Bobby visited her in Los Angeles to try to calm her down. And then they calmed her down. <laughs> they gave her... Uh, that seems to be the... Uh, I read that... Uh in order for the amount of barbiturates to be in her stomach, she had had to have taken 50 uh, caplets of the sleeping pill that she used. And there was no, there was no, nothing in her stomach. None of the, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the coatings of the pills were still in her stomach and her colon was bruised. And um, it was, one writer thinks that it was common that the mob would do stuff like that. They injected her with, uh, they gave her an enema of barbiturates. That's what I was told to do. By, I'm being serious. My father's best friend, I, I'm not making this up. Okay. <laughs> My father's best friend was a, a gynecologist <laughs> who did uh, abortions when they weren't legal. 
And he once told me when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, if you want to kill yourself, shove it up your ass. And I said, what? He says, take a handful of barbiturates, David, and just shove them up your ass. And I Now, went, why was this man giving a 12-year-old advice on how to commit because suicide? Because he wanted to make my father laugh, and it made my father <laughs> laugh really hard. I'm, I'm telling you the God's honest truth. I believe you. I believe you. That my father thought that was the funniest thing in the it, world. It is kind of this, hum humorous. This, and this you doctor think telling think a young prepubescent boy had a... So, yeah, that was... Yeah. By the way... Uh, yes. I shouldn't tell people that. I just spread some. Uh, yeah, if you uh, need help, call. Yeah, call. That was not right for me to. Uh, hey, um, before we get into the Dorothy King, I watched way too much football. And then this weekend, I finally got the page proofs for my new novel. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just can't believe that my father was laughing. <laughs> Well, we just laughed at it. It's, Who you know, tell it's, it's kind of a twelve-year-old kid. <laughs> I think you were raised in a sick family. I think I yeah <laughs> explains a lot, David. Explains yeah, it sure does. A lot. Explains sure a lot. Does. Wow. Go ahead. I'm but, sorry. Um, I didn't give you anyway. A there was a game for the ages last night, and my team, Kansas City. Yeah, I'm from Kansas, Kansas City. Even though they're in Missouri, I, we still claim them. Right, Kansas City Chiefs. They the two teams scored 25 points in a minute and 58 seconds in the fourth quarter. And then Kansas City went. Um, uh, let me see. Uh, the Bills tied it up. Kansas City came back in overtime. And in 38 seconds, I think they scored, you know. So that's good football. Yeah. It was great football. Now, was, when you look at all uh, these football players, ex-football players, with CET problems, getting arrested every day. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrible, it's a terrible sport. But you know, it's just like I grew up. That that was kind of the only sport that we watched religiously, not religiously, but I watched those games. I remember being very into football, even though I was I could never play it. I was way too small. I went out. I played on in junior high. I was a I was a safety, David. I was played, half as tall. You played football? Yeah, in junior high. I, I lived in a small community. If you didn't go out for football, you know, you were a wuss. You were ostracized. A lot of pressure. But you are a athletics. wuss. I am a wuss, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, they put me in in a game when we were way ahead. I mean, I had I had pants. You know how the pants are supposed to go to your knees and you got yeah. knee pads? Mine went halfway down my ankles. <laughs> I was so small, nothing fit. Right. And I was, it was, I wish I had pictures. I, I do have pictures it. of uh, me on the basketball team and with those shirts with the open things and they're down to my waist, the, the armholes, you know, nothing right. fit. But anyway, they put me in. <clears throat> we were way ahead and uh, I was safety. And all I did was sit in the back there and go, don't come this way. Don't come this way. Oh, God, please don't come this way. <laughs> One play, they went right. the other way, and I went, and, and then the game was over. But I did get, a, I did get to play. I wasn't you know, allowed I got, to play football. Or, I wasn't allowed to play, was it Pop Warner? Well, not Pop, what was the football? We didn't, we didn't have Little League football. We had actually middle school football starting in seventh grade. Seventh I wasn't allowed grade. to play tackle football. Yeah. You should, I don't think... 
I don't think anybody should be allowed to. <laughs> it is so brutal. Is. I mean, guys, guys are getting hurt right and left in that game yesterday, and they they just go on, just haul them off. Yeah, not a, it's not good. It, no, it it's co- not. Causes more damage than boxing, turns out, to the brain. Well, I don't know. It depends on what it, probably what uh, how hard you you know how often you get hit, and what position you play those guys in the in the line they're just banging it every every play it's it's brutal and and really the plays that where most people get hurt is when they're going full steam i remember one coach said when he sensed that we were kind of like uh, wussing out on tackles he said when i was a player if i was giving it all my all and going full steam it never hurt it never hurt. <laughs> I got news for him. It hurts just as much when you're going full steam. You know, Jenk uh, Uger played football, and he loved it. I, I asked him about this, and he said, no, it felt great. And hit you know, like you get out there, and it, it, there's like getting hit and hitting somebody. It's all adrenaline and endorphins and pain. And for because- some people, it's a very pleasant experience. You know, it's like they get, they get uh, like you say, they get like a hormonal rush from it you know yeah uh, not not me yeah endorphins are is like morphine for but it's the morphine your body makes so when you was get, flipper and an endorphin was flipper he was a, no, an endorphin and porpoise he was a porpoise yes uh <laughs> anyway yeah oh here's a song for you oh sorry yeah dorothy kilgallen no but i even got another one i've you know, I've got some stuff done today. Let me see. A seven and eight hour show. Whoops. A seven and eight hour show. Every week. Two times or more. You always talk in front. For at least an hour or more. And if Dave Cyrus doesn't show, you can always stretch, you know. I don't have the chords right. Ah, a seven and eight hour show. See if we get dinged on that one. Uh, I liked it without the wall of sound. That was yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I, I have no wall. Yeah. I have no wall. You want to hear who killed Dorothy Kagala? And then I sent I sent a little one from the I, I have, It's too. already racked up. I listened to it. I like it. Um, um, and I like you, David. Is this who the, killed, this the is song who killed is about Dorothy Kilgallen. Okay. I got to put like a... I'm using the loop, so I do a little harmonic in the front. <laughs> Who 
killed Dorothy Kilgallen. <laughs> Who killed Dorothy Kilgallen? I've been thinking about this all day. It might have been the CIA. Ruby may have spilled the information about the Kennedy assassination. Who killed Dorothy Kilgallen? Who killed Dorothy Kilgallen? Who killed Dorothy Kilgallen? She wrote about the Kennedys and Marilyn Monroe. Some people thought it was a blow too low. Bobby went to visit on the day she died. I guess some people had a lot to hide. Who killed Dorothy Kilgallen? Who killed Dorothy Kilgallen? Who killed Dorothy Kilgallen? You know she went after old blue eyes. He said her article was full of lies. Frankie did everything his way. Maybe the mob had a debt to pay. Who killed Dorothy Kilgallen? myself a cramp oh. that is so great that is you can we can we uh <laughs> i want to start the show with who killed dorothy kilgallen that is you want so me to, want me to so, uh hey I, you got your effects back i see well i'm i don't want to talk about it because it's it's not working the way what about oh. a song about a, a ginger rogers mother too I caught a little bit of that. Now, can I can I tell you something? You've used a term, and I don't understand where it comes from. I under I th a beard. I didn't. I didn't. I hadn't heard that term before. Beard. Oh, okay. What is it exactly? Uh, I was gonna. I can't. I. 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 If. If. All right. So, if you were somebody else. Yes. I. I would, and if it were 10 years ago, <laughs> ask me the question again. So what is this thing, the beard? What is that about? What's the beard? If it what, were, what is I can't a beard? bring myself to say your wife. If it were 10 years ago <laughs> and it was a different person, I'm not going to say your wife. Uh, so it's, it's, it's Ginger a Rogers mother was a beard. Like for hire? She dated or J. Just, Edgar Hoover, so nobody would know that J. Edgar Hoover was a cross-dressing, self-hating, closeted homosexual. That's what a beard is. Okay. All right. And where does that? Where does it come from? I don't know. Beard is something you put on to assume a, a masculine sort of effect. Oh, that's interesting. 
uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'll find out for next week. I never heard that term until you used it. You you use a lot of big big words like beard, like That's, beard, like is beard. A big word. That's not very big, but I mean, <clears throat> sclerotic. I learned that from you, and uh, what else? Why don't we do we as we? Why don't we do a song? <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I love ideas. Give it to me, like a Gershwin style top hat. Uh, Fred Astaire number about Ginger Rogers' mother being a horrible human being and how bad a person Ginger Rogers was because she was a red baiter. Bad person. Unless you like people maybe, who baited the reds. <laughs> maybe something like, I'm just a beard for love. <laughs> like well, for now, love and a beard for love. Now, here's the thing about Ginger. She was not a ginger, right? She was a bleach blonde. She was a red-baiting ginger. She was somebody... <laughs> she was a self-hating ginger. The, she was anti-red. You're not interested in blowing the she lid did, off she, ginger. She much. did everything Fred Astaire did, except backwards and in heels. That's what she always said. Right. So you got to admire that. Well, uh... uh J. Edgar Hoover and Clive, Clyde, Clyde Tolson did everything Ginger Rogers did <laughs> backwards and in heel. You know who Clyde Tolson was? Yeah, that was his uh, his companion, his 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 lover, Clyde. Yeah, and they Tolson. Had, they shared every meal, and more than that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know Jim Earl? We built. We used to do a sitcom on this show. This was that'd be. 10 years ago and it was based on the relationship between J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> and Clyde Tolson. We, we lived together. We worked together. We slept together, but we were not gay. That was the whole premise of the sitcom that we did with Eddie, Eddie Pepitone. And whenever we wrote the scripts, it was always based on Clyde Tolson and J. Edgar Hoover. Everybody should know who Clyde Tolson is. It's a, Oh, man, J. Edgar Hoover. Everybody. <clears throat> wow. Bad guy. Bad yeah. guy. His name is still on the building. You know what? I've been reading that family of secrets about yeah. the Bushes and about everybody else, Dulles, yeah. and about Nixon and about the Kennedys. and yeah, it's a lot of bad guys. It's really depressing they in a way. Believe, you know? they didn't, Dulles did not believe in democracy. They, they yeah. literally are on record saying, not every Dulles said, not everybody should vote. We don't want everybody voting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a horrible thing. MikeSteinel.com. You are, before we'll play your song, but I never give you a proper introduction. Mike Steinel is a jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator, member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty. From 87 to 2019, author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary. His latest is Running the Changes. And Go Buy Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert. It's on Origin Records. Go to MikeSteinel.com to find out how to buy all his stuff. And, and see him perform. Are you performing live anywhere? Is I wish. I wish. Yeah, it's like it's going to be hard. We've got a lot of 
things we have to be very careful with in our household. We, yeah. I, <clears throat> our, uh, my uh, mother-in-law lives with us, and she's 99. Right. And she, she's doing great. She's Good. so healthy. But she does have some issues, you know, and then we're just really careful right now. So right. anyway, her name is Nadine, and she's amazing. Yeah. Hey, um, you know who else went to North Texas, University of North Texas? Who? Meatloaf. Oh, my God. <laughs> Meatloaf went. Did you know meat? No, no. I do, I, did no, the loaf ever come him. back? No. I don't think so. He, he, um, he went one semester, I think, to uh, he went to a junior college for a while and played football for them. Imagine mm -hmm. that. And uh, then he went uh, to North Texas. I don't know what he majored in, but he didn't go for long. Obviously um, not science. <laughs> no, I did meet his publisher, though. Um, let me see. What's the guy's name? Oh, I'm going to forget this person's name. He lives Roast in. Biscuit. Lived, what's that? Roast brisket. <laughs> that's good that's good no, it you know why they called him meat his father named him meat in the hospital because he was so red he came out and he stayed red for about um seven days and his father mean father i think alcoholic mean father and he he wanted the the nurses he encouraged the nurses to call this little baby meat and then a coach so he was meat growing up meat and then uh, a coach called him Meatloaf at some point, and that stuck. But, so he uh, was born red. Yeah, he was a... Well, there's an a, old saying in a maternity ward, better red than blue. <laughs> better red than yeah, blue. That's right. I didn't uh, know where you were going with that. But bad. anyway... He, um, listen, I, bad out of hell... He it, all he needed to do was keep his science and his politics to himself. Uh, amen. I believe that Just, he was a powerful singer, though. I tell you what. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. He uh, he put it all to work there. That's for sure. And and what what would compel somebody who's so talented as an actor and a singer to have to tell us what he thought? about covid vaccines and masks nobody you didn't have to volunteer that stuff hubris hubris yeah hubris and it gets people into trouble get people die because yeah people you know bill maher has to talk about vaccines and masks when he should bill should just you know well i guess i'll, I'll be careful what i say but yeah, it's too bad. Yep. Because you want to uh, play the little song I sent to you? Yeah. I've, I like this one. It's very short. It's about a minute and a half. But I think this could be a this theme is, song from my, time it, to time. It, it, it is my theme song. <laughs> and I like this. And we need to play. This is uh, my my one of a hundred theme songs. Written and performed by Professor Mike Steinell. He's groovy like a movie 
that you watched one time when you were kinda high. But now you can remember exactly why you liked it, but you did. He's charming, it's alarming, how charming he is when he's farming. And just like that movie that we watched when we were stoned, we like him, and we don't know why. He's gregarious, he's hilarious, and most of his head is hairyless. And like the mean girl from school who treated you cruel, you like him, and you don't know why. You like him, and you don't know why. You like him, and you don't know why. So great, and it's so great. It's so great. Thank you, thank you. I haven't heard that, and uh, I am having some. I need a new computer. I don't want to go into details, but there's some issues. I have to just get a new computer because there is stuff on a hard drive that I can't. I can't access because I'm doing this entire project on one computer. That is so great. Mike Steinel, Professor Mike Steinel. I'm gonna We be, like you, David. Thank we you. Like before you. you go, before and we you don't go, know why. Before you go, I'm yeah. gonna take a liberty with Robert Smigel. I'm I'm rolling the dice here. Robert, the greatest comedy writer in the history of television, Robert Smigel. I don't know if I have permission to show this. So, uh, if we get into trouble, this is this was my idea, but it was really Smigel's. I'm doing this okay. for but since you're showing me the Photoshop of Lee Harvey Oswald, this may this may or may not have been sent to me by Robert Smigel, who made this. <laughs> Betty beats Trump. <laughs> Betty White turns. It's it's Harry Truman holding up a headline that says Betty White turns a hundred. There's an actual. Uh, there's. I don't know if I have permission to show this. Robert Smigel came up with this, and there's an actual People magazine that came out that says Betty oh my White God, really turns one hundred, and the the caption is. Harry Truman is such a bitch. Uh, the problem, I don't know. Robert Smigel made that. I don't know if I have permission to show that. So no. if I don't have permission, uh, then I made it. <laughs> but Robert Smigel. Now, who would get that? How many people get that? Well... Um, you have I guess to you have to know about Truman and Dewey, right? You know, you have to know that Dewey, that that 
when Harry Truman was running for re-election in 1948, yeah. Thomas Dewey was expected to beat him. And they they went ahead and printed a banner headline that reads, Dewey beats Truman. And the next yeah. day, there's this iconic photograph of Harry Truman holding up the newspaper, the headline, Dewey beats Truman. And People magazine, anticipating Betty White to make it to her birthday, what was it, last week, had a cover story, Betty White turns 100. It was on wow. all the, if you go to the grocery, it's you can see it. And it got out? It, it was got on the out, stand? And then, oh, my God. And Robert Smigel may or may not have decided to make this Photoshop. Uh, which is which made me you know, laugh so hard. Dewey, Dewey got beat, but he went on to a great career. He invented the Dewey Decimal System. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He did not. I know it's a different <laughs> Dewey. Uh, he couldn't get Dewey. Couldn't get. He had a he had a, like a pencil thin mustache. And that's why they yeah. say he lost because he had a. Pencil. He needed a beard. He needed a beard. Wait a second. <laughs> Was Dewey, let me just look, uh, kill time here for a second. Okay. Uh, plug your gigs. Sing who I killed. I have no gigs. Okay. Very exciting. Yesterday, the page proofs arrived for my novel, Saving Charlie Parker. Right. So it's it's close to getting done. I But but I, I spent all the, my eyes hurt from looking at a screen. I spent all day... Um, proofing and then doing redoing the audio book that will be for that i gotta get some help i don't know how i, I woke up today at 4 30 thinking how am i gonna market this thing i'm gonna you know i don't care about making a whole bunch of money i like what you said about we don't go into this for money but i would like for it you know i'd put a lot of work in you want things to have some exposure so i still have struck out with publicists but i'm still trying if anybody's out there wants to take on a retired jazz professor as a client, I'm ready. I'm ready. Uh, okay. Yes. Yes. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> you weren't listening. <laughs> I was trying to find out about Thomas Dewey. Uh, now, Thomas Dewey, there's there's different Deweys. Um, the Dewey, Dewey that... Louie? <laughs> Louis Huey and the Dewey. Um, I used to have my students for in pedagogy. We re read about uh, Dewey, who wrote. Uh, uh, let me see. Education as experience. Very, very important um, guy in, in um, American education. Um, I used to tell students, you, "Did you ever make a volcano in science class? Did you ever go to the zoo?" No. His whole thing was, "You, you, you." Um, learn things by experiencing them, not by reading about them. And we, we kind of lose track of that. But he he was not the same as the Dewey, the politician, and not the same as Dewey, the Dewey Decimal guy. And was, I think was it's it, wasn't there an Admiral Dewey's. Dewey? Yes, I think there was. Like from the Spanish-American War? Yeah, may have been. I think. We're just grasping at straws here. It's out there, somebody knows, but... I could look it the, up. But I'm not yeah. going to. No, I don't think you need to. Let's, it's trivial. I'll tell you, my favorite band is going to be the Oswald Ruby duo. That looks pretty cool there. Yeah, they, yes. He's uh, wailing, man. I love He's the wailing. Who Killed Dorothy Kill. That's, a, that's perfect for the show. I'll flesh it out. 
I'll flesh it out a little bit. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry she had bad things to say about your man, Sinatra. She did not like yeah, Frank Sinatra. A lot of people didn't And like. he was mean to her. Yes, he was. Yeah, I bet he, he called her, her abroad. No, he called her something. He, he commented on her looks. Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. a man. Not the nicest guy, but great artist. He, he was. He was. Yeah. David, I better sign off here. Sign off. <laughs> Professor Mike Steinel. That is our show. Thank you, sir. Professor Mike Steinel. Go to MikeSteinel.com for more information. I want to thank all our guests. Uh, Dan is not here, so we're not going to do Community Billboard. I would like to thank Gina Huckamaki, and I'd like to thank Howie Klein, as well as David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Professor Adnan Hussein, Peter B. Collins, Professor Marianne Cummings, and of course, the brilliant Professor Mike Steinel. Don't forget, we do office hours every Friday night, starting at 8 p.m. Go to my website to sign up. And if you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, go to my website. While you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast. We also have a YouTube channel, so please subscribe to that. I was going to play an interview that Henry Huckamaki did, but I can't play it. I need a new computer. I, this, uh, let me just see, let me just try something. Let me see if I restart something. If this works, I doubt it. I may freeze, I may kill the show. And that won't be the first time. Let me see if I can do something here. I'm, a, it, I'm seeing the beach ball. Let me see. Yeah, can't be done. Okay, F me. F me and F you Apple. F you Apple. I can't do it. Uh, I have a relatively new computer, and now the whole thing is just... Hang on, let me just try it one more time. Here we go. Here we go. No. 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 All right, can't do it. I was thought I could play Henry Huckamaki. I would have to shut my entire computer down. And, and we can't do that. I, I'm trying to run software that won't work. So I can't do it. Okay. Not going to be angry. Uh, just adding to my enemies list. Tim Cook, you're now on my enemies list. Tim Cook from Apple. You made my enemies list tonight. I have a relatively new computer. And uh, now I may have to buy a new one. That's our show. Remember to stay strong and, oh, come on. You can do this, Feldman. Remember to stay strong and, no. No, that's not what I wanted to play. Remember to stay strong and boycott. Uh, be a good citizen 
by being a discerning consumer. Don't buy things you don't need. You want to be a good citizen? Watch what you buy. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. He's groovy like a movie that you watched one time when you were kind of high. But now you can remember exactly why you liked it, but you did. He's charming, it's alarming, how charming he is when he's farming. And just like that movie that we watched when we were stoned, we like him, and we don't know why. Gregarious, he's hilarious, and most of his head is hairyless. And like the mean girl from school who treated you cruel, you like him, and you don't know why. You like him, and you don't know why. You like him, and you 